This is Audible. Audible Studios present The Death of Dulgarth, written by Michael J. Sullivan, performed by Tim Gerard Reynolds, with an author introduction written and read by Michael J. Sullivan. Included at the end of this book, enjoy a free preview of Age of Myth, book one of the First Empire series, along with a bonus short story, The Methuselah Treatment, by T.C. Powell. I've been locked in a room for over two and a half years. The only light, the soft glow of a computer screen. That's how I remember it, anyway. After finishing Hollow World, I began working on what was supposed to be a trilogy called The First Empire. Three books became five, and two and a half years slipped away. Readers of the Ryura Chronicles began requesting book three immediately after the Rose and Thorns release in September 2013. The Chronicles previously expected to be a flop because prequels are the third rail of publishing, did surprisingly well. I'm sorry it took so long to get this out, but at least the wait is over. If you are new to the Ryura stories, you certainly can start with this book. The other two Ryura chronicles told the original story of how Royce and Hadrian met. With that tale told, this book was freed up to tell a standalone adventure. If you do want to read other Ryura novels then you should know there are two different ways you can approach the saga. Publication order, Theft of Swords, Rise of Empire, Heir of Navron, The Crown Tower, The Rose and the Thorn, The Death of Dulgath. Chronological order, The Crown Tower, The Rose and the Thorn, The Death of Dulgath, Theft of Swords, Rise of Empire, Heir of Navron. Personally, I prefer order of publication but I've heard from people who have read chronologically, and they've been equally pleased with the experience. If you're wondering if there will be a next Royce and Hadrian story, the answer is, I don't know. As I mentioned elsewhere, I'm protective of the duo, and would rather have them leave early than stay too long. Because of that, I never know if there will be more until after a Chronicle's release. If you want to advocate for more, by all means, drop me an email. Even if you don't, you can still reach out. I always love hearing from people. My address is michael.sullivan.dc at gmail.com. Before I go, I'd just like to give some shout-outs to the amazing people who have made this recording possible. First, to Lee Jarrett, a fan of my books who pursued me to sign with Audible and made me feel like my work had value. Second, to Neil Basic, the director who sits hour after hour in the booth ensuring a flawlessly executed recording. Then there are the post-production people, who I'm sorry to say I don't know your names, but that doesn't mean your contributions are any less appreciated. And last, but certainly not least, to Tim Gerard Reynolds, the voice of Ryura. This is Tim's ninth Ryura recording, and he has won award nominations and the gratitude of fans for the amazing work he has done bringing my characters to life. Words will never be enough to thank you for such an amazing gift you've given to me, Robin, and the ardent Ryer listeners. Okay, two last things, then I'll turn you over to Tim, who is much better at this than I am. If you're interested in learning more about the novel creation process, I've created an ebook entitled The Making of the Death of Dulgath. It's free, so just drop me an email. Some people might find the process interesting. Also, as a purchaser of the audiobook, you can get an ebook version for free. Again, the address for all this 
is michael.sullivan.dc at gmail.com. Now, sit back, adjust the volume, and get ready. Old friends are waiting to take you on a new adventure. Chapter 1. The New Sign If anyone had asked Royce Melbourne what he hated most at that moment, he would have said dogs. Dogs and dwarves topped his list, both equally despised for having so much in common. Each was short, vicious, and inexcusably hairy. Royce's contempt for them had grown over the years for the same reason. They had caused him an incalculable amount of grief and pain. That night, it was a dog. At first, he thought the furry creature on the mattress in the third-floor bedroom was a rodent. The dark thing with a curled tail and flat nose was small enough to be a good-sized sewer rat. Royce was pondering how a rat had gotten into a posh place like the Hemley Estate when it rose to its feet. The two stared at each other, Royce in his hooded cloak, holding the diary, and the mongrel on its four tiny legs. One second of held breath lasted long enough for Royce to realize his mistake. He cringed, knowing what would come next, what always came next. And the little beast didn't disappoint. The mutt began barking. Not a respectable growl or deep-throated woof, but an ear-piercing series of high-pitched yaps. Definitely not a rat. Why couldn't you be a rat? I never have problems with rats. Royce reached for his dagger, but the rodent dog leapt away, its tiny nails skittering on the hardwood. He hoped it would flee. Even if the little monster woke its master, it wouldn't be able to explain that a hooded stranger had invaded Lady Martel's boudoir. Aroused from a blissful sleep, the owner might throw something at the mutt to shut it up. But this was a dog, after all, and like dwarves, they never did what he wanted. Instead, the animal stayed a safe distance away, yipping its turnip-sized head off. How can such a tiny thing make so much noise? The sound echoed off marble and mahogany, amplifying into a wailing alarm. Royce did the only thing he could. He leapt out the window. Not his planned exit, not even his third choice, but the poplar tree was within jumping distance. He caught a broad branch, pleased it didn't break under his weight. The tree, however, shook, rustling loudly in the quiet of the dark courtyard. By the time his feet hit the ground, Royce wasn't surprised to hear, Stop right there! The husky voice was perfectly suited for the job. Royce froze. The man coming at him held a crossbow, cocked, loaded, and aimed at his chest. The guard looked disappointingly competent, even his uniform was neat. Every button accounted for and glinting in the moonlight, each crease sharp as a blade. The guy had to be an overachiever, or worse, a professional soldier reduced to guard duty. Keep your hands where I can see them. Not at all an idiot. Behind the first guard came a second. He trotted over with heavy footfalls and a jangling of straps and metal chains. 
taller than the first, he wasn't so well attired. The sleeves on his coat were too short, the lack of a button ruined the symmetry of the side-by-side brass rose, and a dark stain marred his collar. Unlike the first guard, this second one didn't have a crossbow. Instead, he carried three swords. A short one on his left hip, a slightly longer one on the right, and a huge spadone blade on his back. These weren't the weapons of Hemley guards, but the man holding Royce at bay didn't spare a glance when the second guard jogged up. Drawing the shortest of his three swords, this second man didn't point it at Royce. Instead, he placed the sword tip against the back of the first guard's neck. Put the bow down, Hadrian said. The man hesitated only an instant before letting the crossbow fall. The impact jarred the trigger and sent the bolt whispering through the grass of the manicured lawn. Behind them, the rodent dog still yapped, the sound muffled by the walls of the mansion. Now that his partner had things in hand, Royce tucked the book into his belt and glanced toward the manor. No lights. Nobles were sound sleepers. Turning back, he found Hadrian still holding the fastidious guard at sword's point. Kill him, and let's get going. The guard stiffened. No, Hadrian said with the indignation Royce would have expected if he'd asked his partner to throw out a good bottle of wine. Royce sighed. Not again. Why do we always have this argument? The ex-crossbowman had his shoulders hunched, hands in fists, still expecting the thrust that would end his life. It's all right. I won't raise the alarm. Royce had seen the look many times and thought the guy was doing well. No blubbering, no screams, no begging. He hated when his victims fell to their knees and whimpered, although he had to admit that made killing them easier. Shut up, he ordered, then glared at Hadrian. Kill him and let's go. We don't have time for a debate. He dropped the bow. Hadrian pointed out. We don't need to kill him. Royce shook his head. There was that word again. Need. Hadrian used it often, as if justification were a requirement for killing. He's seen me. So? You're a guy in a dark hood. There's hundreds of men in hoods. Can I say something? The guard asked. No, Royce snapped. Yes, Hadrian replied. I have a wife. The man's voice shook. Man's got a wife, Hadrian nodded sympathetically, while still holding the blade against the guard's neck. Kids, too. Three of them. Maribor's beard, he's got three kids, Hadrian said with a decisive tone and drew back his sword. The guard let out of breath. Somehow, he and Hadrian both assumed that the ability to reproduce had some relevance in this situation. It didn't. And I've got a horse, Royce declared with the same righteousness, which I'll ride away on just as soon as you kill this poor bastard. Stop dragging this out. You're being cruel, not me. Get it over with. I'm not going to kill him. The guard's eyes widened in hopeful anticipation 
a tiny smile of relief tugging at the corners of his mouth. He looked at Royce for confirmation, for a sign he would indeed see another sunrise. Royce heard the sound of a door bursting open, and someone called out, Ralph! Lights were coming on in the house. Seven windows on four floors glowed with candles. Maybe it just took that long to light them. Here! Ralph shouted back. Intruders! Get help! No, of course he wouldn't raise the alarm. That did it. Royce reached for his dagger. Before he touched the handle, Hadrian clubbed Ralph with the pommel of his sword. The guard dropped to the grass beside his spent bow. Whether Hadrian had hit the man as a result of his shout, or because Royce went for his dagger, was impossible to tell. Royce wanted to think the former, but suspected the latter. Let's get out of here, Hadrian said, stepping over Ralph and pulling Royce by the arm. I wasn't the one delaying us, Royce thought, but he didn't bother arguing. Where one crossbow existed, there would be others. Crossbows were neither short nor hairy, but ought to be on his list. He and Hadrian ran along the shadow of the wall, skirting the blooming rose bushes, although Royce didn't know why they bothered. In his sentry getup, Hadrian sounded like a fully tacked carriage horse. Melangar's Galilin province was a tranquil, agrarian region not prone to the threat of thievery, and the estate of Lord Hemley suffered from woefully ineffective security. While Royce had spotted as many as six guards on various scouting missions, that night there had only been three. A sentry at the gate, Ralph, and the dog. Ralph! Someone shouted again. The voice was distant, but it carried across the open lawn. Behind them, in the darkness, five lanterns bobbed. They moved in the haphazard pattern of a bewildered search party, or a host of drunken fireflies. Aaron, wake everyone up. Let Mr. Hippo loose, the woman's voice shouted in a vindictive tone. He'll find him. Above it all, the incessant yipping of the rodent dog continued. Mr. Hipple, no doubt. The front gate was unmanned. The guards stationed there must have run for help after Ralph's shout. As they passed through unopposed, Royce marveled at Hadrian's luck. The man was a walking rabbit's foot. Three years in Royce's school of pragmatism had barely scratched his partner's idealistic enamel. If Mr. Hipple had been a larger, more aggressive animal, they might not have escaped so easily. And while Hadrian was more than capable of killing any dog, Royce wondered if he would have. It has puppies, Royce! Three of them! The two reached the safety of the dense thicket where they'd left their horses. Hadrian's was called Dancer, but Royce never saw any point in naming his. While stowing the diary in a saddlebag, Royce asked, How many years were you a soldier? In Avon or Calais? All of it. Five. But the last two years were, well, less formal. Five years. You fought in the military for five years. Saw battles, right? Oh, yeah, brutal ones. Uh-huh. 
You're mad I didn't kill Ralph, aren't you? Royce paused a moment to listen. No sound of pursuit, no lights in the trees, not even the yips of a manic rodent dog chasing them. He swung a leg over the saddle and slid his foot into the stirrup on the other side. You think? Look, I just wanted to do one lousy job when nobody got killed. Hadrian stripped off the uniform's waistcoat and replaced it with his wool shirt and leather tunic from his saddlebag. Why? Hadrian shook his head. Never mind. You're being ridiculous. We've done plenty of jobs where we didn't kill anyone. Anyway, it's fine. Royce grabbed his reins, which he kept knotted together. It's what? What did you say? Fine, it's fine. Fine? Hadrian raised a brow. Royce nodded. Are you going deaf? I just... Hadrian stared up at him, puzzled. Then a scowl took over. You're coming back later, aren't you? The thief didn't reply. Why? Royce turned his horse. Just being thorough. Hadrian climbed into his own saddle. You're being an ass. There's no reason to. Ralph will never pose any threat. Royce shrugged. You can't know that. Do you understand the meaning of the word thorough? Hadrian frowned. Do you understand the meaning of the word ass? You don't need to kill Ralph. There it was again. Need. Let's argue later. I'm not killing him tonight. Fine, Hadrian huffed. And together, they trotted out of the brush and back onto the path that led to the road. The two rode side by side on the open lane. Rain began falling before they reached the King's Road. The sun was up by then, although it was difficult to tell with the heavy clouds leaving the world a charcoal smear. Blissfully, Hadrian remained silent. In any given tavern, whether he knew someone or not, Royce's partner would strike up a conversation. The man would talk to strangers with the ease of reunited friends. He'd clap them on the back, buy a round of drinks, and listen to riveting tales, such as the one about the goat who had repeatedly gotten into a neighbor's garden. When just the two of them were out on the road, Hadrian commented on trees, cows, hillsides, clouds, how hot or cold the weather was, and the status of everything from his boots, which needed new soles, to his short sword, which could use a better wrap for the handle. Nothing was too insignificant to warrant remark. The abundance of bumblebees, or the lack of the same, would launch him into a twenty-minute discourse. Royce never spoke during any of it, didn't want to encourage his partner. But Hadrian carried on about his bees, the flowers, and the mud, another favorite topic of self-discussion. Despite his indefatigable insistence on blabbering to himself, Hadrian was always silenced by rain. Perhaps it put him in a bad mood, or the pattering made it difficult to hear himself. Whatever the reason, Hadrian Blackwater was quiet in the rain. Sir Royce loved stormy days. Luck remained with him nearly the whole way home. 
Melangar was experiencing one of its wettest springs in recent memory. Royce looked over from time to time as they rode. Hadrian kept his head down, his hood crushed and sagging with the weight of water. Why don't you ever talk when it rains? Royce finally asked. Hadrian hooked a thumb under the front of his hood, lifting it to peer out. What do you mean? You talk all the time, but not when it rains. Why? Hadrian shrugged. Didn't know it bothered you. It doesn't. What bothers me is when you blather nonstop. Hadrian peered over, and a little smile grew in the shadow of his sopping hood. You like my talking, don't you? I just got done saying, yeah, but you wouldn't have said anything if you really liked the silence. Trust me, Royce said. I really like the silence. Uh-huh. What's uh-huh supposed to mean? Hadrian's smile widened into a grin. For months, we've ridden together while I've held whole conversations by myself. You've never joined in, and some of them were really good, too. You haven't said a word, but now that I've stopped, look at you, yapping away. A single question isn't yapping away. But you expressed an interest. That's huge. Royce shook his head. I just thought there might be something wrong with you. Obviously, I was right. Hadrian continued to grin with an overly friendly look of self-satisfaction, as if he'd scored a point in some imaginary contest. Royce pulled his own hood down, shutting Hadrian out. The horses plodded along through mud and occasionally gravel, shaking the water from their heads and jangling their bridles. Sure is coming down, isn't it? Hadrian said. Oh, shut up. Farmer's wife back in Olmstead said it's the wettest spring in a decade. I'll slit your throat as you sleep, I really will. She served soup in cups because her husband and Jacob, that's her sleep-all-day, drink-all-night brother-in-law, broke her good ceramic bowls. Royce kicked his horse and trotted away. Royce and Hadrian were back on Wayward Street in the lower quarter of Medford. Spring was nearly over. In other parts of the world, flowering trees were busily trading pink petals for green leaves, and warm breezes blew earthy scents while farmers rushed to finish their planting. On Wayward, it meant four days of steady rain had once again made a murky pond in the low spot at the end of the street. And as usual, the water level reached the open sewer that ran behind the buildings. Euphemistically known as the Bridges, the sewer bled into the growing lake, spreading the reek of human and animal waste. The rain was still coming down as Royce, Gwen, and Hadrian stood on the planked porch of Medford House, staring across the muddy pond at the new sign over the door of the tavern. A fine, lacquered board hung from a wrought iron elbow brace, displaying the crisp image of a vibrant scarlet bloom and a curling stem that sported a single sharp thorn. Surrounding the flower were the elegantly scripted words, The Rose and the thorn. The sign looked oddly out of place in front of the dingy tavern, with its saddle-backed roof of mismatched shingles and weathered timbers. 
for all its dilapidation, the alehouse and eatery had substantially improved. Only a year before, what had been known as the hideous head needed no illustration to explain itself to its illiterate patrons. Grime-covered windows and muck-splattered walls told everyone what they needed to know. Since gaining control of the tavern, Gwen had cleaned up the dirt and the muck, but the real improvements had been inside. The new sign was the first enhancement to the exterior. Beautiful, Hadrian said. It will look better in sunlight. Gwen folded her arms in judgment. The blossom turned out perfect. Emma did the drawing and Dixon helped with the painting. Rose would have liked it, I think. Gwen looked up at the dark clouds. I hope she somehow sees. Sees her rose hanging above Gru's old door. I'm sure she can, Royce told her. Hadrian stared at him. What? Royce shot back. Since when do you believe in an afterlife? Hadrian asked. I don't. Then why did you say- Royce slapped his hand on the porch rail, which had just enough rain on it to splatter. You see, he appealed to Gwen, this is what I have to deal with. He admonishes me about my behavior. Why can't you smile, he says. Why didn't you wave back to the kid? Would it have killed you to be polite to the old woman? Why can't you ever say a kind word? And now, when I try to be a little considerate, what do I get? Royce held out both of his palms, as if presenting Hadrian to her for the first time. Hadrian continued to stare at him, but now with pursed lips, as if to say, Really? Instead, he replied, You're only being nice because she's here. Me? Gwen asked. Standing between them, she swiveled her head to look from one to the other, as innocent as a dewdrop. What do I have to do with this? Hadrian rolled his eyes, threw his head back, and laughed. You are a pair. Whenever the two of you are together, it's like I'm with strangers. No, not strangers, opposites. He becomes a gentleman, and you feign ignorance of men. Royce and Gwen maintained their defensively blank looks. Hadrian chuckled. Fine. Let today henceforth be known as Opposites Day, and as such I'm going across the perfume sea to have a drink at the Palace of Fine Food and Clean Linens. Hey! Gwen snapped, bringing her hands to her hips in a huff of indignation. Yeah, Roy said. Who's the rude one now? Stop it. You're scaring me. Hadrian walked off, leaving them alone. I missed you. Gwen told him after Hadrian had gone inside, her eyes on the rain as it boiled the giant puddle. It was only a few days, Royce replied. I know. Still missed you. I always do. I get scared sometimes. Worried something bad will happen. Worried? She shrugged. You might get killed, be captured, or maybe meet a beautiful woman and never come back. How can you worry? You know the future, right? He joked. Adrian said you read his palm once. Gwen didn't laugh. Instead, she said, I've read many palms. She looked up at the sign 
with the single blooming rose, and sadness crossed her face. Royce felt like stabbing himself. Sorry, I... I didn't mean... It's all right. It didn't feel all right. Royce's muscles tightened. Both hands became fists, and he was glad she wasn't looking at him. Gwen had a way of seeing through his defenses. To everyone else, he was a solid wall, fifty feet high with razor-sharp spikes on top and a moat at its base. To Gwen, he was a curtainless window with a broken latch. But I do worry, she said. It's not like you're a cobbler or bricklayer. You shouldn't. These days I don't do anything worth worrying about. Adrian won't let us. I'm stuck with fetching lost possessions, stopping feuds. Did you know we helped a farmer plow his field? Albert's got you a job plowing? No, Hadrian did. Farmer took sick, and his wife was desperate. They owe money. And you plowed a field? Royce smirked at her. So Hadrian plowed and you watched. I tell you the things he does. Royce sighed. Just doesn't make sense sometimes. Gwen smiled at him. She was likely siding with Hadrian. Most people did. Everyone thought good deeds were great. Publicly, at least. And her expression was one of patient understanding, as if she were too polite to say so. It didn't matter. She was smiling at him. And for that brief moment, it wasn't raining. For that instant, the sun shone, and he had never been an assassin, and she had never been a prostitute. He reached out, wanted desperately to touch her and hold that moment in his arms, to kiss that smile and make it more than a fleeting brilliance he would otherwise only recall as a dying spark. Then he stopped. Gwen looked down at his faltering hands, then up at his face. What is it? Is that disappointment in her voice? We're not alone, he said, nodding across the street to where three wretched figures moved in the shadows near the kitchen door. You need to talk to your bartender. Dixon is dumping scraps outside the door and you're drawing flies. Gwen looked over. Flies? Elves, they're pouring through your garbage. Gwen squinted. Oh, I didn't even see them. She waved a hand. It's fine. I told Dixon to give them any leftover food. I hope he's not just throwing it in the mud. I'll need to get a barrel or set out a table. Royce grimaced while watching the miserable creatures. The rags clinging to their bodies were little more than torn scraps pretending to be clothes. Soaked with the rain, the elves looked like skin-wrapped skeletons. Feeding them was an example of cruelty by kindness. Gwen gave them false hope. Better to let them die. Better for them. Better for everyone. He looked at her. You realize they'll just come back. You'll never get rid of them. Gwen nudged him and pointed up Wayward Street. Albert's here. 
On foot and veiled behind the hazy curtain of solid rain, Albert Winslow approached the dreaded pond with disgust. Soaked through and through, the Viscount's new brimless hat lay flat against his head, sliding down one side of his face. His cloak was plastered to his body. He looked at the murky lake, and then across at them with a frown. If it's always going to be like this, he called across, can't you put in a bridge for your moat, Gwen? I don't have a charter governing the street, she called back. Or the bridges, for that matter. You'll need to take that up with the king, or at the very least the lower quarter merchants' guild. Albert looked down at the churning pond and grimaced as he waded in. I want a horse, he shouted at the clouds as the water reached the middle of his calves. I'm a Viscount for Meribor's sake. I shouldn't have to wade through a sewer just to report in. Can't afford three, Royce replied. Can barely afford feed for the two. Can now. Albert pulled back his cloak to reveal a purse. He shook it. We got paid. Six shiny gold coins stamped with the Melangar falcon and twenty silver bearing the same image lay on the table in the dark room. The only room without a single window, it once was used for all manner of kitchen storage. Gwen had transformed the space to serve as the headquarters for Aira, his and Hadrian's rogues-for-hire operation. She'd added a fireplace for warmth and light, and the table where Albert had emptied his purse. Royce brought over a candle. Every kingdom and city-state produced their own coins, but the tenant was international and supposed to be of consistent weight, equal to a typical robin's egg. A silver tenant weighed the same as a gold tenant, but it was larger and thicker to make up for the lighter metal. That was the intention, and for the most part, it held true. These felt to be honest coins. You got away clean, by the way. Albert stood by the fire and pulled off his sodden hat. Lady Martell either doesn't know her diary was taken, or is too embarrassed to report it. I'm guessing the latter. Albert began to wring his hat out onto the floor. No, no, no! Gwen shouted at him. Here, give me that. Oh, and just get out of the rest of your things. They have to be washed. Dixon, can you please get a blanket? Albert raised his brows at Gwen as she stood with hands out, waiting. He glanced at Royce and Hadrian with questions in his eyes. Neither said a word. Both responded with grins. Albert, do you really think you have anything I haven't seen before? Gwen asked. Albert frowned, wiped the wet hair from his face, and began to unhook his doublet. Anyway, as I was saying, Lord Hemley hasn't called for so much as a search. According to our employer, Lady Constantine, Lady Martell only reported a nasty scare in the middle of the night that turned out to be nothing. Nothing? Royce asked. I'm not sure Ralph and Mr. Hipple would agree, Hadrian said. What kind of scare did she say they had? Royce inquired. 
Albert shrugged off the dripping brocade, which Gwen took. The big bartender returned with a blanket, and they traded material. Can you please give this to Emma, and ask her to do what she can? Tell her to be careful, Albert said. That's expensive. We know, Royce reminded him. Emma is experienced with brocade, Gwen assured him as Dixon left. Now, let's have those stockings and breeches. Can I have a chair? After the breeches are off. What was the nasty scare Lady Martell mentioned? Royce asked again. Oh, Albert chuckled as he rolled off his long stockings. She said a raccoon came in through a bedroom window and set her dog to barking. Hearing the noise, one of the ground's guards came running and, in the dark, he banged his head against a poplar branch. He called out, thinking he'd been attacked. Thinking he'd been attacked? Royce asked. His story was that two guys broke in and threatened to kill him. Lady Martell called him delusional. Royce took a seat opposite the fire and tapped his fingertips together. He wondered what was in that diary that made Lady Martell want to avoid an investigation. Hadrian just laughed. What? Albert asked, handing over his second stocking, which Gwen took with a look of disdain. Lady Martell just saved Ralph's life, Hadrian said. Oh, really? Who's Ralph? The delusional guard. Royce has been waiting for the rain to stop, and then he was going to pay old Ralph a visit. Albert clapped his hands together. Then it's a day for everyone to celebrate, isn't it? After the breeches are off, Gwen scowled. Are you this way with all your customers? Albert asked. You're not a customer, Albert. No, I'm a Viscount. After a short pause, everyone burst out laughing. All right, all right, here, take my trousers, take them. What do I need trousers for? I've already lost all my dignity. Who needs dignity when you have coin? Royce tossed him a stack of silver pieces topped with a gold. Albert caught them as if he were a practiced juggler. Standing naked before the fire, he appraised the coins with a smile. I'm noble once more. Wrap this around you. Gwen handed him the blanket. We've seen enough of your nobility for one day. She gathered up the rest of his clothes and headed out. Albert draped himself in the soft wool and sat in a chair as close to the hearth as he could get without setting himself on fire. Rubbing the coins between his fingers, he said, Silver and gold are so pretty. It's a shame you have to trade them away. And these won't last. Royce sighed, then faced Albert. At the rate we've been taking jobs, and the small purses, things are getting tight. We need something that pays more. Actually, I have another job ready to go. This one is worth, get this, twenty gold tenants, plus expenses which is good, because it's way down in southern Maranon. Royce and Hadrian sat up. 
That was fast, Hadrian said. You don't normally work that hard. True, but this one fell into our laps. A drop of water slipped down Albert's face, and he paused to scrub the wet from his hair with a corner of the blanket. Sounds incredibly easy, too. You're not qualified to judge, Albert, Roy said. Ah, but this one is. They don't even want you to do anything. Royce leaned forward and eyed the Viscount. Who pays twenty yellow for nothing? What's the job? It seems that someone is trying to kill Lady Nyssa Dulgarth. We aren't guards for hire. Oh, she has guards. Lady Dulgarth is a countess and will soon be the ruler of a tiny province in the southwest corner of Marinon. Once she pledges fealty to King Vincent, apparently her father, the Earl Beadle Dulgoth, recently passed, and she's his only child. Was he murdered? Royce asked. No. Old age. The fellow was ancient, nearly sixty. But someone has it out for his daughter. From what I've been told, there have been three attempts on her life in the last month. After those failures... They want a professional. That's where you come in. Albert looked squarely at Royce. I wouldn't call assassinating a countess nothing. Besides, you know how he gets about those kinds of jobs. Royce gestured toward Hadrian. Albert waved a hand. No, you misunderstand. You're not being hired to kill her. Rumors say they've already hired someone. Royce shook his head. Unless they went cheap, the hired hand is a bucket man for the Black Diamond. The BD and I have an understanding not to interfere with each other. I remember, Albert said. But they don't want you to catch the killer. Your job is to assess the situation and inform Sheriff Knox how you would go about killing Lady Dulgarth so he can formulate plans to prevent it. Why me? Albert smiled. I let it slip that you used to be an assassin for the Black Diamond. Royce glared. No one in Marinon cares about what you've done elsewhere. These are nobles we're talking about. Morality works on a sliding scale for them. They're excited to have someone with experience. Sounds... Hadrian began and searched for the word. Suspicious, Royce provided. I was thinking odd, Adrian said. But yeah, it's strange. Is it possible this sheriff is the one who wants her dead? Unlikely. I'm not certain he even knows about this. He's not the one who hired us. And I don't think this client is in the habit of assassinating heads of state. And who has? Hired us, that is. Albert hesitated a moment, then said, The Church of Nephron. Chapter 2 The Artist Sherwood Stowe held his paintbrush with unconscious effort as he stared at Lady Nyssa Dulgarth. The woman stood ten feet away, one hand poised over her stomach and the other at her side 
clasping a pair of riding gloves as if she were about to race off on a hunt. She stood divinely straight, chin high and level, so the dangling pearl earrings hung in precise balance. Her hair was up, braided, coiled, and wreathed her head like a royal diadem. She wore an exquisite gold silk brocade dress with billowing sleeves, and around her shoulders a grinning-faced fox stole curled, as if it, too, were delighted to be so near this magnificent woman. While the lady's gaze was regal in its elevated, distant focus, Sherwood's only regret was she wasn't looking at him. She was, in fact, staring over his head at the chandelier that hung at the center of her private study. The room was small by Castle Dulgoth standards. Intimate was how Sherwood thought of it, like a dressing room or a parlor used for courting. Even more so since parlors came staffed with chaperones, and they were the only two present in the study. Why don't you look at me? Sherwood asked. Is that a requirement? The lady replied, her eyes fixed on the chandelier. Her lips held fast to an indifferent, near smile, the obligatory face of state. Usually, he appreciated subjects who could maintain a certain statuesque quality while he painted, but she took the request to an extreme. Nyssa wasn't posing for him. She was hiding. Let's say it's a request. Request denied. The words were as sweetly neutral as her lips, neither warm enough to suggest familiarity nor cold enough to imply displeasure. I can't even tell if she's breathing. Nyssa was altogether too stiff. This, of course, was the image she wished to portray, but Sherwood Stowe wasn't interested in painting the soon-to-be Countess of Dulgarth. He was after the woman. And while he never spoke the name publicly, in his mind he always thought of her as Nyssa. Never Lady Dulgarth. The Dulgarth line was an edifice, a monument, a dust-covered dynasty of renown. Nyssa was a woman in her early twenties. He didn't know how early. Difficult to tell because her body possessed a youthful vigor, but her eyes were ancient. A beautiful and a mysterious being of light. But her movements exposed the charade. Too graceful. Sherwood had known many women, ladies, princesses, even queens. But none possessed a fraction of her poise and elegance. Nyssa was a spiraling leaf caught by a breeze, and if she landed on the surface of a placid lake, she'd leave no ripple. Mr. Stowe, isn't it usually customary when painting to actually bring the brush to the canvas? She said to the chandelier. You've stood there for twenty minutes mixing paint and holding that bristle stick aloft but never once have you employed it. How can you tell while looking at the chandelier? Seeing and looking are unrelated. You, of all people, should know that. Sherwood nodded and once more added walnut oil to the thickening umber. His old master, Yardley, 
was no doubt heaving in his grave. Yardley had always insisted on working with egg tempera, but Sherwood preferred oil. Not only did it enable him to give a translucent depth in his portraits, but its slow drying time granted him the luxury to do, well, everything. Yes, indeed. And since you know that as well, you understand the necessity for my delay and the importance of going slow. Slow doesn't properly define you, Mr. Stowe. A bead of honey in winter is slow. It pours, as if with great reluctance, but it does pour. You, Mr. Stowe, are not a drizzle of honey. You're a rock. Pity. I do so like honey. Perhaps you could reconsider your assessment. A rock, I say. A vast block of granite, immobile and resolute in your refusal to budge. Am I now? How else do you account for two months of daily, hour-long sessions? That's sixty hours. I've heard good artists have been known to finish a portrait in a week's time. True, true. He tapped his chin with a finger, leaving a bit of paint. I suppose the only explanation is, I'm not a good artist. Sherwood corked his bottle of oil and set it back on the easel's tray, along with the stained rags and vials of pigments, some of which were deceptively expensive. Beyond the sea, or ultramarine, was the most prized, because the stone used to make the dark blue paint had to cross the ocean from the same fabled land whence came the incomparable Montemorsi wine. The paint was worth twenty times its weight in gold. Luckily, few non-artists knew this, or his brethren would be routinely beaten and robbed. You admit it, then? Absolutely. I'm not a good artist. He used the rag he'd made from his last decent shirt to wipe oil that had dripped from the stem of his brush to his hands. No matter how much care he employed, his hands were magnets for paint and oil. I'm the best artist. She let out an uncharacteristic puff, which was almost a laugh, while one delicate brow rose in sceptical declaration. You are an arrogant man. Finally, a reaction. No, I'm confident. There is a difference. Arrogance is an unjustified belief in oneself. Confidence is the simple understanding of one's abilities. I do not boast about being a great lover, although I very well may be. On that particular subject, I simply am not in a position to accurately judge. I leave that determination to the women I entertain. This time both of her brows rose, creating the tiniest crease in her forehead. But we were discussing art, and when it comes to that, I am an expert. So you can trust me when I say there isn't a greater artist than I, and the reason I say that is because there is no finer judge of artistic merit than myself. Mr. Stowe, I don't believe I can trust you about art or anything else. 
How can I when you refuse to let me look at your work? You've denied everyone even a glimpse at your two-month masterpiece. Truth isn't created on schedules. Truth? Is it truth you're painting? I thought it was me. I am painting you, or at least trying to. But you are causing the delay by your refusal to cooperate. Whatever do you mean? You hide from me. I... Her eyes almost shifted. He saw the pupils quiver with the struggle. Biting her lower lip, she gathered herself, and the lock of her gaze redoubled. She lifted her chin just a smidge, in defiance. I'm right here. No, you're not. The Countess of Dulgarth, in all her refined nobility and grand regalia, stands before me. But that's not you. Not who you really are. I want to see the person inside, the person you keep hidden from everyone for fear they'll see. She looked at him. Not a glance, not a stare, but a fierce glare of fire. Only a flash, but he saw more in that instant than he'd seen in two months. Powerful, violent, a tempest corked in a woman's body and glazed over with the sadness of loss and regret. He'd seen her. The vision rocked him, so much so that Sherwood took a step back. We're done here, Lady Dulgarth declared, breaking the pose and throwing off the fox. And I see no reason to continue with this foolishness. I only agreed to this portrait because my father wanted the painting. He's dead, so there's no need. She pivoted on her left heel and strode toward the exit. I'll see you tomorrow then, Sherwood called after her. No, you will not. I'll be here. I won't. She slammed the oak door on her way out leaving Sherwood alone in the study, listening to the echo of her fading footfalls. He stared at the door, which had bounced with her thrust, rebounding and hanging agape, so that he caught a glimpse of her gold dress as she retreated down the corridor. Fascinating. A heartbeat later, Sherwood picked up his brush and rag, both of which he'd dropped without realizing, and started to paint. The brush flew with unconscious ease, moving from palette to canvas in a blinding fury. So intense was his concentration that he didn't notice the young man enter the study until he heard him speak. Is there some kind of trouble? Sherwood recognized the blue satin doublet even before seeing the goatee and immediately pulled the drape over the front of the painting. He kept the cloth tacked to the top of the canvas's frame for quick deployment. Covering works in progress to keep gnats, dust, and hair out of the paint wasn't unusual, but now it served a more important purpose. Lord Fawkes. Sorry, I didn't see you. What did you say? I was asking if there was a problem, Fawkes said, looking around the study with his trademark mix of bewildered innocence and sinister suspicion. I heard a loud bang and saw the countess storm out. Is there some way I can be of assistance? Not at all. This was a particularly good session, but it's over. I'll just gather my things. We made excellent progress today.
Fox circled around the easel and frowned at the covered portrait. I hope that isn't one of the bed linens. My nightshirt, actually, or what's left of it. What do you wear to bed? Now? Nothing at all. Can't afford it. Thank Novron, it's nearly summer. Lord Fox picked up Sherwood's bottle of ultramarine and tossed it from hand to hand. For him to choose to play with that particular bottle of pigment was too coincidental. Unlike the rest of his ilk, Lord Christopher Fox must have been familiar with the art trade. Why are you still here, Sherwood? The artist pointed at the covered painting and smiled. Pointing was easy. The smile was more of a challenge as he watched Fox continue to toss the blue bottle. The Lord glanced over his shoulder with a dismissive sniff. You painted my Aunt Moby's picture last summer at her villa in Swanwick. Yes, I remember. Beautiful place. Lady Swanwick was most gracious and generous. Fox nodded. Yardley painted her portrait as well, two years before. And yet she insisted on one by you, his apprentice. Actually, that happens quite often. Fox paused in his game of toss to hook a thumb at the covered painting. Everyone gasped when you unveiled her portrait. I get a lot of that, too. Aunt Moby sobbed when she saw what you'd done. Ten minutes passed before she could say anything at all. Uncle Carl was certain you'd offended her. Sherwood nodded. The Earl of Swanwick called his guards. I heard they took you by the wrists and started dragging you away, and Aunt Moby found her voice and stopped them. That's me, she said. That's how I really am. No one has ever seen me like that before. I get that, too. Did you sleep with her? He tossed the bottle higher than he had before. Excuse me? Is that how you impressed her, sir? How you got her to be so generous? Did you see the painting? Fox chuckled. No. I just heard the tale. Aunt Moby keeps it locked in her bedchamber, where I'm certain she dreams of the young artist who captured her so exquisitely. I wonder why a woman married to an earl would be so impressed by a penniless artist. Does this story have a point? Fox smirked. My point is, that painting, which captured Aunt Moby so perfectly that she may have betrayed her husband, took five days to create. So once more I ask, why are you still here, Sherwood? Some portraits are more difficult than others, and some women are harder to seduce. Sherwood snatched the bottle in mid-toss. Pigments are not toys. Neither is Lady Dulgarth. Fawkes stared at the bottle in Sherwood's hand for a moment, then turned away. I assumed you were merely freeloading off your patron's goodwill, possibly lingering because you had no other prospects. Now I believe I've been naive. He looked again at the linen-draped painting 
as if it were a veiled face watching them. Life as an itinerant artist must be taxing and perilous. I suspect that living in a castle with your own bed and studio is a significant improvement. But you've forgotten one thing. She's noble. You're not. There are laws against such things. No, there aren't. Sherwood placed the bottle of blue pigment on the easel's tray and stepped between it and Lord Fox. Fox glared. There ought to be. If we are speaking of things that should be, you would have been born a dairy farmer in Kelsey, instead of the cousin to King Vincent, although that would have been a terrible injustice to cows, which I'm certain is what Maribor was thinking when he made you a landless lord. Sherwood was exceedingly pleased that Lord Fawkes no longer held his precious bottle of Beyond the Sea. The Maranon Lord of no place in particular sucked in a snarl. His shoulders rose like the fur on the back of a dog. Before he could open his mouth to cast some vile insult, Sherwood cut him off. Why are you still here? The funeral was more than a month ago. This had the effect of pouring cold water on a flame. Fawkes blinked three times, then settled into a murderous glare. In your single-minded efforts to enter her ladyship's bed, it may have escaped your attention that someone is trying to kill her. And what does that have to do with anything? I'm staying to protect her. Really? Sherwood said, with more sarcasm than he intended, but he was more than nettled with the Lord. Perhaps it has escaped your attention that she has a contingent of well-trained guards for that, or is it your belief that the only thing standing between Lady Dulgath and death is the assassin's fear of the king's second cousin? This comment did nothing to alleviate Fox's glare, but his gaze did shift to the easel again. Sherwood knew what the Lord was thinking, and took another step forward. The painter had no grand illusion of beating Fawkes in a brawl. A law did exist, making it illegal to strike a noble, even a despicable one. Sherwood's advance was a bluff, but the artist tried to sell it as best he could by rising to his full height, which was an inch taller than Fawkes, and returning that venomous glare with a firm jaw and ready hands. Bluff or not, Fawkes chose to merely spit on Sherwood's shoe before walking out. He, too, slammed the big door, but this time it stayed shut. Chapter 3 Marinon The weather remained horrible all the way to Mian. If the clouds weren't following them, as Hadrian imagined, and all of northern Avon was suffering the same deluge, then Wayward's Pond was likely a lake after the three additional days of downpours that soaked Royce and Hadrian's travels south. On the morning of the fourth day, the skies woke clear and blue, a huge southern sun shining upon a land of gorgeous rolling hills. Most of the jobs Ryera took occurred in and around Medford, with a few sending them only as far south as Warwick. Although Hadrian had grown up less than fifty miles from the border, 
This was his first trip to Maranon. If the peninsula of Delgos were a mitten, Maranon would be the thumb, and a green one at that. A land that was deep, velvet-rich, and the color of a forest by moonlight stretched out in all directions, broken by small stands of leafy trees. Maranon was known for its horses, the best in the world. At first, Hadrian thought he saw deer grazing in the meadows, but deer didn't travel in herds of fifteen or more. Nor did they thunder when racing across the fields, shifting and circling like a flock of starlings. Are they owned, or can you just grab one? Hadrian asked Royce, as they rode the mangy northern mounts, which were at least clean, thanks to three days of rain. Royce, who had thrown his hood off and was letting his cloak air dry on his shoulders, glanced at the horses racing over a distant hill. Yes and no. They're like deer up north. Or anything anywhere, really. There's nothing that isn't claimed by someone. Those are wild, but everything here belongs to King Vincent. Hadrian accepted Royce's expertise. Despite his partner's lack of idle conversation, he knew Royce had traveled extensively, at least in Avron. He appeared most familiar with the congested areas around the big cities of Colnora and Ratibor, those places a thief and former assassin would find the most work. For Hadrian, the trip to Maranon felt like Raira was taking a holiday. The change in weather only added to the sense that they were in for some relaxation. Rising in his stirrups, Hadrian gazed across the open land. Aside from the road they followed and the mountains in the distance, Hadrian didn't see a soul, city, or village. So, what's to stop me from roping one and taking it home? Aside from the horse itself, you mean? Royce asked. Well, yes. Nothing really. Unless you're caught, in which case you'll be hanged. Hadrian smirked, but Royce wasn't looking. If caught, we'd be hanged for most of what we do. So? So? This looks nicer. I mean... He gazed at the few puffy white clouds which cast fleeting shadows over the hills. This place is incredible. It's like we crawled out of a sewer and wandered into paradise. I've never seen so many shades of green before. He looked down. It's like our Medford grass is sick or something. If we have to steal, why can't we take horses for a living? Gotta be easier than climbing trellises and towers. Really? Ever try grabbing a wild horse? No? You? No. But explain to me how a man on a horse catches a riderless horse. And a Maranon one at that. In a land of endless rolling hills, there's no place to trap them. And even if you were to catch one, what then? There's a difference between a wild horse and an unbroken one. You know that, right? In one of the back corridors of his mind, Hadrian recalled having heard something like that, but he hadn't remembered until Royce brought it up. Horses born on farms were raised around people. They weren't trained and didn't take to having folk hop on their backs any more than a dog would, but they were still relatively tame Got just as much chance with a wild horse as you would have saddling a stag. Just an idea, Hadrian said, 
I mean, how long will we do this for? Do what? Steal. Royce laughed. Since I teamed with you, I hardly ever steal. Annoying, really. There's a certain beauty in a well-done theft. I miss it. We stole that diary. Royce turns to give Hadrian a pitying look and a sad shake of his head. That's not theft. It's petty pilfering. And now this. The idea of preventing someone from assassination feels... Dirty? Hadrian asked. Another look. This one baffled. No, it feels wrong. Like walking backward. Seems simple enough in theory, but it's awkward. I'm not even sure what they want me to do. Am I expected to talk to this woman, this walking target? Don't usually chat with the soon-to-be-dead. In three years, this was the most Royce had ever said while riding. The angry tone explained it. Royce hadn't been this far outside his comfort zone since the Crown Tower debacle. The master thief was rarely off balance, but when he was, Royce became chatty. She's noble, Royce went on. I don't like nobles, always so full of themselves. Brought up that way, Hadrian said, as if he were worldly. Hadrian had known a number of nobles, but they were all Calaian, and that was like saying he knew rodents because he'd fed some squirrels. Calaian nobles were nothing like those in Avron. They were more casual, earthy, less pompous, and far more dangerous. Hadrian thought Royce would actually like most Calaian nobles, at least until they hugged him. Hadrian had learned early on that Royce Melbourne wasn't a hugger. Exactly. Royce nodded. And this one is a woman. A Maranon woman at that. What's so different about Maranon women? Remember that storm on the uplands near Fallen Mire? The place where the breezes coming across Chadwick slam into the winds coming down off the ridge? Oh, yeah. Hadrian nodded, remembering a night when neither of them had slept. They're like that. Royce waved his hand dismissively at the lush, beautiful countryside that ran as far as Hadrian could see. Look at this place. Two people here work hard. Do you think common folks' mattocks go dull on the rocks in this soil? Or that people go to sleep hungry three nights a week? The serfs on these manor farms live better than Gwen. Now imagine what their nobles are like. I expect this Dulgarth woman will be the worst possible sort. Did you know the province of Dulgarth is the oldest fief in Avron? Exactly how would I know that? Hadrian smiled at him, entertained by a talkative Royce. Well, it is, Royce said, irritated, as if Hadrian had disputed him. If Albert can be trusted to know the history of the various noble houses, Dulgarth was founded around the same time as the Novaronian Empire, and the family that rules here is as old as the First Empire's origins. Most nobles adopt the name of the region they're given stewardship of, but here it's the other way around. The province of Dulgarth was named for the people who founded it. So, given that, how entrenched do you think Lady Dulgarth's sense of privilege is? Her family goes back for hundreds of generations, and I have to save her. Technically, 
I think they want to know how you would murder her. Royce gave Hadrian a wicked smile. The hard part, I expect, will be not carrying it out. Having you whispering in my ear not to kill may be of benefit for once. Royce looked up at the perfect sky stretching far and wide. There's no way I'll get out of here without blue bloodstains. The road forked. A left turn hooked south, while their path continued into the distance where the green hills ended at a wrinkle of green mountains. Royce paused for a long time, staring down the left branch, which made Hadrian look as well. The road was straight, level, and followed along the skirt of the green ridge toward larger stony mountains tinged blue in the late morning sun. Minutes passed while Royce continued to stare, and Hadrian became certain his partner had lost his way, something which was more than odd. For three years, Hadrian had never known Royce to lose his inner compass through dense forests, amid fog as thick as a wool blanket, during starless nights, or even in a blinding blizzard. And yet, the thief continued to sit on his horse, staring down that long southern route. Is it that way? Hadrian finally asked. Royce looked up, as if he'd been asleep. What? Is that how we get to Dulgarth? Down there. Royce shook his head. No. No, that's not the way. That doesn't lead anywhere. Hadrian looked at the broad, well-worn track marred by the passage of wagon wheels and the half-circles of horses' hooves. Pretty well-traveled for a dead end. Royce smirked, as if Hadrian had made a vulgar joke. Yes, it most certainly is. Urging his horse to stay on their path, Royce continued to look back at the road more traveled, as if he didn't trust it. Whatever haunted him, he didn't say, nor did Hadrian ask. When they'd first begun working together, marrying their unique skills for mutual gain, Hadrian had tried on numerous occasions, without any luck, to pry open the box of Royce's history. Only near-death brushes, or, as it would seem, the anticipation of meeting Marinon nobles, managed to loosen that lid. Wherever that southern road led, Hadrian wouldn't learn about it from Royce. The two things he was certain about were that Royce had been down that road, and it went somewhere. The road they were on went somewhere as well, up. After several hours of silent riding, it narrowed through a series of switchbacks until it snaked into a tight pass beyond which a vista opened onto another world. This one even more beautiful than the one they'd left behind. Wildflower meadows and leafy forests, sat beside an ocean, a vast expanse of water that cut jagged coves and bays from massive cliffs. Hadrian guessed they had come to the western edge of Marinon and the start of the Sharon Sea. This was his first time seeing it, but at that distance it looked no different from the eastern oceans. On this backside of Marinon, where the roads were narrower and little more than grass-covered greenways, there were more trees more streams, 
and many more waterfalls. Tucked inside a space less than ten miles from mountains to sea was a shadow valley, cozy and snug, dangling its toes in the vast blue that crashed white against a stony point. Castle Dulgarth stood on a singular promontory that hooked south like a crooked finger. Built from cliffstone, it blended with the tortured rock, except for the straight edges of its towers and its flags flying blue and white. Pretty, Hadrian said. Royce huffed. He pointed to the red berries along the trail. So are those, but I wouldn't suggest eating any. The trip down was quick and silent. Royce drew up his hood as they neared the valley's floor, and farms and travelers started to appear. The homes were built of fieldstone, covered with neat, thatched roofs. Often, the buildings were multi-storied and always picturesque. The people were darker than those in Melangar, black-haired, olive-skinned, and brown-eyed. Well-fed and healthy, they dressed in colorful clothing of greens, oranges, and yellows, a stark contrast with the people of Melangar. There, the poor wore a natural wool uniform dyed with dirt to a dingy gray. Mud was the pigment of the north, but the south delighted in color. Heads turned and friendly faces looked up at them as they passed. Royce never paused, never slowed. Once, he urged his horse to a trot when a man said hello, which sounded like yellow in the Maranon accent. Hadrian, on the other hand, smiled and returned waves, especially from pretty young women. We should move down here, Hadrian said. Our contacts are up north. I know my way around better, and we have resources and a reputation. Down here we'd be starting from scratch and working blind. We don't even know the laws. But it's pretty. Royce glanced back. You said that already. Hadrian spotted another young woman, this one with painted eyes. She smiled at him. It's gotten prettier. They traveled down the road through dappled shade and to the songs of peeping tree frogs. Before long, the sounds of wagon wheels and conversation replaced the frog calls as Royce and Hadrian reached a cluster of buildings. Rounding a bend, they entered into a proper village with candle shops and cobblers. Buildings here displayed tiled roofs, glass windows, shutters, and eaves. Moss-covered old foundations and thick ivy climbed chimneys and wreathed windows. The grassy trail became a stone-covered broadway where it passed through the village, although it was difficult to see the road, given the crowd gathered upon it. Men and women clustered in the village square an open market where merchants and vendors might set up displays to sell buttons, copper kettles, and the day's fresh catch of fish. Instead, a crowd surrounded a large smoking pot suspended over an open fire. At first, Hadrian thought the two of them had stumbled on a festival. He imagined being welcomed to a communal picnic, but he didn't smell any food. Instead, he smelled the gagging stench of boiling tar. In the middle of the throng of townsfolk, 
A dozen angry men held an elderly fellow with his wrists bound behind his back. They led him past four sacks of feathers toward the cauldron of bubbling tar. We should do something, Hadrian said. Royce lifted enough of his hood to see him clearly. Why? Molten tar can kill an old man. So? So if we don't do something, they'll kill him. How is this our problem? Because we're here. Really? That's your argument? We're here. Haven't won too many debates, have you? Royce looked around. You'll notice we aren't alone. The whole village is in on this. That poor bastard is probably a criminal. A poisoner of children, torturer of women, maybe a cannibal. Cannibal? Hadrian shook his head. Honestly, the way you think, it's practical, sensible, sadistic. Hadrian pointed. Royce, look at his cassock. The man is a priest. Royce scowled. Worst sort of criminal. Faces had turned their way. People were pointing at the pair of strangers watching them from horseback. Hadrian and his three swords received the most attention. The crowd quieted, and four of the bigger men from out front approached and stood boldly before them. Who are you? The biggest one asked. Shoulder-length hair didn't quite hide the bull neck that was nearly as wide as his head. Broad jaw, wide nose, eyes sunk deep beneath an eave of brow, he narrowed his eyes into a quarrelsome glare and then cracked the knuckles on two massive hands. Hadrian grinned and introduced himself by name. Royce cringed. No reason not to be friendly, Hadrian said while dismounting. Then, more quietly, he said to Royce, What difference does it make? We aren't doing anything illegal. Not yet, Royce whispered back. Hadrian stepped forward and offered his hand to the four men. None took it. You a knight? the bull-necked man asked. Me? Hadrian chuckled. No. Probably another vagabond lord here to freeload after the funeral. This was said by the slightly shorter gent to Bullneck's right, the one whose friendly orange tunic undermined his efforts to appear menacing. Another of the four, who liked his hair short but didn't know much about cutting it, nodded his agreement. Maybe they're from the church. Soret and sentinels consider anyone who doesn't bend a knee at Novran's altar a heretic, said a man standing in the back. Well, whoever you are, the bull-necked man said. You should have brought more men with you, if you plan to stop us from feathering Pastor Payne. Hadrian let his shoulders droop. Actually, we don't need more men, Royce broke in. Hadrian turned to look at him. We don't. No, Royce confirmed. But they do. He rose up in his stirrups and waved for the other men who were holding Pastor Payne to come forward. Come on up here. Your friends are going to need your help. Uh, Royce, Hadrian said as five additional men pushed their way through the crowd. Not all of them were brutes, and none stood as big as the bull-necked man and his buddy in orange. Two were older fellows with graying hair. Three were young, 
long and lanky with pretty, unmarked faces. On the positive side, none of them carried so much as a stick. So, do you want to know why Hadrian here carries three swords? Royce asked the crowd. A few nodded, and he gestured toward his partner with a grin. Tell them. The two had done this before. It didn't always work. Hadrian pasted a friendly smile on his lips and faced the crowd, paying particular attention to the wall of muscle in front of him. In my travels, I've found most men are reluctant to fight someone wielding a sword unless they also have one. Most good-natured folk, like yourselves, don't have weapons. So I carry extras in case a situation like this arises. That way, I can hand out a couple so people aren't so disadvantaged in a fight. Hadrian drew both his side blades in an elegant single motion. The crowd stepped back and let out a communal gasp. So you can have your choice. He spun the smaller weapon against his palm. This is a short sword, the workhorse of combat, an ancient, reliable design, great for close quarters and frequently used with a shield. Or, he spun the larger one in his other hand. This is a hand-and-a-half sword, also called a bastard sword. I think because no one knows where it came from. He chuckled. No one joined him. Hadrian sighed. Looking at the handle, you can see it has room for two hands, but it's also light enough to swing one-handed. A really nice, versatile blade. Hadrian slammed both weapons back into their scabbards with practiced ease. Then, reaching up, he slid the greatsword off his back. Once more, people gasped and gave way, backing up another step as the massive blade swung out. Now, this is a spadone. With one hand, Hadrian held the blade out level pointing at the crowd. As you can see, it's big. Sort of a three-and-a-half sword. He grinned at them, but the crowd remained cold. Everyone's eyes followed the tip of the blade as if it were a snake's head. This is obviously a two-handed weapon, and not for the faint of heart. You might be thinking it would be a good choice due to its long reach, but most would have trouble swinging it, much less holding it out as I'm doing now. Hadrian swung the big sword in large, sweeping arcs, making it sing in the wind. Then he let go and caught it with his other hand. And while you're struggling to raise it, I'd stab you with the short sword. I've seen him do that, Royce lied. Usually catches a poor sod in the stomach. One quick thrust. A wound like that can take days to kill you. And painful. He shook his head and frowned. One sad case, screamed and moaned for so long, his own mother wanted to smother him with a pillow. Faces blanched. Royce was a good liar. Bullneck's mountain ridge brow wrinkled, and his stalwart friend in orange retreated a bit more, stepping on the foot of a woman behind him. She cried out and shoved him with both hands. And if you're thinking of rushing him... Royce chuckled. The sound wasn't at all jovial. 
Hadrian had never witnessed Royce laughing in good humor. When he laughed, babies cried. I should mention that he can mow down scores of men with his big sword, and with less effort than you scythe wheat. Of course, doing so is louder and messier. Wheat doesn't bleed, and straw doesn't scream. Eyes, still locked on the sword, widened. Hadrian knew they were picturing him swinging the blade into the crowd as if through ripened crops. Royce leaned forward in his saddle, the leather creaking with the strain. The chuckling had stopped, and what smile he wore melted into a grim, straight line. Now that you've met Hadrian, let me introduce myself. I'm the one you don't want to know. He paused, letting that sink in. Let the priest go, or I'll be forced to demonstrate why Hadrian is the lesser of two evils. The wall of muscle retreated, walking backward and forcing the gathered throng to fall back as well. Then everyone scattered, slipping through doorways or darting up side streets. The crowd dispersed so quickly they didn't bother untying Pastor Payne. They simply left him standing in the noxious smoke of the sizzling cauldron. The priest shuffled toward them, coughing as he came. Thank you. Thank you, he choked out, doubling over. He struggled to draw a clean breath. The old man wore a round felt cap. Two tufts of white hair jutted out from either side. Satchels of loose skin drooped below sad eyes. Around the frame of his jaw and chin flared a bristling white beard, but his upper lip and cheeks were clean-shaven. His cassock, a ruddy, rusted color, was buttoned to the neck and skirted the ground so closely it hid his feet. Hadrian cut the rope off the priest's wrists before putting the great sword away. What was that all about? Pastor Payne made use of his free hands to cough into. Then he wiped his lips and eyes. He shook his head at the retreating villagers in disgust. These are backward people, heathens and blasphemers. Time has forgotten this corner of the world, and those who dwell here are lost in barbarism. That doesn't answer the question. Royce dropped to the ground. They resent my presence? No, that's not exactly right. They resent the Nephron Church, which has neglected bringing them into Novron's fold for far too long. They are mired in the past, and it's my job to bring them into the future. Hadrian turned to Royce. I thought this wasn't our problem. Royce shrugged. Turns out it was. Hadrian surveyed the deserted streets, which, he then noticed, were paved in a pleasant cobblestone. He could still hear the sound of slamming doors and whispered mutterings. We made a lot of enemies just now. How come? Royce grabbed the lead to his horse and pointed at Payne. Because a dead client doesn't pay. Pastor Payne is our employer. By the way, Payne is spelled with a Y and an E, not with an I, he told them, coming to a stop before a rickety shack slapped together from warped boards and cracked stones. 
perhaps the only building in town not covered in ivy. The priest turned and eyed the two of them carefully, then sighed. Doesn't matter, I suppose. Neither of you is literate, correct? Wrong, Roy said. Really? Pastor Payne pushed up his lower lip. Down here, only those in the clergy know their letters. I would have assumed that your sort wouldn't. Our sort? Royce asked. Paid killers, Payne explained. That's what you are, correct? I was informed that at least one of you has worked in that capacity for the Black Diamond Thieves Guild. Isn't that right? And for that reason you assumed were ignorant, Royce said. The priest nodded with enthusiasm. People who spill blood for a living are always ignorant. He looked them both over again. Well, almost always, I suppose. Ignorance isn't prejudiced about who it afflicts, Royce replied. Payne looked puzzled for a moment, then smiled and nodded, causing Royce to raise an eyebrow at Hadrian, who shrugged. Welcome to my church, the pastor said, indicating the tilting shack that leaned heavily on the twisted trunk of an olive tree beside it. This is a church, Hadrian asked. In Medford, the church is bigger. Medford doesn't have a church the old pastor said. It enjoys a cathedral. We're just starting here. I can assure you things will be much different the next time you visit. Come in, I'll make you something to eat. Lacking any windows, glass or not, the inside of the church was illuminated by stripes of sunlight shining through the gaps between wall planks. Thick dust clouds swirled as the priest moved around in the tiny space. Looking through large ceramic pots resting on the floor and peering into smaller ones shelved above, he finally found what he was after. Aha! Uh -huh. He grinned, pulling out a cloth-wrapped wheel of cheese. Now, if I could find... I swear I had some blackberries somewhere. Gathered them myself. I'm sorry I don't have more to offer. Adrian searched for a seat and didn't find anything he was confident would hold his weight. Royce refused to venture more than a step inside the door, where he stood with his arms hidden beneath his cloak. Found you! Payne pulled a basket of berries off a dark shelf, grinning at them as if he discovered gold in a stream. Help yourself. I know where there are more. The pastor popped two into his mouth and chewed humming in delight. Food is wonderful, isn't it? Winter will be a challenge this year. Isn't it warmer down here? Sure, sure, but the people are ice. At least in summer I can fend for myself. In winter, I won't exactly be able to rely on the generosity of my congregation to get me through. He popped two more berries then used a whittled stick stripped of its bark to cut away a piece of cheese. They certainly don't seem to like you, Royce said. The monks have turned them against the church. Monks? Payne nodded in reply as he chewed with a full mouth, then swallowed. He pointed at the western wall. Up there is the old monastery. Been here since imperial times, and named after a ridiculous piece of cloth 
he swallowed again. Seeing their blank faces, he waved a hand before them. That doesn't matter. My woes with the monks aren't your concern. The church will take care of them. You're here to stop a murder. No, Royce replied, just giving a professional opinion. Right, right, of course. Well, no sense in going to the castle now. Be dark soon. You can stay here tonight, and in the morning I'll introduce you to Knox. Hugh is the high sheriff of this province. He'll be the one you'll be working with. I'll also introduce you to Lord Christopher Fawkes. He's been of great assistance to the church and Lady Dulgarth recently. Wonderful young man. Cousin to King Vincent. He's actually the one who suggested speaking to Viscount Allen Wind-something, the fellow who referred you. Albert Winslow. Yes, that's him. Pastor Payne took a seat on a rolled bundle of straw, making Hadrian wonder if he'd be better off sleeping outside. He's close friends with Bishop Parnell from up north. The bishop dropped me off here when he came down to administer last rites to the late earl. Then he went on to the spring conclave in Irvinen. The bishop met with Viscount Winslow, who sent you our way. What can you tell us about Lady Dulgarth? Royce asked. Payne paused and wiped his mouth. Well, she's the only daughter, only child, of Lord Beadle Dulgarth, formerly the Earl of Dulgarth. She's young, twenty-two, I believe, very pretty. Got her looks from her mother, who died in childbirth. Beadle never remarried. He was a sentimental man, the emotional sort. Weak is what Bishop Parnell says. He has let this province run wild with lawlessness, as today's little demonstration can attest. Can you imagine what would happen if the peasants of Medford hauled a priest out in the main square to be tarred and feathered? King Amrath would post their heads on poles lining the king's road. You know a lot about Medford, Hadrian said. I studied at Sheridan University. We used to spend our free days in Medford. Small world. We know a Professor Arcadius from Sheridan. He's the— Can we get back to Lady Dulgarth? Royce insisted. Oh, yes. Let's see. The priest tapped his chin. She's well-liked. Some might even say loved by— Well, I guess everyone. Apparently not. Royce started to lean against the doorframe, but must have thought better of it and straightened again. When did the attack start? Maybe a few weeks after Beadle's funeral, or so I've heard. Maybe. It's hard to say exactly. We only know about the attempts that got noticed, but Knox will tell you more about that. Royce had a sour look on his face. Usually, Albert dealt with the client who wanted an item taken. Then Hadrian and Royce would watch the place for a few days, noting visitors and guards, if there were any, and determining when the lights went out and from what windows. Only on rare occasions did his partner check out interiors. If they needed floor plans or inside details, Albert would be sent for a visit. Hadrian knew Royce didn't speak to many people, but he especially avoided priests, nobles, and most certainly high sheriffs.
The last law enforcement officer he'd talked with had been found grotesquely butchered and decorating the fountain in Medford's Gentry Square. Hadrian doubted Pastor Payne was aware of Royce's involvement in that affair. If he were, he wouldn't be so casual about introducing the thief around. Chapter 4 Beyond the Sea The next morning, Sherwood let himself into the study, as usual. The castle staff had stopped bothering with him after the third week, not that they'd known what to do with him before. An artist was an oddity in a castle, even a large one. In Dulgarth, he was an outright enigma. While gossip wasn't something he intentionally provoked, Sherwood was delighted by the whispers his contradictions generated. He hobnobbed with the nobility, but dressed like the staff. Being friendly, he spoke kindly and easily to everyone without any hint of haughtiness, but he also told tales of intrigue in the courts of high kings. On fine days, he kept to his room. On mornings after a night's rain, he took long walks, mostly along the coast. The castle staff didn't know he was out searching for ochre, which stood out better from the cliff walls when wet, or that the snails he used to make imperial purple were more plentiful after a rain. The servants probably considered him daft. Oddly enough, his eccentricities gained him a queer sort of acceptance. Before he'd left Mian for Dulgarth, everyone had warned Sherwood that the people he'd meet there would be a bit off. As a result, he fit right in and had become a part of the Castle family. And since he had no title before his name and required no special treatment, Sherwood had become little more than furniture to the people who worked there. All except one. She was Nissa's handmaiden, Rissa Lynn. He knew her name from the number of times the lady had called it during their sessions. Rissa Lynn, make certain to lay out my blue gown for this afternoon. Rissa Lynn, ready a hot bath for when I'm done here. No, Rissa Lynn, don't close the drapes, he needs the light. In two months, Sherwood hadn't heard Rissa Lynn say anything in reply other than, Yes, my lady but she was all eyes. Rissalyn watched her ladyship, and she watched Sherwood. She was peering at him again that morning as he hauled his easel into the study. Standing just under the stairs, she blushed when he looked over and withdrew. He placed the easel where he always did, the floor marked with charcoal to indicate where each of its tripod legs went. This maintained consistency of view from one day to the next. Consistency of light was a bigger problem, and the reason the sessions were held at the same time each day. He went to the windows and threw back the drapes, tying them up. He was lucky. No clouds. Still, the shift of seasons was devastating. He should have asked her to start their sessions earlier to compensate. Now she might not come at all. He hadn't seen Nyssa since the door had slammed the day before. That wasn't unusual. He rarely saw her outside their sessions, and he always arrived first. Sherwood took off his jacket and hung it on the back of his easel. He rolled up his sleeves and pulled out the tray to oil his paints. He kept his palette loaded so as not to waste pigments, but overnight the paint thickened. 
He liked his paint to be the consistency of buttercream. He wiped the stems of his brushes clean and lined them up in neat rows, largest to smallest. His favorite was in need of a rebristling. It flared from fatigue, and too much paint lay trapped in the stem. Sherwood was a curse to a fine brush. Yardley had always said so. Sherwood had begun his apprenticeship when he was ten years old, making Yardley more than merely an art instructor. The old perfectionist, with the irritating laugh and disgusting habit of spitting every few minutes, had been more like a parent to Sherwood than the tin miner and his wife who bore him. In addition to portraiture, finding and crushing pigments and caring for his brushes, Yardley had taught him to fish, whistle, dance, navigate courtly life, and how to defend himself with fists and a blade. Where Yardley had learned sword fighting was anyone's guess, but he knew what he was doing, and he'd taught Sherwood well. An artist wandering alone on the open road was a target too tempting for many, and Sherwood's prowess had been tested more than once. His prep work done, Sherwood pulled up the stool and sat. The room was quiet except for the sound of the sea drifting in through the open window, soft and muffled, a distant, unending war fought between wave and rock. A seagull cried twice then was silent. Wind buffeted the drapes and rocked parchments rolled up on the desk behind which Nyssa usually stood. Sunlight moved in an oblong rectangle across the floor, slicing over the desk and running up the paneled wall. Sherward knew the time by the path the light took, tracking it with a painter's eye every morning. He'd worked on the background of the painting only when Lady Dulgath wasn't in the room, but he had finished everything that wasn't Nyssa weeks ago. As the light reached the edge of the stone fireplace, he knew she was late. Sherwood touched the leg of the stool, patting it as if for a job well done. While not the stool's doing, it managed to still be there. She hadn't ordered its removal. That's something, isn't it? As the light moved across the first stone of the hearth, the one he'd struggled to match in color because he was low on hematite, Sherwood began to face the reality that Lady Dulgarth was making good on her declaration. He hadn't believed her. They'd only had a small quarrel, a spat. People didn't. He felt his heart skip and a pressure on his chest, a tightness that made it difficult to breathe. I'm only a painter. I'm nothing to her. He tried to swallow and nearly choked on his own saliva. I've never lost a subject before, he thought stupidly, as if that mattered, as if it ever had. Never failed to complete a project. Sherwood stared at the empty space before the desk, at the marks he'd put on the floor to show Nyssa where to place her feet. It's like she's dead. The thought crashed in. What if she is? He shook his head. No, the castle would be thrown into chaos. She just isn't coming. She isn't coming because she doesn't... The familiar swoosh-swoosh of the brocade gown preceded her entrance. Lady Dulgarth entered without acknowledging his presence. 
She whirled on her mark, spinning on her left heel. After looping the fox over her neck, she clasped the riding gloves in her hand. Her eyes focused on the chandelier. Chin up, just a tad more, he said softly. She tilted her head without a word. Outside the study's door that Nyssa had left open, Chamberlain Wells could be heard saying, She's indisposed at the moment, but, well, let me inquire. I suppose she might see you. Wait here. That was Wells' way of saying, she's only wasting time with that infernal painter, like she does every morning. Sherwood didn't have a problem with Wells, which was good since he ran the castle and could make the artist's life miserable if he wanted to. That said, he was of the same mind as many in his position, believing a painter's time to be worthless. Lady Dulgarth allowed herself a glance at Sherwood. He smiled. She smiled back. His heart vaulted a hurdle, forcing him to take a deep breath. He nearly lost the presence of mind to pull the cloth over the painting before Thorbert Wells entered. My lady, Wells said, pausing at the doorway to bow. Thorbert Wells was a rotund man with a fondness for expensive belts that neither he nor anyone facing him ever saw. The Chamberlain's girth also hid his shoes, which that morning were a fine pair with soft leather uppers. Wells rarely wore the same pair twice in a week. He owned so many shoes that Sherwood had once asked Wells's manservant if he ever placed a mixed pair on the Chamberlain's feet to see if he noticed. This was the sort of joke that gained Sherwood access to the kitchens at night and a swig from the hidden jug of barley whiskey kept under the floorboards. Sheriff Knox has some gentleman here to meet with you, Wells said. Gentlemen, she asked. Ah, uh, yes, concerning the recent unpleasantness. Wells had a problem saying the words assassination, murder, or killing. Even when it came to butchering quails to eat, he was apt to say, the birds will be dressed for dinner, as if the fowl shared his penchant for belts and shoes and would be seated at the table. Again, the lady focused on Sherwood, and he was certain she was looking for, perhaps not permission, but understanding. Sherwood's heart climbed up his throat, as if searching for a better view of this extraordinary moment. Very well, let them in, Lady Dulgarth said, with just enough irritation in her voice to suggest that interrupting their time together was a disappointment. Wells bowed again, then waved three men in. Sherwood recognized Sheriff Knox, although he hadn't had cause to speak with the man. Still, he had seen him around, especially of late, and Hugh Knox wasn't the kind of person one overlooked. He was the sort you crossed the street to avoid. Harsh, with a tendency to glare, he wore his blonde hair tied back and had a red sash across his chest and wrapped around his waist. Edged in gold, the garment was the mark of his office. He wasn't from Dulgarth. The color of his hair and stubble told that story. The habitual squint of his eyes and sneer on his lips told the rest. This wasn't a genteel man. He wore two sabers and steel shoulder guards over a thick three-quarter-length leather gambeson. 
That day he looked tired, understandable, given the recent unpleasantness. The man charged with enforcing the law and protecting the countess couldn't be sleeping well. A pair of men accompanied him, neither a native of Marinon. One was tall, with a friendly smile and a relaxed stride, acting as if he were meeting a familiar bartender instead of a countess. He was dressed in worn leather and had dull buckles on three separate belts, none of which Thorbert Wells would have been caught in if his trousers depended on them, and a long cloak tossed jauntily over one shoulder. He one-upped Knox by wearing three swords. The one on his back looked big enough to fell a tree. The other man, a few inches shorter, might have been a woman for all Sherwood could tell. He was tented inside a dark cloak, hood up and his hands lost in its folds. Only a sharp nose, thin lips, and a pale chin presented themselves. Your ladyship. Knox went down to one knee. Rising, he gestured to the others. This is Royce Melbourne and Hadrian Blackwater of Melangar. They come highly recommended by Viscount Winslow of Colnora and Bishop Parnell. Highly recommended for what? she asked, tilting her head from side to side, studying the two. Knox hesitated and glanced awkwardly at Wells and Sherwood. Perhaps we could speak privately. Is it a secret? she asked. In a way, my lady. They are here to protect me, yes? No, the one in the hood said, without so much as a pleasant tone, much less a milady. The countess raised her head to stare down her nose at him, no attempt to hide her irritation. Then why are you here? We've been hired to find the best ways to kill you. Sherwood dropped his favorite brush, adding to the woes of its bristles. Wells clamped a meaty hand over his mouth, making his big cheeks swell as they flushed red. Knox closed his eyes, tilted his head up toward the ceiling, and opened his mouth, but said nothing. Lady Dulgath folded her arms under the head of the fox and raised an elegant brow. Really? And how much are you being paid? Hadrian, is it? The hood shook. Name's Royce and that information is between me and my employer. This time, even Knox brought a hand to his face. Pardon me, the taller one with the swords butted in. My lady, I'm Hadrian. He offered a gracious bow. I hope you'll excuse my partner. He's not accustomed to speaking to people, uh, people such as yourself. You see, we were asked to evaluate security measures to see if there are ways to improve them, Royce is an expert at finding flaws, particularly when it comes to threats of assassination. The Chamberlain cringed at the mention of the A word. So you believe my life is in danger? That's why you're here. Don't you think your life is in danger? Royce asked. Not particularly. She expelled a huff of air, pivoted on her left heel, and turned her back to them. She took three steps toward the window, stopped, then spun on the same heel back to face them once more. If I did, would I allow a man with three swords and another shrouded in a hood to enter my private study?
Royce shrugged. I just thought you were stup- Royce, Adrian snapped. In a milder tone, he continued, My friend is very tired from our long trip. Now, if no one is trying to harm you, there's no reason for us to be here. But since we've travelled so far and on the expectation of payment, I hope you won't begrudge us the opportunity to at least tour Dulgarth. Neither of us has been to Marinon before. Your corner of it is most beautiful. Lady Dulgarth continued to stare at Royce. Draw back your hood, she ordered. Hadrian laid a hand on the other one's shoulder and whispered something to him. Is there a problem? the lady asked. I'm here to do a job, Royce said. Not entertain you. You've come to my castle unbidden and have failed to show any sign of decorum or decency. Would you rather entertain me from my dungeon? Royce sneered. Would you rather I... Sherwood didn't know why he did it. If anything, it was because he couldn't abide the words that were likely to finish that sentence. He grabbed the nearest bottle of pigment and hurled it at the man. The artist was to the side and slightly behind the visitors when the bottle flew. With his hood up, Sherwood couldn't see the man's eyes, and he knew Melbourne couldn't have seen him. The bottle was small but heavy due to its thick glass, as ideal for throwing as a polished river stone. His aim was perfect. The container should have cracked against the hooded man's head, but it didn't. Instead, a slender hand darted from the dark cloak and snatched the bottle from the air. Then the hood turned, and Sherwood felt like a mouse who'd caught the attention of a hawk. The taller man stepped in again. Perhaps we should attempt this meeting at another time. Wells's face was so red it neared purple. I think you are right. I shouldn't have allowed this intrusion in the first place. Gentlemen, if you will. He shooed at them, his large sleeves flapping with the effort. Lady Dulgarth said nothing, but she continued to stare at the hooded man as he and the others left. Only then did Sherwood look down at his tray. He was sickened to realize he'd thrown the bottle of Beyond the Sea. Chapter 5 Castle Dulgarth Castle Dulgarth consisted of three unadorned square towers perched on a precipice of stone. A small rock wall bordered the front, while the backside was a sheer and mortal drop to the sea. Inaccessible except to seagulls, the promontory offered limited space for luxury. The castle's foundation took up most of the narrow point, leaving little room for the courtyard, which had been foolishly given over to uncontrolled azalea bushes. They grew to a surprising size along the stone wall. And there, among the pink and purple blooms, Royce, Hadrian, and Knox found Pastor Payne, waiting. How did it go? he asked. Not well, Hadrian said. You should have expected as much, Royce added, shaking his fist that still held the bottle of pigment. He hadn't meant it as a rebuke, but he was irritated. The pastor took a step back into the blossoms, his eyes big as goose eggs. Perhaps you should have come in with us, 
Sheriff Knox said. Why didn't you? Lady Dulgoth isn't what I would call a supporter of the Church of Nephron. Since my arrival, I've tried to keep a safe distance between us. Is there a problem? It's all right, Sheriff Knox said. He was calm, but wore a sour look. Then he turned to Royce and asked, You don't need her cooperation to do this, right? Royce nearly laughed, but wasn't in the mood, even in the face of such absurdity. You might be surprised to learn, Sheriff, that I never obtained the cooperation of those I plot to murder. Everyone stared at him in a palpable silence. Even Hadrian had his brows up. Royce rolled his eyes. I didn't mean... Oh, never mind. He turned to Payne. Look, are you planning to pay me extra to actually kill her? The pastor took another step into the bushes, the blossoms starting to swallow him. No, of course not. Royce looked back at the others. There, see? Remembering the young woman's glare as she threatened to imprison him, he glanced back at Payne. Are you sure? You're here to protect Countess Dulgarth. Knox admonished, spraying Royce with saliva as he spat out the word protect. Might have told her that. Royce leaned toward Hadrian and said, What did I tell you about spoiled nobles? Spoiled noble women? Maybe we should forget this whole thing. If you do, Payne put in, I'm sure the church will insist on withholding payment including the funds for travel expenses. Since you don't need to interact with the lady, why not just follow my example and keep your distance? Speaking of which... The pastor looked toward the castle entrance nervously. I've done my part, and there's little else I can accomplish here. I shall be going. Payne bowed curtly, and, with his usual stale smile, withdrew. As the pastor exited the courtyard... Hadrian turned to Knox. It couldn't hurt to look around a bit, right? He was standing closer than usual to Royce, with that everything-is-going-to-be-all-right smile on his face. Why not fill us in on some of the failed attempts? What exactly has happened? What made you think the Countess is in danger? I'll show you. Knox waved for them to follow. The sheriff led them up a set of stone steps to one of the rear parapets. Royce scanned the length. No guards, no sentries posted. Down in the courtyard, not a single soul was visible. Tilting his head up, he noted the numerous windows, tiny dark holes in the face of the rising towers. I could walk in on a cloudless day dressed to kill, and no one would notice. Here. Knox pointed to a missing Merlin. Royce spotted grooves and gouges where someone had used a pry bar. Peering over, he saw the road hugged the wall just below. The square, two-foot block of stone stood out pale against the green grass, lying where it had rolled after crashing down. Mr. Ladyship by inches, Knox said. After giving Royce some time to examine the area more closely, Knox led them back down to the grassy common. What time of day? Royce asked. Pardon? Knox replied. Royce rolled his eyes. 
When the great big rock nearly crushed the pretty lady, what time of day was it? Oh, midday or thereabouts. And no one saw anything? Hadrian asked. Knox shook his head and spread out his arms. As you can see, Castle Dulgoth isn't a busy place. Nor very well protected, Royce added with an insinuating glare. You're just looking to make all kinds of new friends today, aren't you? The sheriff licked his lips. You know, I told the bishop we didn't need outsiders coming here to tell me how to do my job. Dulgoth isn't Colnora. We don't have people like you around here. This is a peaceful province. Really? Then why am I here? I honestly doubt now. I imagine that's a list that's grown uncomfortably long by now, hasn't it? Knox reached to shove Royce, who took a step back and to the side, causing the sheriff to fall on his face. You son of a bitch! The sheriff came off the ground with a look in his eye that told a story. Hadrian read it as well, and moved in to block. He had a tendency to do that, get in the way, but this time Royce appreciated it. He hadn't travelled four days and ridden a hundred and twenty-five miles to kill a province sheriff. Royce wasn't sure Hadrian would be able to douse the sparked fire, so he shifted the bottle of pigment to his left hand, then reached inside his cloak for the handle of Alverstone, his dagger. Sheriff Knox! A man called from the front doors of the castle. He walked quickly toward them. Why don't you introduce me to your new friends? Knox violently brushed bits of grass off himself while baring his teeth at Royce. Hugh, please, the man shouted, breaking into a jog. Don't be rude. It's not proper to introduce oneself. The sheriff took a breath, then another. This is Lord Christopher Fox, second cousin to King Vincent. Hello, gentlemen, the lord exclaimed in a jubilant voice. He clapped his hands together and rubbed briskly, giving the appearance of a man about to embark on some great work. You must be Royce Melbourne. He extended a hand, then drew it back, exchanging it for a raised finger. Ah, no, you're probably not the handshake sort, are you? That's fine. Artists need to be mindful of their tools. He turned to Hadrian. But you're a different sort altogether. Mr. Hadrian Blackwater, isn't it? The hand went out again, and once clasped, Lord Fawkes pumped it soundly two times, then clapped Hadrian on the shoulder. Nice sword. Spadone, right? Quite the antique. Don't see many of those anymore. My friend Sir Gilbert... He's the senior knight of my cousin Vincent, never uses one. Says they went out of style centuries ago, back when knights actually fought in wars. Fawkes laughed loudly at his own joke. No one else did, but the Lord either didn't notice or didn't care. Oh, Hugh, these two are a wedge of sharp cheese, aren't they? Please allow me to give them the tour. I'm certain you have better things to do don't you? The last two words lacked the gaiety of the others, and were punctuated with authority. Certainly, your lordship. Knox gave Royce a parting scowl. He adjusted his sword belt and strode toward the front gate. 
Excitable fellow, that Hugh, Fork said, his tone quieter, calmer. Hails from somewhere in Warwick, if memory serves. I'm sure he has a blood-stained past. He's hiding down here, I imagine. Royce's eyes followed Knox's back until he disappeared from sight. So, you are the men Bishop Parnell has picked to properly plan Lady Dulgoth's murder. Fox grinned and winked at them. Royce wasn't certain if the man was a fool or a genius. He displayed signs of both. Neither made him comfortable, but over the course of his life, he'd been at ease with only four people. None of them was a well-dressed noble with a loud voice who winked. No one ever winked at Royce. The fact that this man, with his black goatee and expressive hands, did so was a curiosity worthy of further scrutiny. It's all right, Fox told them, spreading his hands out and fanning his fingers. I am privy to what's going on. Brilliant, really. Like that adage about fighting fire with fire. And from what I've heard, you two know how to handle yourselves in heated situations. He moved in closer, lowering his voice. He added, Rumors say a rather high-profile noble was assassinated up north. I suspect you know a little about that. Rumors can't be trusted, Royce told him. No, of course not. Fox glanced toward the front gate. Still, I doubt our good sheriff knows about that incident, or realizes he may owe me his life. As I recall, that dead noble was a high constable. Knox should be more careful. One doesn't buy poison and handle it without gloves. A fine and dangerous instrument deserves respect, wouldn't you agree? Absolutely, Royce nodded. And now that you mention it, I do seem to recall something about that rumor. Happened in Medford, didn't it? Why, yes, I believe that was the place. I can see why you were concerned about the sheriff, but just so we understand each other, the man killed wasn't just a high constable, he was also the king's cousin. Lord Fox escorted them inside Castle Dulgarth's stables, which were situated beyond the cleft wall and down the road where the land flattened out enough to be safe for horses. Made to appear like a fancy cottage, the stables had twelve paned windows and an interlocking brick floor. The place was cleaner than Wayward Street, even cleaner than the rose and the thorn, despite Gwen's hard work. The building didn't smell like a stable. There wasn't a trace of manure, nor a glimpse of straw. Chandeliers hung from a high ceiling, and the doorways benefited from decorative molding. Horses lounged in stained oak stalls with black-painted metal gates. Each wore a tailored blanket, and in front of every bay sat a large, beautifully crafted trunk. Nice barn, Hadrian remarked, looking up at the tongue-and-groove ceiling. Adequate, Fork said, with a bulging lower lip and a curt dip of his head. Dulgarth doesn't have the resources, talent, or inclination to indulge in serious equestrian endeavors. I realize you meant it as a jest, Hadrian, but in Maranon, this is hardly impressive. 
Lord Fawkes strolled along the long row of gates and stopped outside the stall where a horse stood cloaked in a beige warming coat. Large black eyes spotted Fawkes, and a white head poked out through the opening in the bars designed specifically for that purpose. The Lord cooed, made kissing sounds, and scrubbed the horse's neck. This is immaculate. She is mine. Fawkes opened a small pouch on his belt and palmed out a sugar cube. The horse snatched up the treat, smacking her lips with a loud, hollow, thumping clap of appreciation. Why are we here? Royce asked. Annoyance flashed across Fawkes' face, but was instantly stripped and replaced by a warm smile. Not a fan of horses. I like riding more than walking, but I prefer women for the friendlier stuff. Ha! Well said. Still, a good horse can be a blessing from Novron. He patted Immaculate's neck fondly. No one understands our love, do they? He whispered loud enough for them to hear, then turned away with a grin. Fawkes moved to the next stall, which housed an entirely black horse, this one with the snow-white velvet blanket. The horses were so perfect, so uniform in color, Royce wouldn't have put it past these pretentious people to dye the animals. Even the horse's hooves were pitch black. Fawkes reached down and flung open the chest. Inside, a saddle rested on a stand beside a folded blanket, a bridle, and a lead. The saddle was two-toned, tooled leather with an embroidered suede seat and shiny brass fittings. It had the fixed head and lower leaping head of a side saddle, which accounted for its plush luxury, although Royce imagined Lord Fawkes's saddle to be just as ostentatious. This is Derby, Lady Dulgarth's mare, and this, he lifted the side saddle, is her ladyship's as well. He held it up to them. It's very nice, Hadrian said. Fawkes chuckled. Look at the cinch. Royce tilted his head to peer at the fabric band that dangled down. Unlike the dual D-rings he and Hadrian tied leather straps to, this one had a set of buckles hidden under the saddle flap. Made of wool, this girth band was bright white. Again, very pretty, Hadrian said. It's new, Royce noted. The Lord grinned. Good eye. Fawkes dropped the saddle closed the chest, then walked to the far wall, where an open barrel stood. Reaching inside, he withdrew a near-identical girth strap. This one was sweat-stained and lacked the fluff of the other. Royce took it from Fox and examined the edges, crisp and clean up to a point, and then ragged where the wool banding had torn. Hadrian looked at him expectantly. Someone cut it a little more than halfway through. The rest tore while riding. Fawkes nodded. Lady Dulgarth was shifting from a three-beat canter to a four-beat gallop when it happened. She took a nasty spill. Thankfully, she wasn't jumping at the time, although she was setting up to do so. The strap broke during her practice ride for the Dulgarth steeplechase of roses. Fawkes retrieved the strap from Royce and dropped it back in the barrel. So that's two, Hadrian said. How did they try to kill her the third time? 
Poison, Royce replied. Hadrian and Fox looked at him in surprise. How did you know? Fox asked. I didn't, until just now. But it seemed likely, given the azaleas in the courtyard. Those pink flowers are poisonous, Fox said, as if Royce had shattered a childhood trust. They're so beautiful. And toxic. When I was with the Diamond, a common practice was to send a bouquet of azaleas in a black vase as a warning to other guilds that might be encroaching. We should have those torn out immediately. Don't bother. They don't pose any real danger to anyone but dogs or maybe children. There are a lot of poisonous flowers. Chrysanthemum, lily of the valley, hydrangea, foxglove, wisteria. Eat any of them and you'll get sick, but probably won't die. To do someone in, you want hemlock. Eight leaves will kill you. Monkshood is excellent because it absorbs through the skin and leaves no trace. Belladonna is also nice. Just one leaf or ten little berries will do the job. Old Bell is a favorite of female murderers because they always have it on hand. Rubbing the leaves on their cheeks makes them rosy. Later, you can brew tea with the same leaves and rid yourself of a troublesome husband. The best choice, of course, is arsenic, but finding some is nearly impossible, and making the extract is difficult. Then why did you think she'd been poisoned? Fox asked. Because you aren't dealing with a professional. Dropping a block of stone and cutting a saddle strap is pathetic lazy work. I don't even think the killer is a novice. What you're dealing with is a first-time idiot. A lot of people have heard azaleas are poisonous. So if you're a moron, but looking for a means to bury someone, those pretty blossoms would be hard to resist. I'm guessing the Countess was sick recently. Fox nodded. We were enjoying breakfast, and she complained about a burning in her mouth. She was eating a pastry at the time. Then she drooled a bit and vomited. Disgusting. She has a taster now, Royce asked. Yes. And what makes you think that this feckless would-be killer has given up and hired a professional? Rumors, mostly. Well, that and the fact that nothing has happened lately. I don't know anything about these sorts of things, but my guess is it would take time to find the right man, have him travel down here and plan the deed. That's why I'm glad you arrived. So how would you go about killing Countess Dulgarth? Royce shook his head. I don't know. Yet. You're right about proper planning. Things aren't to be rushed if they're to be done right. When will you know? I need to get a feel for this place, observe Lady Dulgarth's habits, find her weaknesses and vulnerabilities. A good assassin is like a good tailor. Everything is fit to order. So, this could take a while. Fox sounded disappointed. Well, like you said, if it didn't, she'd be dead already. So I wouldn't complain. Given that I'm in a race here, I should get to work. He turned to Hadrian. Can you get us a room or something in the village while I take a look around? You can stay in the castle, Fox said. There are extra rooms, and I'm sure I can convince Wells about the value of having you there. Royce shook his head. I'd rather retain my autonomy and perspective, 
But that does bring up a point. We need an alibi, an excuse for being here. Hadrian looked around them. What about horse traders or trainers? Something like that. Fox shook his head. In these parts, horses are our religion, and a layman can't fool the devout. Besides, Royce said, it has to allow us to poke around and ask questions without drawing attention. Maybe Payne could say you're deacons of the church. Most of the town saw me flash my swords, Hadrian said. By now the other half has heard the story. One guy thought we might be Sorette because we were helping Pastor Payne. Could we play off that? Swords? Helping Payne? What are you talking about? Fox asked. When we arrived, the townsfolk were going to tar and feather him. Seeing as he was our client, I thought it was best if they didn't, Royce said. Fawkes nodded. The people around here are not overjoyed with the church, though that will change now that Bishop Parnell is building a ministry. I wouldn't advise posing as a serret. The military arm of the church are fanatics, and it's best not to get on the wrong side of their kind. But that does give me an idea. What about... What? Well, we could use the incident to our advantage. You saw a crime being committed and stepped in. We'll make you sheriffs. Huh? What? Royce asked. Yes, of course. I'll talk to Knox. I won't work for him, Royce declared. In a way, you already do, Fox said. But you're right. He didn't seem too taken with you. That's fine. I'll tell you what. I'll say that the two of you are special royal constables sent by the king himself to investigate attempts made on Lady Dulgarth's life. It makes perfect sense. Vincent is scheduled to visit here in the next few days to review the fief, accept Lady Dulgarth's pledge of fealty, and renew the homage. It's only sensible he would want to send his own men to ensure his security, if not hers. Yes. Fox grinned. Two royal constables. You'd have authority to go anywhere and question anyone. How do we prove it? I'll vouch for you and talk to Wells and Knox, convince them it'll help protect Lady Dulgarth, and they'll need to back me up if anyone asks. I can be quite persuasive when I need to. We'll draw up some official-looking papers with Vincent's signature. Almost everyone here is illiterate, but if it looks official, and if I, Wells, and Knox confirm your story, they'll believe. Constables. Royce muttered more to himself than them. He'd played roles in the past. Shopkeepers, tradesmen, soldiers tax collectors. Once he'd even impersonated an executioner. He was good at that one. Never had he imagined acting as the chief law enforcement official of a realm. The notion left him unsettled, like being asked to eat human flesh. Appropriate, too, Fork said, and threw his arms out to remind them of their surroundings. When they didn't show a hint of understanding, he explained. The word constable comes down from imperial times, when the officer responsible for keeping the horses was the Count of the Stable. 
It's like a sign from Novron. Royce agreed. He just wasn't certain what was on that sign. Chapter 6 The House and the Bedchamber While riding by himself back to town, Hadrian concluded something wasn't right about the village of Breckendale. He felt it in that faint, absent way he noticed the first kiss of a cold. Nothing specific, nothing he could point to, just a general sense of things being askew. Seeing the pretty berries along the trail reminded him of what Royce had said about them being poisonous. Could he have been onto something? Or was that just another example of Royce being Royce? Over the last couple of years, Hadrian had witnessed many Royce being Royce moments and developed a truism about his partner's unique brand of paranoia and cynicism. Offered help was either an insult or a ploy. Needed help was a con or a ploy. Pretty much everything was suspected of being a ploy of some sort, except perhaps admitted exploitation, which Royce oddly identified as honesty. Believing the worst of people, of the world in general, was a trap too easy to fall into. Hadrian had fought beside soldiers who developed similar views. Such men saw evil and virtue as concepts of childhood naivety, in their minds, there was no such thing as murder, and killing was just something you did when circumstances warranted. A terrible way to live. What good is a world? What is the point of living, if generosity and kindness are myths? Royce, like everyone, saw what he looked for, what he expected to see. Hadrian looked for goodness and believed he was better for doing so. Who doesn't want to live in a brighter world? He rode along a short wall that decorated rather than protected one of the many stacked stone farmhouses. Farmers always built from what was at hand, and being tucked between the toes of old mountains, the fields had to be a veritable quarry of rocks. As a blacksmith's son, Hadrian had never suffered the trials of turning the soil in Hintendar, but he knew many who did. Most came to his father with mangled ploughs, battered mattocks and anguished faces. Rocks were as much a curse to farmers as the weather. Only two things can be reliably grown, rocks and weeds. He'd heard the saying repeated by the villains of his childhood village of Hintendar whenever spring threw up another crop of each, and every year the walls surrounding the fields got higher and longer. There'd been a time when he wondered if those walls would seal him in. Noting the height of the wall he now rode beside, Hadrian couldn't help but wonder why it was so short. Once more, that feeling of strangeness descended, underscoring the notion that everything about the town was off, askew. No, not just askew, awry. Approaching the twin oaks that marked the southern boundary of the town, he noted how they resembled a pair of porch pillars. These broad columns, however, were clad in dark bark and hid beneath a canopy that cast deep, wide shadows. The hollow, the dale, 
where the village clustered, was a leafy pocket at the base of the ravine where that singular road from the outside entered the valley of Dulgarth. Outside. Already Hadrian thought of things in such terms as here and beyond here, as if he were in a different place from everywhere else, from normal. On this, his second visit to Breckendale, he thought the gathered ivy wasn't simply decorative and pretty, but a blanket that hid everything. The sound of dancers' hooves on the stone road echoed in the hollow. Everything echoes. Noises bounced back off the ravine. Not even sound escapes. When he reached Pastor Payne's ramshackle hovel, the old man was outside, pulling loose boards. More than a few had come free and teetered in a stack next to him. Hey there, Hadrian called. Could you recommend an inn? I'm going to get a room for myself and Royce. This town doesn't have one, or at least none I could recommend. Your best bet would be Fassbinder's place. What's that? Fassbinder is a soap maker. But his two boys died last year. It's where I stayed my first night. But now Bishop Parnell has arranged for this, he gestured toward the shack, wonderful abode. He's assured me the new church will be the envy of the region. Hadrian tried to imagine Royce taking supper with Fassbinder and his wife. He didn't relish night after night of awkward silence. How about something a bit more public? A tavern with some lodging, perhaps. There's Caldwell House. But as I said, I wouldn't recommend it. Why wouldn't I want to go there? Do they have bugs or something? Worse. It's down by the river, near the square where we first met. Payne's arm stretched out, one bony finger aimed downhill toward the center of the village, where the ivy and old oaks grew the thickest. A house of sin and debauchery. They sell beer, then? The pastor's response was an irritated, <laughs> which Hadrian took as yes. I stay away from the river. The far side is godless. That's the bad side. What's over there? Hadrian lifted his head. A depression snaked through the far side of town, where he imagined a river ran. Beyond roofs and gables, he saw only trees and a hill. Nothing. Nothing of any worth. Hadrian had trouble reading clergy in general. They always managed to project a disconnected yet knowledgeable attitude, less than helpful when gauging reliability. Fassbinder is up that way, Payne told Hadrian, pointing towards the majority of the freshly planted fields to the south. Thanks. He dismounted, preferring to walk through the remainder of the village and guessing Dancer appreciated the gesture. The sun was in the middle of the sky, and warm. Another beautiful day in Marinon, but few people were out. A pair of boys and a dog chased sheep in a high meadow up the ravine, and a woman drew water from the central well, but he didn't see anyone else. Two doors closed as he approached, and the shutters on nearly every house abutting the street were sealed. He hoped the pastor wasn't watching him as he turned downhill toward the river. On that day, the village market was open. 
The Dales version was small, airy, and lined with stalls and carts selling salts, spices, leather goods, candles, copper pots, and brass buttons. Caldwell House wasn't hard to find. The building sat on the corner of This Way and That, which was a confusing sign, given that five separate lanes came together at the same intersection. Two, however, were only small pathways. One of these led to a reclusive home surrounded by a stand of trees, while the other marked the entrance to what Hadrian thought must be Coldwell House, easily the largest building in the village. The place was tall, a full four stories if you counted the three dormers and five gables, built with all the planning of an afterthought. It, too, was made of fieldstone supported by thick timbers. Like everything else, it was covered with thick ivy. The place was a living plant with doors and two smoking chimneys. No sign was posted at the entrance or from the eaves, but the door was open and three men stood in a cluster on the porch, smoking long black pipes. They scrutinized him. Not one smiled. Excuse me, is this an inn? When no one replied, he added, You know, a hostelry, an auberge, a lodge, a wayhouse. Just stairs. A place where people rent rooms for the night to sleep in. The group puffed and walked back inside, leaving a cloud behind. Not to be deterred from the possibility of a good mug of beer, even a reasonable imitation thereof, Hadrian tied Dancer to one of the porch posts. He clapped the horse's neck. Hang in there. I'll see if I can find something for you too. He walked around the railing and up the stairs onto the porch. Don't mind them, a voice said. A moment later, a young woman stepped out of the gloomy interior of the house, emerging from the ivy-wreathed hole. Red hair. Lots of red hair. Divided down the middle of her head, the woman's ginger tresses spilled to her waist, after first cascading off bare shoulders. Small and dangerously pretty, she wore a gown elegant in design, but not material. Black felt, pulled together with leather laces, formed the plunging front, while the sleeves were made of coarse wool. Side panels, hidden beneath her arms, were made of suede, and the cuffs and pleats were comprised of stitched-together burlap scraps. Not remotely refined, the patchwork dress was a bold attempt to imitate the wardrobe of a lady, using the means of a waif. Yet, unlike any chaste noble garment, this concoction of wool and leather greedily gripped the woman's body, straining the imperfect stitching. No? he asked, willing his eyes to remain on her face, not a poor alternative, given her friendly smile. No. She reached up, gathering her hair with both hands and casting it behind her like a net. You're the one who stopped the feathering last night, right? She didn't wait for an answer. Obviously didn't need one. Some folk are holding a grudge. Not you, though. Wasn't there. Heard about it. People talk in a small village. You thirsty? Yes, but right now I'm looking for a room and a place for my horse. So, is this an inn? Caldwell House is 
pretty much whatever you need her to be. She winked. Her age was difficult to guess. The dress said young, but her confident tone made him think she was a year or two older than himself. Do you... work here? What? Like a whore or something? There wasn't any tone of offense, and no emphasis on the word whore. Just a question asked in a delightfully casual manner, as if they were discussing lemonade or the lack of rain. He absolutely had been thinking prostitute, but given her reply, he felt it safer to retreat. Barmaid, perhaps. That, too, might have been an insult. She could be like Gwen and own the place. An entertainer. She made a little hop, threw her hands up, and spun around in an elegant twirl that made the hem of the gown flare. My name's Dodge. She pulled at her hair. Scarlet Dodge. My mother had all the creativity of an eight-year-old with a spotted puppy. He chuckled. Nice to meet you, Spot. I'm Hadrian. Pleasure is mine. She made an equally elegant curtsy. You're from up north, then? Most recently from Melangar. Her eyes brightened, and the smile grew even more inviting. Fancy that. I came down from Warwick, called Nora to be exact. But you probably guessed I wasn't a native, on account of how pretty I talk. She chuckled. And my lovely complexion. She held out a freckled arm and rubbed, which I share with the bellies of dead fish on a hot day. She made another smart spin, turning her back on him, but trailing a hand that beckoned with a curled finger. Come on in, Hadrian of Melangar. I'll let you buy me a drink, and we can regale each other with stories of our adventures in foreign lands. Hadrian glanced back at Dancer. It won't take long, I promise. The inside of Caldwell House was about as pleasant a place as Hadrian could have hoped for. Overhead ran heavy beams of rough-cut wood from which a wagon-wheel chandelier hung. The place was brimming with pewter mugs, fishing rods, forgotten coats, burlap bags, garlic sprigs, and the occasional spiderweb. Someone had carved the initials W.A. in the center post. More initials, words, and other scars marred the six round tables and the elbowed bar, behind which rested a rack of three barrels, one marked beer, another ale, and the last whiskey. On a chalkboard was written the words, Fish are good, but gills the best. Nine patrons occupied the main room. The three men from the ports were now at the bar. Four others sat at a table in the center, and two more stood to the rear, holding tankards. One waved at Scarlet, who smiled. Hey, Brett, when did you get back? This morning, Brett replied. He was one of those standing, talking to a fellow across from him, who was leaning with his back to the initialed post, one foot bent up and resting on it. Scarlet trotted across the floor and gave the man a hug, a polite, friendly sort. No kiss preceded or followed. Brett had the typical black hair and dark eyes of Maranon men, so he wasn't her brother, but he didn't appear to be a husband or lover either. That was good. 
Adrian recognized the four men at the table as Bullneck and Company. That was bad. They sat hunched over drinks, elbows on the table, their heads close. Luckily, none looked at him, and he tried not to stare at them either. Like an abandoned boat, Hadrian continued to drift toward the bar, where a man with a short beard and rolled up sleeves wiped his hands on a towel. He didn't seem to notice Hadrian either, as he, and almost everyone else, was looking at Scarlet. Have a drink with us, she cooed to Brett. The not-her-brother shook his head. Got a wagon to unpack, honey. A playful push and pout followed. What about you, Larmand? She asked the one holding up the post. Sorry, Dodge. Brett needs muscle. He held up a bent arm, flexing. What does that have to do with you? Her comment brought a communal, ooh, from some of the others. Suit yourself. She swept back to Hadrian's side and faced the bartender. Putting a hand on Hadrian's shoulder, she said, Wag, this man is buying two rice and a pair with foam. That so? the bartender asked. Sure, Hadrian replied. Why not? Gill, the man with the towel shouted, and a boy came out from an archway. Fetch Scarlet a bottle from the cellar. Hadrian pointed at the barrel marked whiskey, puzzled. I assumed you weren't a cheap bastard, Scarlet said, as Gill went down the steps to their left and used a key hanging around his neck to enter a small door. Wag knows what I like. While Gill fetched the bottle, the bartender used one hand to hold two pewter mugs beneath the barrel spigot marked beer. Wagner Drayton, he said, extending his hand while still holding the beers in the other. Adrian Blackwater. He shook and received the drinks as a reward. Only a truly forgiving or desperate woman would consider Wagner a handsome man. His face suffered from numerous pockmarks and deep wrinkles. The latter cut across his brow and added unnecessary dimension to his cheeks. The beard was likely an effort to cover his face. He kept it short, but it, too, was unsightly, as it grew in patches. He was smiling. Well, that's something. Scarlet pulled over a pair of high-backed wooden stools. Have pity on your paws. She clapped the face of a seat and hopped up on her own, kicking her heels up onto the footrest that ran around the base of the bar. Hadrian pulled off his spadone, propping it next to him. He sat down and picked up the mug before him. To a fine meeting. Scarlet rammed his mug hard enough to send foam over the edge. The beer was good, warm, rich, and far from flat. So, what do you do here, Scarlet? Hadrian asked, hoping to learn more about this woman who freely hugged men, dressed like a patchwork princess, and demanded only the best whiskey. I told you, I entertain. Give him a taste, Wagner said, picking up three shot glasses, which he tossed at her. Scarlet caught each with practiced ease and began juggling, sending them higher and higher. She stood up, moved to an open space, and began catching them behind her back. Continuing their rotation, 
She rested each on her forehead momentarily, and then, without Hadrian seeing it happen, there were only two glasses. Then just one. She walked back to her seat, the final glass vanishing into thin air. Impressive! He applauded. Thank you. She bowed before hopping back on her chair. Gil returned with a dark, corked bottle, plucking straw off it as he came. The boy handed it to Wagner. Glasses, darling. The bartender smiled at Scarlet, who reached up toward Hadrian's head and pulled a shot glass from behind his ear. She placed it on the bar while reaching up for another. By the time she produced the third glass, Wagner had poured two shots of amber liquid. Some of the best Roy whiskey in Maranon, Wagner said, recorking the bottle. Scarlet lifted hers and smelled it. Her eyes closed as a dreamy look took her, and an alluring smile spread across her lips. I love this stuff. That's why I have to keep it locked in the cellar. Wagner pointed at her and tapped his nose at the same time. What will we drink to this time? she asked. To whiskey-loving women who juggle, Hadrian supplied. She grinned, and they clicked glasses more gingerly this time. She took the whole shot in one swallow. Hadrian did the same. I have to admit, I wasn't expecting such a welcome reception after my friend and I interrupted things. Where's your friend? He'll be along. Sent me ahead to get a room. Which reminds me. Wagner? Yes, sir. The bartender popped a bright smile on his ugly lips. Could I get a room with two beds and a stall for my horse? Absolutely. Horse out front, is it? Yep. Gil! Wagner yelled. The boy was there in a flash, and Hadrian was starting to see why Gil was the best. Take care of the man's horse. So tell me, are my partner and I the only new people in town? Anyone else visiting? Hadrian asked Wagner. Been slow, Wagner replied. Why, you expecting to meet up with someone? Me? No, just making conversation is all. And now that I think about it, what's the deal with Pastor Payne? What did he do to deserve a tiring? Wagner shook his head. Nothing. It's not him. It's what he's trying to sell. We don't need the Nephron Church in these parts. Scarlet switched to a polite smile as she crossed her legs. Dulgath is an old tradition that dates back to imperial days. The church hasn't bothered with us until now. Brecon Moor is where the monks of Meribor were founded. Wait, Hadrian stopped her, confused. The whiskey had hit harder than he expected. I thought this was Brecon Dale. It is, Wagner said then pointed across the bar, as if Hadrian could tell what direction that was. He couldn't. The rush of the drinks on an empty stomach, combined with the twists and turns of the village roads, had left him baffled. Brecon Moor is the old monastery up on the hill, just outside town. Oh, yeah. Payne mentioned something about a monastery. Didn't speak too highly of it. Up north, the two sects tolerate each other. But down here... Scarlet shook her head. Like Wag said, we aren't buying what they're selling. 
Which is? Hadrian asked. She waved a dismissive hand. That crap about Novron and his heirs. If they had their way, we'd return to imperial rule, everyone bowing down to one man. We like things just as they are, especially now that Lady Dulgarth is going to be in charge. Don't get me wrong, the Earl was fine, a good man, really. But Lady Dulgarth is something else, something special. Scarlet held out her glass, and Wagner poured another drink. She continued. A lot of changes are going on outside our little corner of Elan. But you'll find that people around here like our traditions. I've heard rumors that the other provinces of Marinon have switched allegiances from monarchist to imperialist. Swanwick was the most recent. Hadrian nodded, and the room swam. He checked his beer and found that most of it was still in his mug. While it was true he hadn't eaten in hours, he wasn't such a lightweight that a single shot... I'm sweating too. Something isn't right. He scanned the room and noticed that the four at the table had gotten up. The two who were in such a hurry to unload a wagon had moved to the door but forgot to leave. They were no longer looking at Scarlet. Everyone was looking at him. What did you put in the drink? He asked her softly. Don't worry, she said. It won't kill you. But we are going to finish what you stopped. Only this time, you'll be tarred and feathered right alongside that bastard pain. When you see Bishop Parnell, tell him we don't need the Nephron Church around here, and anyone he sends will get the same treatment. Adrian got to his feet and drew his swords, but the room was soup, his arms lazy, his hands going numb. Probably fed me some azaleas. Bullneck charged forward, and Hadrian made a wild swing at him. Leave him, Scarlet said. He'll pass out soon enough. Anger bloomed, but years of training helped Hadrian push it away. He had to think, but his mind was spinning like the room, and he was running out of time. He considered making a run for his horse, but Gil would have taken Dancer away. The kid was already back, and Brett and Lamond were guarding the door out of options. Hadrian's vision narrowed as the poison worked through him. He was weaving, struggling to keep standing. What will Royce say when he finds out? What will he do? Hadrian looked sympathetically at Scarlet. She hadn't meant him any serious harm, she just wanted him to leave. But Royce was another matter, and she had no idea what he was capable of. That single, sobering thought provided him an instant of clarity, and in that moment he saw the sign again. Fish are good, but gills the best. The kid was back near the cellar steps watching him, waiting like everyone else to see him fall. Hadrian dropped his swords. They couldn't help him now. Only Gill could. Gills the best. With a sloppy stagger, Hadrian grabbed the kid. Behind him, people shouted, but he wasn't listening to them anymore. All his focus was on one thing, the key that Gil had around his neck. With a yank, which must have hurt, the chain broke. Gil probably screamed, but Hadrian couldn't spare the attention. His sight was already dimming as he nearly fell down the steps. 
Luckily, the boy had neglected to lock the door. He rolled into the small room filled with hay-packed straw, slammed the door closed, and with shaking hands, struggled to put the key into the lock. If he could just seal himself in, then... Fish are good, and gills the best, but now it's time to take a rest. The words began to repeat stupidly in his head. Then they began to jumble. Resting fish and gill, how best is now to rest. Hadrian, who by then was sweating a puddle, was happy to find the cool stone of the floor and lay his face on it. Gill the fish, rest is best, time is now. It feels so good to... Royce explored the grounds of Castle Dulgarth. No one questioned his presence. No one even noticed as he studied gates, windows, and walls. The lack of security was appalling, and the castle wasn't much better. Roughly squared stones were stacked without mortar and covered with lichen, moss, and ivy. The place practically wheezed with old age. One tower at the southern corner had fallen, and no one had bothered to rebuild it. The pile of collapsed stones had lain forgotten for some time, judging by the thick roots of the trees growing over them. A desolate place. The thought lingered in Royce's head as he circled the point. Nice that way. He imagined few would share his opinion, Hadrian being among the least likely. But Royce found beauty in the windswept rock and the constant battle it waged against the sea. Stripped bare but standing strong, the promontory displayed an insolent resilience he appreciated. Why anyone would erect a castle there, he had no idea. Strategically, it made no sense. Dulgarth was miles from anything notable and had nothing to defend or protect. Traffic did pass along the coast, but Castle Dulgarth was inland from the infamous Point of Man, where ships went to die. The name came from Captain Silas Mann, who'd discovered the dangerous reef when his ship ploughed into it and sank with all hands. A more common and colourful rumour declared the landmark's name had its origins in the prayers of drowning sailors who were asking Meribor for life's meaning. The treacherous, ship-sinking obstacle protected the coast, making the castle unnecessary. Yet another reason its location made no sense. The pinnacle of stone the castle sat on, an upthrusting slab of nearly vertical basalt rock, was ideal for a defensive fortress, but Castle Dulgath made little use of it. The entrance through the front wall wasn't much more formidable than a garden's gate. Made of simple wood with iron braces, the gate stood less than ten feet in height. Any kid with a fruit crate could climb over them, a theory that wouldn't be tested since the entryway was never closed, much less locked. Just as well, Royce concluded, given that none of the towers were built for defense. Castle Dulgath possessed no arrow loops, barbican, or curtain wall, and not a single murder hole. Even the crenellated battlements appear to have been built more for style than for use. Either the builders had no thought of defense, odd considering the isolated perch they placed the castle on, 
or they didn't know the first thing about fortress defenses. After the sun had sunk into the sea, Royce moved along the parapet in earnest, imagining himself as an assassin with a contract to eliminate the Countess. In many ways, he wished he were. The job would be insanely easy. Aside from the lack of a gatehouse or closed gates, there were precious few guards. The tiny Hemley estate with Ralph and Mr. Hipple was more heavily and competently watched. The castle's courtyard went dark with the setting sun. No attempt was made to set a lantern or light a torch. And the ivy! Old and entrenched, the plant grew everywhere, the branch-thick vines making excellent ladders. He didn't have the slightest trouble reaching the tower, where an open window gave him access to, he struggled not to laugh, Lady Dulgarth's bedroom. The chamber was panelled in dark stained oak, had a little hearth all its own, and a luxurious bed with a red velvet canopy and silk sheets. She had four freestanding wardrobes, a dressing table, a wash table, three wooden brass trunks, a full-length mirror that tilted on a swivel, a table littered with seashells, shelves filled with books, a painting of an elderly man dressed in black and green, two chairs, one with a cushioned stool before it, and a set of thick candles, three-quarters melted. She wasn't in the room. He didn't expect her to be. If this had been a real job, he'd have waited until late and slipped in while she slept. Then, placing a hand over her mouth, to hold her still and keep her silent, he'd slit the lady's throat. The red covers would help hide the blood. There would be a dark stain, but it could just as easily be spilled water. He'd pull the covers up to her throat to cover the wound. Royce preferred to be neat when he didn't have a point to make. He'd wash off any blood in the basin, assuming he got some on him, which was unusual, but did happen. With everything in order, he would climb back down the unwatched ivy, walk along the unmanned parapet, and saunter out the unguarded and always open gates. It's a wonder she's still alive. Footsteps made Royce slip between a pair of wardrobes as the chamber door opened. Nissa Dulgath entered guarding a candle flame with a cupped hand. She set the light down, closed the door behind her, and then stopped. Pressing down on her left heel, she spun upon it like a child's top. What are you doing here? She asked, but her eyes weren't on him. They were searching. Royce hesitated. He was good at hiding, always had been. In the dark, no one ever saw him. The only light in the room was the single candle, hardly enough to give him away. Her tone also threw him. Too relaxed, too calm. If she really saw him hiding in her private chambers, if she'd spotted him, the pampered girl would have begun caterwauling, not unlike Mr. Hipple's little fit. The inflection of her question wasn't without emotion, of course. She was decidedly annoyed. A moment of silence followed. She huffed and folded her arms roughly, as if that might mean something. 
She then shifted her weight first to her left and then her right hip. Are you going to answer me? She was staring directly at him then, an indignant frown on her lips. How can she see me? No point in pretending he wasn't there or that she hadn't caught him. He replied, My job. Your job entails lurking in my bedroom? I didn't expect you to be here. Where else would I be at night? I... And why are you here at all? Have you been going through my clothes? Once again, she pivoted on that left heel, moved to a wardrobe, and flung open the doors, sending Royce into retreat. Why would I go through your clothes? I haven't the slightest idea. But it's really all that's here, so why else would you be in my room? I was hired to determine how a professional assassin might go about murdering you. You think hiding in my wardrobe might be a good tactic, do you? I wasn't in your wardrobe. I can only hope that's the truth. She slapped the doors shut. Such an odd girl. That was always true of those with noble blood. They failed to act as any normal person would. For a time, Royce had been convinced that nobles were another species, and that the idea of blue blood made them different from others, just as they claimed. While they boasted about being superior, Royce always found the opposite to be true. Nobles were born without the survival instincts granted every other living thing. Believing themselves special, they were oblivious to dangers and surprised when catastrophe followed. Lady Dulgarth was a shining example. For a moment, he thought she was about to show a degree of intelligence when she picked up the candle. He expected her to flee. Instead, she held it up and came closer. Pull back the hood, she told him. Not that again. And let me explain in advance. A stay in your dungeon really isn't going to happen. Her eyes narrowed, and a smile formed on her lips. Not a friendly one, more of an amused, curious grin. So sure of yourself. Your problem is that you lack the capacity to imagine a young woman could be a threat. She lowered the candle, accepting, he hoped, that the hood was staying up. I know that particular arrogance all too well. Assumption of superiority is quite dangerous. When I was first hired, I wondered why anyone would want to kill you. I don't anymore. Honestly, I'm surprised there isn't a line. Lady Dulgarth laughed, nearly blowing out the candle. She crossed to one of the tables and set it down. Royce continued. I'm not kidding. The good news, for me anyway, is I'm not here to protect you, find the assassin, or even determine who hired him. That's Knox's job. Given this castle's security, and, as I mentioned, the fact that it could be literally anyone, I don't envy the sheriff. He's doomed to failure. If you don't already have one, make out a last will and testament as soon as possible. That way, at least you won't leave a mess for others to clean up. I wonder who your parents are, she said, leaving Royce baffled. What? Your parents. Who are they? 
Hatred and disillusionment. How about you? She smiled at him. The same unperturbed grin, as if he were great fun. You know, Roy said, most young ladies would be terrified to find someone like me in their room. You know, most men would be terrified to be caught uninvited in the bedroom of a countess. But then, she took a slow step forward. You're not a man, are you? Royce took a step back. He wasn't sure why. The woman before him was small, thin, and delicate. And while the gown she wore, with its high collar and long sleeves, wasn't provocative, it did emphasize her feminine frailty. Does your partner know? She asked. Know what? What you are. What am I? She smiled again. Is this a guessing game? He asked, annoyed. I was only... She stopped, and her eyes widened. You don't know. She clasped her hands before her, touching fingertips to her lips while grinning. You have no idea, do you? She looked him up and down and nodded. You hide it well, and you're still young. In your first century... You're a very odd girl. And what about you? She let out a childlike giggle, which somehow managed to sound frightening. No human could have caught the paint bottle Sherwood threw. You didn't even see it. You heard it. And the speed you displayed was beyond that of a mere man. She turned and blew out the candle. I can hardly see you, but you have no trouble seeing me. The starlight entering the window is enough to reveal the color of my eyes. That wasn't a question, and she spoke with complete confidence. Heat and cold don't bother you nearly as much as they do your friend, but ice, snow, and boats, oh, ships, you never go sailing. Royce was pleased the candle was out, but not so certain she couldn't see him. She seemed to see him all too clearly, and he didn't know how. No, Mr. Royce Melbourne, your parents weren't hate and disillusionment, she said, her pale, white face lit by starlight that did indeed reveal the brown of her eyes. At least one of your parents is what people call an elf. I think you should. Chapter 7 A Game of Ten Fingers Royce had never been one for etiquette. Appearing in the bedchamber of the Countess had to rank high on anyone's list of faux pas. Leaving while she was still mid-sentence was probably worse. He was halfway back to Breckendale before it even occurred to him to wonder why he'd done it. She'd rattled him. This was the only explanation he could come up with. A spoiled, noble girl had shaken him so badly he'd run away. 
run away. He'd fled from a young woman who had a disturbing way of looking at things. On the way back to town, a loop of two words ran through his mind. Not possible. Every once in a while, he'd toss in a colorful adjective or add, The bitch is nuts. Mostly, he gritted his teeth, breathed heavily through his nose, and strangled the reins between fists until the leather cried. The only consolation about Lady Dulgarth's pronouncement was that Hadrian hadn't been with him, hadn't heard. At least one of your parents is what people call an elf. Elves were as respected as cockroaches, pond scum, and bread mold. Once, very long ago, they'd been slaves of the First Empire. When it fell, they were freed, but had nowhere to go. Since then, the slaves turned beggars clustered in the worst parts of every city. Dumb as bugs drawn to a campfire, they crowded in cesspools, holding out hands and pleading for scraps. Every day they kissed the filthy feet of those who spit on them. Royce had been wrong that night, when he'd debated whether dogs or dwarves were the worst. The answer should have been elves. No doubt about it. They were just so low on the list, he usually left them off it entirely. I can hardly see you, but you have no trouble seeing me. The starlight entering the window is enough to reveal the color of my eyes. She was right, even though she couldn't have known. Builders knew the best ways to destroy buildings, and Royce prided himself on breaking down falsehoods. He saw through deceit, flattery, and fake smiles. He followed logic, and when something didn't add up, he knew the sandy grains of a lie sat at the bottom of the foundation. But this time, everything made sense. Everything added up. He just didn't want to accept the truth. Royce had never known his parents. He had been told he was abandoned in a muddy sewer in the city of Ratibor when just an infant. Other kids had taunted him, called him an elf. He was small, thin enough, and certainly looked every bit as destitute. Being young, he'd believed them. When he got older, he realized the children were wrong. Elf was simply the most despicable word they could come up with. Over the decades, he'd witnessed so much inhumanity that he'd come to accept his abandonment as typical, one more brace in a consistent framework. The question wasn't, how could my mother leave me in a sewer, but rather, why aren't more children abandoned in the mud? Just dumb luck. He'd built an existence on the belief of an unsympathetic world, but after fleeing Lady Dulgarth's bedroom he felt that underpinning crumble. If she was right, it would explain a great deal. Royce still believed in the callousness of life, but perhaps brutality wasn't handed out so capriciously. He hadn't been abandoned because the world was cruel. He'd been cast away because he was an elf. When he arrived at Payne's door, the clergyman sensed the thief's mood and didn't bother inviting him in. Instead, the pastor directed Royce to Caldwell House, 
saying he'd tried to warn Hadrian away, but had seen him go in that direction. Royce arrived at the place Payne had indicated, but he didn't find a sign, just an ivy-covered porch. Three men stood together near the open door, watching him as he tied up his horse. This Caldwell house. They ignored him. Royce leapt the guardrail onto the porch, and the men scattered. Don't mind them, a young woman said as she stepped out of the gloomy interior of the ivy-covered building. Royce turned toward her, and the face beneath the tumble of red hair went ghostly white. Her eyes and mouth opened wide, and she waved her palms like little white flags. Bugger me, she exclaimed. No, thanks, Royce said. Not in the mood, and you're not my type. She backed up, stumbling over her own feet while trying to get away. Her reaction was odd, but the absolute horror in her eyes tipped him off to trouble, and Royce slowed down. He remembered her from his days in the Black Diamond, though as little more than a face. Known as Feldspar, she'd been a low-level sweeper. A grunt in the Diamond's army, who worked in a team on one of Colnora's less productive corners. He seemed to recall her working with a guy who went by the guild's name of Glitter, who drew in a crowd with juggling and magic acts. The real sleight of hand went on behind the scenes. Being scared of him was reasonable, considering the miniature war he'd waged on the guild a few years back. But a more immediate fear radiated from her face. Surprise, even dread, would have been expected. But Feldspar exhibited an expression normally only seen in those expecting a visit from him. She radiated guilt, and Royce followed her retreat into the tavern. Hadrian. A quick look around revealed no sign of him. He might have gone to their rented room, but that seemed unlikely, given the presence of the bar. His partner should be sitting, drinking, and chatting up a pretty... Where is he? Royce asked. Felspar was still backing up, but slowly. Smart. Everyone knows you never run from a predator. It just invites an attack. Royce counted eight others in the bar. The same herd of four who'd wanted to tar the pastor sat at a table, trying their best not to be noticed, and yet they kept casting concerned glances. Two more leaned on a post, watching. The bartender and a kid who likely worked there were equally interested. I didn't know it was you. I swear to Mirabel, I had no idea. If I had known... Go on, Royce said, following her into the room. If you had known... What? She realized her mistake and closed her mouth. Dodge, one of the men near the post called. And two more at the table pushed out chairs that scraped across the stone floor. Wasn't supposed to go this way. They're just realizing the play has stopped following the script. Royce started forward and caught a fistful of red hair, jerking Felspar back and kicking the feet out from under her. The rest of the boys at the table hopped up, and the two near the post started across the room, coming at them. Stop, he ordered, and placed Alverstone's blade to her neck. 
Everyone take a seat. I'm guessing she's not the only one who can tell me what I want to know. When she's struggling to breathe through a new hole in her throat, the rest of you will be more cooperative. You little... One started to say. Sit down! Felsbar screamed. He's not screwing around, he'll do it! The room froze. Royce was the first to move. Hauling her by her hair, he dragged the woman across the floor to the open door and pulled it shut. He jerked the bolt across. There, he said. No one leaves until we have a little talk. No one sat. Sit your asses down! He doesn't ask twice! She shouted. Everyone found a chair. Okay now. Royce pulled her head back to look into her eyes. Seeing as how I know you pride yourself on sleight of hand, we're going to play a game of ten fingers. She whimpered. Ah, you remember how it's played? Good. I wasn't planning on explaining it. He dragged her to a table. Come on, I'm not the patient sort. Felspar placed a shaking hand palm down on the table. Spread your fingers. You wouldn't want to lose two at once by accident, would you? What the bloody... The fellow in the orange tunic started to ask. Shut up, she screamed. Just shut up and don't you move. Please, for the love of Mirabor, don't anyone move. She had tears in her eyes, and the table, which wasn't quite level, quivered. The uneven legs made an unnerving hollow dud-dud-dud sound. Royce set the tip of Alverstone between her right pinky and ring finger. The mirrored blade reflected the room. First question. Where is Hadrian? In the cellar, over there. Knowing the rules, she indicated with her head. Royce lifted and dropped the knife between her ring and middle finger. Second. Is he alive? Yes, just sleeping. Lucky, lucky lady. He placed the knife tip between her middle and index fingers, both of which were shaking so badly he thought she might cut herself. It'd be easy to do. Alverstone wasn't a forgiving blade. Third, why is he in the cellar? He locked himself in after realizing I'd drugged him. Drugged him? Her breath stopped for a moment. When at last it resumed, it came in stutters. Fourth, why is he still in there? He took the only key, and I was a sweeper, not a pick. I've no skills. We figured you'd be coming soon, and we didn't want to be caught breaking the door down when you arrived. But I didn't know it was you who was coming. Five. When I let go of you, are you going to run? No. Other hand. Royce told her and dragged the first clear. A stain of sweat remained on the table. She tentatively slid the other into its place. Royce placed the tip of Alverstone beside her left-hand pinky and let it twist into the wood. Six. Why not? No place I can go, that'd be far enough. You're good at this game. Royce grinned, then startled her by moving the blade in rapid succession, darting it between her next four fingers so fast it made a tiny drum roll. Felspar shuddered, her legs jumped, 
and she let out an anguished squeak. But she didn't move the hand on the table, even the breadth of a hair. Seven. Did Hadrian manage to get a room before you drugged him? Y yes He pulled the blade from the table. Get up, he ordered, and let her find her own feet. I'm going to open that door. While I do, you're going to explain to your friends why they're going to be very good boys. Royce crossed the room, moving without a sound. The cellar had a primitive two-pin lock. It took him more time to get out his picks than it did to unlock the door. Inside, he found Hadrian slumped on the floor. Tell your stocky friends to carry him to the room. Felspar nodded and gestured to Bullneck to get moving. Come on, Dodge, he objected. The guy is scrawny as a chicken. Her voice was stern. Do what he says, Brooke. There's eight of us. I don't see why we should do anything he says. Felspar glanced at Royce. Excuse me, she said, then walked over to the bar and grabbed a paring knife. She crossed back to Brooke and, without warning or comment, buried the knife in the man's thigh. He screamed and bent over, clutching his leg. Then he fell backward onto the floor, sending one of the chairs skidding. Do you see that? She bent over him, shouting and pointing at the blade in his thigh. Why'd you do that? The bartender asked. She obviously likes him, Royce explained. Felspar grabbed the knife, stood up, and wiped away tears with the back of her hand. Get Hadrian upstairs, right now. Chairs toppled as the men got up and headed for the cellar. Royce kept a careful eye as they carried Hadrian. Tuck him in nice, boys. Yes, for Meribor's sake, don't hurt him. Felspar laid the knife on the table and held her hands up again. Duster, I swear to you, I didn't know. I wasn't here when you two arrived. I heard that two guys broke up Payne's tarring, and I thought the church had sent down some muscle to watch over him. I also heard rumors of a hired assassin, but had I known you, congratulations for a well-played hand of ten fingers. You're good at it. No wonder you still have all of yours. Royce watched the procession carrying Hadrian up the stairs of the inn without incident. They looked like pallbearers at a funeral. Hadrian will be happy he saved your life by locking himself in the cellar, he told her. He's odd that way. Chapter 8 Eye of the Hurricane Christopher Fawkes hung the lantern on the brass hook dangling from the stable ceiling. Flies, woken by the light, competed with moths for the stupidest things in the world as they butted the lamp, frustrated with their inability to incinerate themselves. Knox had objected to using a lantern, but Christopher wasn't going to conduct business standing in a dark barn. No one finding the Chamberlain, High Sheriff, Pastor Payne, and the King's cousin chatting in a lighted stable, even late at night, would hardly think it noteworthy. But if the same men were caught together in the dark, anywhere, that would be suspicious. Well, what do you think? Christopher asked Chamberlain Wells. Thorbert Wells stood with arms folded, 
his long face sagging more than usual. I'm thinking that I'm still not comfortable. What more assurance do you need? Payne asked. The church is behind us, and you have the king's cousin before you. It all seems so... I don't know. Wrong, Wells said. What the church does is always right. We are the arbiters of right and wrong, the pastor assured him. Wells settled his sight on Payne with an appalled wrinkle in his brow. You shouldn't assume just because I'm native to Dulgath that I'm stupid. Yes, yes, of course, but no one thinks you're stupid. Christopher cut in before Payne could do any damage. We wouldn't be trying to enlist you if we felt that way. What you are is ambitious. A modest, content man doesn't rise from fisherman's son to castle chamberlain. We appreciate your achievements, but you lack noble blood, so you've reached your full potential. You've topped out here in Dulgarth. There's no place higher to rise to in this backwater. Nothing has changed here for centuries, and it won't if the Dulgarth line continues. The constant tap, buzz, and flutter of the flies diving at the lantern unnerved Christopher, reminding him of more nefarious insects. At the age of six, he'd been traumatized by a pair of bumblebees. While not stung, he had, nevertheless, been trapped behind a rose bush, too scared to venture forth. Night came, and Christopher still refused to move for fear they were lurking in the dark. When his brother finally dragged Christopher home, his father had beaten him for being a coward. The humiliation and subsequent taunts drove Christopher to learn the sword and shield, but although he performed adequately in court contests with live blades, the buzzing of bees still sent chills down his spine. He gave a nervous glance at the lantern. They're flies, he told himself, but still folded his arms to hide his shaking hands. Not a good way to start a legacy. He consoled himself with the knowledge that no one would remember it this way. Many important events in history occurred in less than ideal fashion, but were corrected in recollection. Had Novron really stood atop that famed hill, challenging the might of flying beasts, and afterward, had he made that grand and eloquent speech about freedom and bravery? Had the patriarch embraced Glenmorgan, and had the steward appreciatively knelt, allowing himself to take a lesser title? Christopher couldn't imagine power struggles being so amiable. When people looked back on how the landless Christopher Fawkes became Earl Christopher Fawkes of Dulgarth, no one will recall that it started in a stable, in the future, this night never happened. I was loyal to Beadle, to the Earl of Dulgarth. I'm certain you were, but Beadle is dead. Do you really think Nissa Dulgarth is capable of filling her father's shoes? Well sighed. She doesn't listen to me, doesn't listen to anyone, thinks she knows everything. If you support me, Wells, Christopher told him, together we'll transform Dulgarth, make it powerful. This place is rich but untapped. 
I'll levy taxes, conscript an army, and Noxia will train them. The Nephron Church's influence will grow. They'll help me expand Dulgoth's borders, and I'll need lords loyal to me. You'll have your own castle, then. I won't kill her, Wells announced. No one is asking you to. You have no idea what those assassins will come up with. Wells pointed at him with a pudgy finger. What if they suggest bribing the Chamberlain to knife the girl? I'm telling you now, I won't do that. We wouldn't ask you to. Christopher suspected that the Chamberlain's concern stemmed from the fear of getting caught, rather than a distaste for spilling blood. I don't trust them, Knox said, jumping in. He had his arms folded, leaning back against the stall. Christopher could have stabbed him. They were there to convince Wells to join, and this was no time for airing concerns. I have to do everything myself. Well, that's natural. They're rogues, assassins, and thieves. If they were trustworthy, we'd have cause for concern. One of them, the big one, is familiar. The sheriff went on. I've seen him before. Don't remember where. So? Knox scowled. Look, how long is this going to take them? His tone was disapproving. So was the frown on his face, but then Knox usually looked that way. The man was a thug, a northern soldier of some sort, recruited by the Earl, who'd wanted a tough, impartial hand. What he got was certainly impartial, to everything but coin. Knox was very partial to gold tenants. How should I know? Christopher said. Do you think I make a habit of this sort of thing? Damned if I have a clue about what you do. Well, see, that's where we differ, Christopher said, because I know exactly what you do, Knox. Absolutely nothing. As a high sheriff, you'd make a great sundial. Christopher didn't even know what that meant, but his mother used to say it all the time. Is that all you did today, Chris? As a fetcher of wood, you'd make a great sundial. I asked you to box up my gowns. As a valet, you'd make a great sundial. He never understood what she had against sundials. They never bothered anyone, were quiet, kept to themselves, and did what was asked of them in all kinds of weather. His mother just couldn't see their value. As for his father, he had no problem with sundials. Just with his son. Christopher doubted Knox had any greater clue about the shortcomings of sundials than himself, but the point was made. Knox's frown became a sneer. He muttered an insult under his breath, too quiet to catch, but the sentiment was unmistakable. The man was a violent bully. No one became high sheriff without a little fury in them, and Knox was testing him. Either Christopher would force the sheriff to accept a bit in his teeth, or the table would be turned. He needed to show Wells who was in charge. Besides, Knox was too comfortable in Christopher's presence. Dangerous thug or no, there were lines, boundaries that had to be maintained. For now, he'd have to work with the brute, but afterward Knox might prove to be an opportunist, and ambitious men were likely to try something stupid like blackmail.
Give a crow a carcass and it'll just want another, he thought. Knox is just like the bees, and he needs to know his place. Christopher summoned his courage. Laughing amicably, he started to turn away. Then, with a quick shove, he drove the sheriff back against the horse gate, making it clang and startling Derby. Christopher drew his sword. Knox stared, his mouth open, as Christopher stuck the tip of his blade into the leather collar of the sheriff's gamberson. Unless you plan on leaving Dulgarth soon, I'd watch your mouth. I'm the king's cousin. While that might not earn me much back in Mien, it does mean I can kill you without having to clean up the mess. Do we understand each other? Knox hesitated. He wouldn't be the man Christopher thought he was if he didn't show some backbone, but the sheriff wasn't stupid. After a run of heartbeats, he nodded. Good. Christopher withdrew his blade, noting with great relish the little nick left in Knox's leather collar. From then on, it would serve as a reminder to them both. Christopher slapped his sword back into its scabbard, trying to give the appearance he wasn't concerned, and his heart wasn't racing. He'd just taken a huge gamble and won. This wasn't a time to show concern. Can I ask a question? Wells asked. The uncertainty in the man's voice pleased Christopher. His point had been made, and the proper respect was being paid. Yes, of course, Chamberlain. What do you want to know? What about the painter? Sherwood Stowe. What about him? He and Lady Dulgath have been seeing each other every morning for months, and he has a... a reputation, doesn't he? What if this Sherwood were to... well, you know? Christopher was mystified by Wells. The man who had clawed his way to the position of Chamberlain was squeamish about so many things. If Bishop Parnell hadn't insisted they acquire him, to have an inside man to help cover their tracks, he never would have given him a second thought. It still takes nine months to make a baby, even if he was, you knowing her. While I'm patient, I'm not that patient. But expectant mothers become more reclusive. Wells wrung his hands. They don't go out. They stay in their chambers under constant observation from fussing midwives. That might make killing her impossible. If the rogues you hired feel they have a good thing here, they might drag their feet. You're paying their expenses, right? I'm not paying them anything, Christopher said. Once they tell us what we need to know, I'm shipping them off to Manzant. What? Knox asked. Why not just kill them? Christopher offered up a wry smile. Killing is such a waste. Ambrose Moore pays good money for... But living men tell tales, the sheriff said. Yes, precisely, Wells said, aghast. What if the king should speak to them? Do you honestly think Vincent will take a trip to a salt mine to chat with two assassins? Christopher's patience was wearing thin, and it was difficult not to show his frustration. No, Wells admitted. But what if he sends constables there? Or what if they escape? No one 
ever escapes from Manzant, Christopher replied. And the constables? I'm not sure I want to take that risk, Wells muttered with a grimace. If they're dead, no one can talk to them, Knock said, ever. Look, Christopher sighed. He hated the slow and the frightened. They could never understand the bold steps one needed to stride to reach greatness. I've already made the arrangements. Knock stiffened. Unmake them. We need corpses to blame for the murder, not walking, talking men. And how do we explain two corpses before Nissa is dead? Christopher asked. Kind of hard for dead men to do the deed. Or are you saying we should wait until after she is killed? That creates its own problems. First, they'll want to be paid as soon as their part is done. The payment I don't have, by the way. And second, they're not going to hang around afterward. You'll have to track them down and pray they don't say anything before you find them. With my plan, we can scoop them up as soon as they give us the information. No one has to know when they were sent to Man's End. All that's important is that they were arrested, and justice carried out before a formal investigation starts. But corpses decay quickly, especially in this climate, so you'll have to kill them after Nissi is dead. Let me worry about when, where, and how the two meet their end. I'll hold up my end. Knox snapped. Wells was nodding. I've watched Knox for years, and I trust him in such matters. I'm not saying anything against you, Lord Fox, but if my opinion means anything, I'd be more comfortable with the thieves dead rather than locked up. Christopher ran a hand over his face, sighing again. Okay, okay, fine. We'll do it your way. And Sherwood? Wells asked. Christopher raised his hand, patting the air between them. Trust me. Stowe isn't winning any points with Nyssa. Other noble ladies have succumbed to- It's not a matter of her being noble when he's not. It's that he's human and she's- Novran knows what. Cold as frost in a frozen lake. Point is, he's not making headway and isn't likely to. But if it would make you more comfortable, I could make plans for Sherwood of the endless canvas and ensure that things are handled as expediently as possible. The Chamberlain didn't answer. He took a breath and ran a tongue along his lips as his eyes shifted from one face to the next. Now was the time for Christopher to set the hook. You see, you've already proven your value, and great things come to people who show such potential. So, Chamberlain, what do you say? Shall we consider you on board? Do you want to continue your rise and expand your horizons? He stared hard at Wells. They all did. The Chamberlain's eyes darted around once more. Christopher rested his hand on the hilt of his sword as a gentle reminder that Wells might already be in too deep. He wasn't, of course. The matter could still be word against word, but his little demonstration with Knox was bound to pay dividends. All right, Wells nodded. What do you want me to do? Nothing at the moment. We'll wait to see what the consultants have to say. And Sherwood? 
Christopher just smiled. Sherwood put a breakfast biscuit in his mouth. Holding it with his teeth, he shifted the painting to his left hand and opened the study door with his right. Another lovely Maranon morning cast spears of sunlight across the floor, over the desk, and up the wall. There was something magical about early light. Late evening, too. Sherwood had a fondness for both dawn and dusk. Fairy tale said that these between times, the not-quite-day and not-quite-night periods, were when the doors between the world of men and the worlds of the fantastical opened. These were the enchanted minutes when wonderful and dreadful things occurred. Sherwood wasn't one for superstition, myths, or legends, but he admitted to the truth of the between times being enchanting. The light was always more golden, its angle casting dramatic shadows, and everything came alive with color. That morning should have been wonderful, but instead, Sherwood was greeted by the dreadful. At first, he didn't know what he saw. Something strange was in the center of the room, lying on the floor in a twisted, unnatural way. As usual, Sherwood had arrived early. Lady Dulgarth, always punctual, wouldn't be there for half an hour. He had intended to finish the last of his breakfast as he oiled his paints. He hadn't left much time to set up. He'd lingered in bed, suffering a mild attack of depression. The morose feelings came over him often. Most times they were fleeting and easy to weather, yet occasionally a random hurricane hit. The world turned dark, and rain fell in unimaginable torrents. During those times, death by drowning was all but certain, and quite often welcomed. What had been fine the day before became too much to bear when the depression hurricane descended, and any memory of happiness was dismissed as a delusion. He was worthless. His work was atrocious, his life a miserable failure, and obviously a land would be a better place without him breathing the air. While the attacks came without warning or trigger, that didn't mean they couldn't be provoked. Given that he had begun that morning experiencing a sprinkle, what lay on the floor of the private study threatened to bring the thunder. For a brief instant, Sherwood thought he saw a person, a horribly broken and mutilated corpse. Then he realized he wasn't seeing flesh and bone, but splintered wood. He was looking at his easel, shattered in a dismembered sculpture of wanton destruction. Where still were his paints? Bottles had been thrown, leaving brilliant bursts of colors on the walls and glass shards on the floor. A yellow ochre starburst had exploded near the window, looking like a second sun. A splatter of vermilion made the wall appear to bleed. A fan of umber had sprayed the wooden floorboards. Sherwood always left his tools in the study. The room was never used and always closed. It made no sense to carry everything up to his room and then back down every morning. Early on, he left the canvas, too but grew paranoid as the image of Lady Dulgarth took form. He couldn't afford to let anyone see it until finished. Maybe not even then.
He had taken the painting with him the night before and slept with it beside his bed, breathing oil fumes all night. One of the things his despair latched onto and labeled as stupid. He no longer felt that way. His depression couldn't care less about such crumbs when a banquet lay before it. The easel had belonged to Yardley, who inherited it from his master, who very likely got it from his. No telling how old the thing was, easily a hundred or more years. And every inch was covered in paint, with some places showing a build-up of layers, the sediment of decades. The screw that held the crossbar had long been cracked. So had the crossbar and the back leg. This had always caused the canvas frame to wobble, and the tray never was tight enough to suit Sherwood, especially not when it held a vial of ultramarine. He'd cursed the thing countless times, and considered having a new one made. But seeing it on the floor, broken into a dozen pieces with bright, jagged splinters, he felt he might vomit. This was the easel he'd learned on. This was the platform from which he discovered how to properly see the world. He'd taken it everywhere, sleeping with it on ships and in winter camps on high mountains. It had leaned against walls while he bedded ladies of varying ranks, and he'd whispered his fears to it more than once after coming home drunk. Almost as tragic as the easel were the pigments. Seventy-five, or maybe as much as a hundred gold tenants decorated the walls of the study. No blue burst, though. He'd thrown away the vial of beyond the sea all on his own. He still hoped to catch the man, Royce Melbourne, and ask for it back. If Melbourne had half a brain, he'd deny knowing anything about it, but Lehman rarely understood the value of paint. That one vial was worth a dozen easels and everything presently on the walls. Sherwood felt the hurricane build as he saw his brushes also vandalized. Each one had been snapped in half, and some of them had the hairs pulled out or mashed with so much force that the ferrule had split. The painting was safe, but what good was it now that he had no hope of finishing it? What happened? Sherwood turned to see Lady Dulgarth standing in the doorway. How long have I been standing here? He couldn't talk, and only pointed at the disaster, shaking his head. Who did this? A voice rose in volume and anxiety. Did you see? Were you here? He continued to shake his head. He felt like crying, afraid he might. Already his face was hot, his eyesight misting. He blinked fast to hold everything back. You there, Stephen, she called out the door. Run and fetch the sheriff. Then tell everyone in this castle to assemble in the great hall. Do you understand? Everyone. Her voice was angry, violent. Sherwood picked up a brass candle tray and bent to sweep up as much of the pigment as he could, I don't understand why anyone would do this. His voice was shaking, his words slurring. He didn't care. Stealing is understandable, but, I mean, this is worth a lot of money. Why destroy it? 
What have I done? I'll have it replaced, Lady Dulgarth said. You can't. The time, the cost, it's... He actually didn't know how much. Thinking about the totality of the loss was like asking how high was up. Doesn't matter. You are my guest. I consider it my failure. I'm responsible, and I'll make it right again. She took a step, and glass crunched under her shoe. She froze and looked around, frightened. The painting, is it... She saw the covered square of canvas resting beside the leg of the desk, and her shoulders relaxed. They didn't touch it. Wasn't here. I took it to my room last night. She offered him an encouraging smile. Well, that's something, isn't it? Yes, that's something. She continued to stare at the painting. He couldn't stop her from looking at it, all she had to do was take two steps and lift the cover. He was certain she would. But a moment later, Sheriff Knox and Chamberlain Wells entered. I want to know who did this, Lady Dulgarth demanded. Knox took a moment to look around thoughtfully, finally focusing on the door. That might be difficult. Why is that? No lock. Anyone can get in here. Could be anyone in the castle, then, Wells said. Not just the castle, Knox corrected. Virtually anyone could have come in last night. I pulled Throm and Freewin from the gate to guard your bedroom door. We were shorthanded on the wall. You really need to let me recruit more guards. Burying your head in the sand must stop. Your life is in danger. Whoever did this wasn't trying to kill me. But someone is. Dulgarth doesn't need a standing army. This is a close community, and I won't allow you, or anyone else, to destroy that. I'm just asking for a few more guards to protect you. I don't need protection. I need to know who did this. Find out. Go! She turned and faced the Chamberlain. I've ordered the staff to be gathered. See to it that they are everyone. I'll speak to them shortly. I want this solved, and I want it solved today. As you wish, my lady. She closed the door after they left and crossed the room to Sherwood, who was still struggling to gather as much pigment as he could. She found an empty cup, a decorative stein from a high shelf, and helped him. I'm so very sorry this happened, Sherwood. He paused and looked up. You know my name? Of course I do. You've never said it before. She shrugged. Is that significant? To me it is. She looked at him, curious, forehead furrowed. Those elegant brows creeping closer together. He could see it again, that vision through her eyes, an image beyond the window, a hazy shadow, like someone peering out through frosted glass. Sherwood had struggled his whole life to see beyond the veil that people hung over themselves. They wore clothes to hide their truths, 
the bravado of cowards, the humility of the courageous, the indifference of caretakers, and the sins of the pious. He scraped back veneers to find bone. These were the buried secrets that unlocked the sincerity of his work. Understanding, seeing what others couldn't or refused to, allowed Sherwood to put into paint the same underlying honesty that made his portraits so lifelike. Everyone kept secrets, most simple and easy to spot. Wells was practically naked. The man was a glutton. Knox was a barely restrained animal at heart. Fawkes was a different matter. Something cold dwelled within his chest and throbbed rather than beat. Sherwood wouldn't trust Fawkes to piss every day. Nissa Dulgarth was nothing like them, or any woman he had ever seen. She had a secret, to be sure, but she'd buried it deeper than he thought possible, beneath the dirt, below gravel, under shale and heavy rock. All he ever saw were these fleeting glimpses of shadows peeking out the windows of her eyes, little cupped hands pressed against the glass, a lonely soul trapped in an empty house. Seeing how she looked at him then, that concern in her face, made the clouds part. He stood in the eye of the hurricane. The world blew around him, dark and terrible, but he was safe. He was with her under a single shaft of sunlight, and everything was perfect. The religious spoke of divine moments of grace, when whatever gods they worshipped paused from their daily routine to stretch out a finger and touch them. Lives were changed, profits made, and nations shifted when that happened. Sherwood felt touched at that moment, rocked to his core and then some. For a time, he thought he might be falling in love with Nissa Dulgarth, but love was no longer a word large enough to encompass everything he felt. Mothers loved their children. Husbands loved wives. What Sherwood felt was more akin to worship. A prophet was born among the broken glass and scattered pigment. And while nations didn't tremble, they should have. Chapter 9 Theft of Swords Hadrian awoke to the song of birds and a cool breeze. A window was open, the only movement the thin curtains rippling with the wind. He lay on something soft, a pillow beneath his head. Somewhere distant, he heard muffled clinks of glasses, voices, laughter, and the drag of chairs on a wooden floor. Sounds like a tavern. The thought drifted in with the gentle breeze and whistling whoops and chortles of a thrush. Then he remembered. He sat up, expecting a nasty headache, something similar to the morning after a drunken pass-out. He had figured his head would be throbbing, his eyes dry and reluctant to shift. Surprisingly, he felt okay. Good even. His mouth might have been the last resting place for a deceased chipmunk, but other than that, he was fine. 
Hadrian had no idea where he was. Along with his morning after apprehension, he'd expected to open his eyes on a different scene, if he ever managed to open them again. He was indeed on a bed. A nice bed. Thick mattress, soft blanket, linen sheets, feather pillow. No stains. The rest of the room was just as charming. Big, dark wood beams supported the ceiling. A rug stretched across the floor. Drapes framed a solitary window, where a bright light shone on a table and an upholstered chair. In the chair sat a familiar shadow. They drugged me, Hadrian said. She, she drugged me. I know, Royce replied. He was staring out the window, looking down. Hadrian began taking inventory with his hands. No pain, cuts or bruises. No tar or feathers. He was in his clothes, shoes still on. Cloak missing. No, not missing. It lay across the foot of the bed. He looked at his hands and remembered fumbling with a key. Did I... did I manage to lock the door? Yes, you did. Royce threw his booted feet on the table. I had to pick it to get you out. He pushed back his hood, revealing a confused expression. What? Royce shrugged. You're impressed I did that, aren't you? That I thought to lock myself in. Be more impressed if you hadn't allowed a pretty girl to drug you. A pretty girl? How'd you know? And how did you find me? Hadrian stood up, continuing to test himself, but his balance was fine. Whatever she'd given him was friendlier than rye whiskey. Royce didn't answer. Do you understand the meaning of the word thorough? Hadrian's stomach sank. Oh, Royce, you didn't... Royce cocked an eyebrow. He didn't say anything for a moment, and his sight shifted to the floor in thought. Once more he displayed a puzzled expression. He shook his head. No, I didn't. Not even the woman. I know her. She's from the Diamond, so she's not an idiot. Not stupid enough to seek retribution, and she was adequately cooperative. Really? Adrian wondered if he were dreaming, or perhaps dead. He should have been lying on a lonely road outside of town, his body burned with tar and covered in feathers, not waking up in a cozy private room. Roy saved me, but didn't kill anyone. Apparently the world has forgotten how life works. Spotting a wash basin on a dresser, Hadrian went over and splashed water on his face, then dried himself with a folded towel. He turned around, and his hands went to his sides. Where are my swords? No idea. Where'd you leave them? What do you mean, where'd I leave them? I... I dropped them, and I took off the spadone before that. They were all near the bar. Didn't you notice they were missing? Hadrian asked. Royce nodded. You didn't think to get them back? Royce scowled. Don't see why I have to do everything. Need a hand when you piss, too. Hadrian threw the towel at him. Royce dipped his head and the cloth flew out the window.
How late is it? Hadrian grabbed his cloak and hung it over his arm. Mid-morning. You had a good rest. We missed breakfast. Excuse me while I get my things. Royce stood up. Hadrian stopped him. No, stay here. My turn. Heading down the stairs, Hadrian noticed that the barroom was different. Morning light flooded in through the windows, as well as the door, all of which were open to admit the breeze to the otherwise stuffy room. Gill was the first person Hadrian saw. The kid wore a stained apron, and was rushing to clear tables where recent breakfast patrons had left plates and cups. Fearful that the ones who had taken his weapons would be long gone, Hadrian was pleased to see Bullneck and his orange-clad partner at the same table where they'd sat the night before. Wagner was still there too, behind the bar, the same towel hanging over his shoulder. With his attentive publican eyes, Wagner was the first to spot Hadrian. Concern flooded the barkeep's face as he glanced toward Bolneck's table to check if they'd seen him. Hadrian recognized two other faces at a different table, not the men that had held up the post, not Brett and Lamond, but these men had been there. Scarlet wasn't. Getting up late had the benefit of a sparse crowd. Decent folk had come and gone. Aside from the ones he intended to speak with, Hadrian saw only one table of bystanders. A small family near the door was finishing up their porridge. The boy tilted the bowl to his lips, and his mother and father scolded him for bad manners. A girl in pigtails sat on a chair too big for her, swinging her legs. Hadrian walked past Bullneck and company to the bar, where Wagner pretended not to see him. I want my swords back. What swords are those, friend? Wagner smiled and pulled a towel from his shoulder to wipe dry hands, or perhaps wrap around knuckles. Hadrian smiled back. He'd hoped it would go this way. While he didn't normally seek revenge, he didn't appreciate being taken for an idiot. Besides, a fight ends when one person hits the floor. This fight hadn't ended. It hadn't even started. But it was about to. Seriously? Hadrian turned from Wagner and walked over to the family. Fishing out a silver tenant, he clapped it on their table. This breakfast and the next one is on me. The man stared at him, looked at his wife and kids, and then asked, Why is that? Because I'm going to ask you to take your family and leave. Right now. The man narrowed his eyes and glanced at his family once more. Again, I have to ask why. Because none of you were here last night when I was drugged and robbed. The man didn't look as shocked as Hadrian expected. When the man leaned over and looked at Bullneck, Hadrian realized the fellow wasn't as innocent as he'd first appeared. Hadrian had spoken loud enough for everyone in the room to hear, and Bullneck and his orange-clad pal were grinning. The kid's mother was already up from her seat. She scooped up the coin and, without waiting for her husband, led her children out the door. Hadrian waited. I think I'll stick around. 
the father told him, an amused, almost eager glee in his eyes. Hadrian nodded, then closed the front door to Caldwell House, sliding the bolt across. Turning back to the room, he saw that Bullneck and his friend had risen to their feet. You, in the orange, Hadrian said. What's your name? The man adjusted his belt and rolled his shoulders, making a show of loosening up. Mostly, I'm called bad news for bloody strangers. He laughed. Bullneck laughed with him. The rest smiled. But you can call me Clem, for short. I'm telling you so you'll know who laid you low. Uh-huh, Hadrian nodded. Well, Clem, you're gonna want to take that nice tunic off. Red and orange clash, and bloodstains are difficult to get out. Clem laughed again. No mirth in it, but rather the sound of cruelty being fed. Don't worry, I think I can avoid getting your blood on me. No blades. Bullneck said, punching one fist into a palm. And no creepy friend. He glanced toward the stairs to make sure that was true. And no woman to protect you. Woman to protect me? Isn't she the one who drugged me? Adrian couldn't figure out what had happened after he passed out. Bullneck mentioned a creepy friend, but if Alverstone had come out to play... There would have been a lot of blood and more than a few bodies. You're in for some serious trouble, Struth, yes, I can tell you that. Bullneck nodded his sincerity. We's gonna pound you to flour, boy. We surely are gonna mash you down to what? You gonna be nothing but paste? You lads wanna take this outside? Wagner asked. I'd be happy not to do this at all, Hadrian replied. Just return my swords and we can all have breakfast. Breakfast is over, tosser, Bullneck declared. He was cracking his knuckles and smiling so wide his gums were showing. Hadrian ignored him and stared at Wagner for an answer. Don't know anything about no swords, mister. I think it'll come back to you after a few of these nice tables are broken. Hadrian moved to the middle of the room, the most indefensible place he could find. He hated starting fights and didn't think he'd have to this time. Presenting himself as an easy target was like laying out stake in front of hungry dogs. These men had wanted to beat him senseless since he'd arrived. Bullneck came at him first. He'd gone to the trouble of shoving Clem aside so he could have the first strike. Hadrian intended to indulge Bull, even though he had nothing against the man. There had been a lot of bulls in Hadrian's life. Big, loud, demanding men who expected respect based on size and volume alone. A few could fight, but most never bothered to learn, because they assumed superior bulk was all that combat required. Bull was the latter. Not the sort to use weapons, he probably had a fondness for fists and chokeholds. Hadrian wasn't going to make his point with Bull because he disliked his brand of fist-first thuggery, but because Bull looked like he could take a beating. The best way to change minds was to break the biggest bones first. Bull took three lumbering steps, 
punching out with his big left fist and a wide roundhouse swing. A lefty? Hadrian had already guessed that from how he had stood with his right leg forward. Now he knew for certain because the swing wasn't a jab or a feint. The big boy had put everything into that punch, expecting to end the fight right there. Hadrian turned sideways and guided the blow away from his face with his left hand. He caught Bull's wrist and twisted it slightly to roll the elbow up. Then, bracing with his right, Hadrian snapped his opponent's arm backward at the elbow. Pop. Hadrian heard as well as felt the joint give. This was followed by a bellowing scream as Bull stumbled forward. Hadrian let momentum do the work, and Bull slammed into the table still laden with porridge. Bulls shot into the air, wooden legs severed, and the table collapsed as Bull crashed into it. Clem took a step forward as Hadrian backed up. Wait. Hadrian held up his palms and then pointed at the debris. You might want to pick up one of those table legs. Makes a good club, don't you think? This made Clem pause for a moment. Then he glanced at the floor where Bull was rolling in the spilled porridge, whimpering and clutching his twisted arm. Hadrian hoped that if Clem took a moment to reflect upon the torment of his friend, it'd be enough to make Clem and everyone else think twice. It didn't. But Clem did take Hadrian's advice and picked up a broken table leg. The first swing was wide. Hadrian took a step back anyway. The second, a backswing, was on target, and Hadrian ducked, taking another step back. Then another. By the time they reached the oak post where Brett and his friend had been talking the night before, Clem was getting tired. Swinging that table leg as hard as he could was difficult, and sweat glistened on the orange-clad man's forehead. Hadrian waited for the next swing, and this time he stepped inside and guided his opponent's hand. Easy to tell that the loud thwack was Clem's hand rather than the table leg hitting the post. The man dropped the club with a cry and jerked his hands to his chest in agony. Regardless of what else it might have done, the post had skinned Clem's knuckles. Blood smeared the front of his nice tunic, leaving two faint streaks. Adrian thought this would end the fight, but the father, who had remained behind, had opened the door and Brett, followed by two others, entered. Apparently the wife was no more innocent than the husband. All three charged Hadrian, arms spread for a waist-high tackle. Hadrian stepped behind the pillar, ruining everything. He also picked up the table leg. Brett went right, the family man went left. The third didn't know what to do, so he just stopped in front of the post. They hadn't seen Hadrian pick up the leg, and Brett still hadn't seen it when Hadrian clubbed him in the forehead. Brett's mouth made a wide, oh, as his head snapped back and his legs crumbled under him. The father of two had intended to grab Hadrian's arms from behind, but Hadrian was standing too close to the post for him to easily get both arms around. Didn't matter. Hadrian brought the table leg back, punching into the man's stomach with the splintered end. The jagged teeth cut through his shirt. Porridge Dad let out a whoosh of air, folded, and collapsed. By this time, Wagner had come around the bar to join the fray, and Clem had recovered enough to have a second go. 
Hadrian dodged around the post and moved back to the center of the room, where Bull was howling on the floor, lying on his back, his knees up as he rocked from side to side. Hadrian snatched another loose table leg off the ground. The remaining three men, Gil abstained from the fight, choosing instead to watch from the cellar stairs, came at Hadrian more slowly this time. They fanned out, trying to circle him. Wagner wrapped the towel around his knuckles, and the three shuffled forward, jabbing and swiping, some with open hands and outstretched fingers. Maybe they were trying to catch hold of him. Hadrian wasn't sure, but they looked ridiculous, like children. None had any training, much less experience. They drugged me, stole from me, might have killed me. The last one was unlikely, but he needed something. He was starting to feel like he was beating up on kids. When fighting skilled soldiers, Hadrian could anticipate moves. These people were erratic and foolish beyond prediction. They were so inept, he might accidentally kill one. Not having his swords was a benefit. These imbeciles would probably impale themselves. Hadrian cracked Brett on his reaching wrist. He howled and fell back. Thinking this provided an opening and not realizing Hadrian now had two clubs and was proficient with both hands, Clem lunged in. The second table leg caught him across the bridge of his nose. Blood erupted. Hadrian swung at Wagner then, who managed to jump out of the way but lost his balance in the effort and fell, slamming into another table, cracking it badly as he went down. Stop! Scarlet Dodge stood in the doorway. She wore the same fetching patchwork gown which looked out of place in the morning light. In her arms, she clutched three familiar swords. Damn it, Brett, I told you to stall him, not fight him. She threw the three blades on the floor, where they clattered on the stone. Hey, Hadrian yelled. What? You threw my friends on the floor? His swords are worth more, Royce said. He appeared from the shadows at the bottom of the stairs, hood up, arms folded. No one had seen him come down. Everyone still able to shifted away. Royce, I thought I told you to wait upstairs, Hadrian said. You took too long. I got bored. What are you doing? Wagner asked Scarlet as he got to his feet. Declawing the cat, remember? Yeah, that was last night, and before I knew, this cat doesn't need claws to kill you. We almost had him, Dodge, Porridge Dad said, still bent over and rubbing his stomach. He was getting tired. He's had more sleep than any of you, trust me. I'd rather have gotten drunk and suffered a hangover. You want to explain what happened last night? Hadrian asked. Not really. I'm afraid we're going to insist, Royce said, and began to slowly cross the debris-ridden room. Miss Dodge, is it? It sure as bloody mar isn't, missus. Watch your mouth, girl, Wagner snapped. No need to blaspheme our lord's name. Sorry, but he brings out the worst in me. I think Miss Dodge needs to take a walk with us, Royce said. She ain't going nowhere with you two. This was said by Bullneck, who still lay on the floor cradling his wounded arm. 
I'm afraid she is, Roy said. He drew out a folded parchment and held it up. Can you read? She stared at the parchment. Shock spread across her face. You're... You're... Scarlet couldn't manage to say the word. Royal constables, Roy said. Keepers of the peace. That's not possible. You were in the diamond for Meribor's sake. You think I whipped this up last night? Sure, why not? Ask Sheriff Knox or Chamberlain Wells. You can even talk to Lord Fox. He's the king's cousin. He ought to know if the king's signature is authentic. Wagner growled. I don't care who you say you are. She's not going anywhere with you two. It's okay, Wag, Scarlet said. It ain't. It is. These two ain't no royal constables. Scarlet sighed. If it's true, they could kill me in the name of the king, and Sheriff Knox would buy them drinks. And if it isn't, they can still murder me and disappear. If they wanted me dead, you'd already be picking out my box. As she said this, Hadrian buckled on his two swords, then hefted the big one onto his back. Besides, how exactly do you plan to stop them? She pointed toward Hadrian. He pummeled all of you black and blue with two table legs. What do you think he'll do with those? And don't forget what I told you last night about him. This time Scarlet pointed at Royce. That's why I'm worried, the bartender said. I wouldn't worry about her, Royce told him. From what I've seen of the people in this town, I'd vote Miss Dodge most likely to survive. Scarlet led them toward the door. Hadrian paused and looked back at Clem, whose nose had bled like a spigot down the front of his tunic. Cold water, he said. Don't use hot, believe me. Hot water will set the stain, and it'll be ruined. He shook his head. What a shame. That was a nice tunic. The three of them followed the cobbled street downhill toward the river. Morning light shone blindingly bright on a two-story, whitewashed, clabbered building with a stone foundation and a big water wheel. The wheel creaked and trickled as it slowly turned. Royce, you hungry? Adrian asked. A little, Royce replied. He walked behind the other two, forcing Hadrian to peer back over his shoulder. I didn't get dinner last night. He stared at Scarlet. What? You know the town. Where can we go? Hadrian asked. We? She laughed, but there was nervousness in it. Scarlet glanced back at Royce before answering Hadrian. I drugged you last night. And you want to eat with me today? Sure, just don't do it again. If you do... Hadrian jerked his head toward Royce. He'll probably kill you. Probably? Royce said. So, where can we find food? Hadrian asked again. Ah... Uh... Scarlet hesitated. Someplace isolated, Royce said. I don't like crowds. He's not kidding. Adrian said, and as far as Royce is concerned, two is a crowd. We can go back to my place. I have a slab of pork and some eggs I can cook up. Wonderful. Adrian smiled at her. Is he always like this?
Scarlet asked Royce. He nodded. Annoying, isn't it? Scarlet Dodge lived in a small, ivy-bedecked stone cottage with a dirt floor, a yellow thatched roof, and a bright red door. Chimneys stood at both ends, with the ubiquitous ivy hiding everything else. Inside were two rooms, a clean kitchen and a disaster of a bedroom. Blankets, sheets, under-tunics, kirtles, a bright red cloak, and red gloves lay scattered across the rush-covered floor. There could have been a fight in her bedroom more violent than the one held at Caldwell House. A spinning wheel rested in the corner, tilted against the wall. A line of thread coming off the drive wheel was tangled around the bobbin in a massive wad. A nearby basket of unspun wool was tipped over, the contents looking like foam spilling out of a beer keg. In contrast, the kitchen sparkled. Wood was stacked neatly near the fire, as were a series of six copper pots. Not a single one showed even a hint of soot. On three rows of shelves, ceramic and wooden bowls grouped by type descended in size from left to right. Plates and cups were proudly displayed, herbs hung in neat bundles from the rafters, and a series of sharp knives were stabbed into the support beam near a clutter-free table. Scarlet paused, looking at her home with an embarrassed grimace, then shrugged. I like to cook. The fire was still smoldering in her hearth. She added wood, pumped it with a bellows until a flame caught, then went to a barrel. Popping the lid off, she hooked out a slab of pork. Scarlet clapped it onto the table, jerked a knife off the post, and began slicing a section free. Well? Hadrian asked, taking a seat on one of only two stools in the house. Royce remained standing. He walked around studying the place. Well, what? Scarlet replied, expertly trimming fat. She handled a knife well, holding it lightly with a finger on the blade and using the whole edge. Hadrian had never been a butcher, but he knew when someone was at ease with sharp things. While Scarlet probably hadn't been a butcher either, she certainly could have applied for the job. Why did you ruin a perfectly good glass of rye whiskey that might have led to a sleepless night for the both of us? Scarlet paused. She smiled, then shook her head, clearing the expression. You make it hard to hate you. Really, Roy said. Funny, I have the opposite problem. You mentioned something about us, the church, and Bishop Parnell. Yeah, well, I may have been mistaken about that. It was before I saw... Royce, is it? Pleased to meet you. He nodded. Dodge. Scarlet. Scarlet, Dodge. Scarlet. Seriously, that's the best you could come up with. She scowled. Hey, that's my real name, thank you very much. Royce shrugged. Hadrian had one heel hooked on the crossbar of the stool and the other on the floor. He considered tapping his toe, but figured they'd still ignore him. Instead, he said, Can we get back to the subject at hand, please? Which was? Scarlet asked. Hello, 
We were talking about why you drugged me. Oh, that. She waved a hand dismissively. Definitely a mistake. I thought you were hired muscle, watching over Pastor Pain in the ass. I had no idea that. Focusing on Royce, her eyes became serious. How much are they paying? How much is who paying for what? Royce asked. How much is the church paying you to kill Lady Dulgarth? If I make you a better offer to leave, you'd be okay with that, right? You're that wealthy. No, but I'll take up a collection. If everyone pitches in, and they will, we're not here to kill Nissa Dulgarth, Hadrian said. Scarlet rolled her eyes. We aren't. She ignored him and continued to address Royce. What do you say? Let me get this straight. You'll pay us not to kill Lady Dulgarth. Royce was nodding. I think I might be able to do that. If you can- Royce! Hadrian slapped the table. What? Stop it! She is going to pay us not to kill Lady Dulgarth. That's easy money. It's dishonest. Royce folded his arms and glared. Wait. Scarlet looked from Royce to Hadrian. You really aren't here to kill her? Royce scowled at Hadrian. You ruin everything. He turned back to Scarlet. Up to a minute ago, I thought you were part of it. Why else would a black diamond be hiding in Breckendale? She shook her head. I'm not hiding. Not really. And I'm not in the black diamond. Not anymore. Freelancing. She shook her head. Straight. Royce looked skeptical. Scarlet appeared confused. If you're not here to kill her, then? I don't understand. Why are you here? We were hired to help protect her, Hadrian explained. Ha! Scarlet followed the outburst with mock laughter. She dumped strips of pork into a pan, then hooked it to a blackened rafter chain and let it dangle over the fire before adding another small log. And exactly who hired you? The Nephron Church. Aha! Uh -huh. Scarlet turned to Hadrian with a there-you-have-it look. Aha uh -huh, what? Hadrian said. The church is using you to help kill her. Churches don't kill people, Hadrian told her. They burn incense, collect tithes, and mutter words in forgotten languages. They don't put out contracts on high-ranking nobles. Scarlet and Royce exchanged glances, then both shook their heads. Royce hooked a thumb in Hadrian's direction. See what I have to put up with? Adorable, Scarlet said. Look! Hadrian went on, certain they just didn't understand. Lady Dulgarth has had a number of attempts made on her life, and everyone insists a professional has been hired. But Lady Dulgarth isn't acknowledging there's a problem. So the church is concerned for her welfare, and hired us as consultants. Royce is an authority when it comes to assassinations. You don't say, Scarlet said with a bemused expression. That's why we were picked. He knows how such things are done. He's just so cute, 
Scarlet said to Royce, shaking her head in disbelief. Why is that hard to believe? Hadrian asked. Is he serious? Is any of that even remotely true? She asked Royce, while cracking an egg into the same pan where the pork was starting to sizzle. Yes, and mostly. It's not that hard to understand. Hadrian unfolded his arms so he could use his hands to better explain. Royce is going to review the situation, then report on how a professional might go about killing Lady Dulgarth so they can do exactly what he says, Scarlet said. What? Hadrian paused a moment to rerun the idea. No. If you are really telling the truth, and I'm starting to think you might be, that's exactly what they're doing, Scarlet told him. Hadrian shook his head, pushed up from the stool, and planted both feet squarely on the floor. The two of you are so distrustful. You look at a black and white cow and see grey. No, you see a conspiracy to poison farmers with milk. Or, Scarlet smiled at him, we look at a conspiracy and see a conspiracy. If the church wanted Lady Dulgoth dead, why not just hire us to kill her? Hadrian asked. Granted, that would seem easier, but this is the church we're talking about. They have a tendency to overbuild. Have you seen their cathedrals? She cracked another egg. Think for a second. Let's say they did that, and Lady Dulgarth was killed. Do you suppose the king will just shrug and say, Oh, well. No, he'll send real constables. She sprinkled some pepper on the eggs. They aren't going to risk getting caught up in this. They're trying to spread their tentacles here in Marinon and doing a damn fine job of it. So what do they do? They find a couple of non-affiliated cutthroats and get them down here. After they carry out the execution themselves, the cutthroats are arrested for it. Everyone knows they're the killers. The murder happened exactly the way they said it would. Now the conspirators have their scapegoats, who they'll execute before the king's constables arrive. There's no need for further investigation, because justice has been done. The best part is, you two aren't part of any guild, right? She looked at Royce, who nodded. So they don't have to worry about any retribution. Lady's dead, killer's executed, king is satisfied, justice done. Everyone's happy. Scarlet used a wooden spatula to flip the meat. The little cottage was filling with the wonderful scent of cooking pork. Hadrian wasn't certain if the smell of food had anything to do with it, but he was growing sympathetic to her points. He turned to Royce. She could have something here. Royce had wandered to the bedroom side of the cottage. He held a red glove in his hand, looking it over and not saying anything. Royce? He dropped the glove on the bed. What? Royce had the hearing of a bat. He could practically listen in on what was happening tomorrow. After dropping the glove, he found a basket of rushes interesting. You knew? Hadrian asked. Royce shrugged. I suspected. Hiring a consulting assassin is a bit odd, don't you think? Then why are we here? 
Twenty gold tenants and expenses. The coffers were dry. We needed something. So we either took this or started thieving outright, and I knew how well that would go over with you. Twenty? Gold? Scarlet's mouth hung open. Damn, glad I don't have to outbid them. Okay, sure, but we can't spend gold if we're dead. And I have no intention of being framed. So what do we do now? Same as before. Nothing's changed. Really? Sure. We still need the money, and Miss Dodge might be wrong. About them framing us, at least. Even if she isn't, they're paying to hear how I would do this job. And that's exactly what I'm going to tell them. They can try to follow my plan if they want, but even the best in the diamond couldn't mimic my methods. The chances of them succeeding are as unlikely as someone stealing from the Crown Tower. Scarlet was loading plates with meat and eggs when she turned with surprise. That was you? Figure of speech, Royce said. Oh, sure, of course. Scarlet continued to stare. Before I tell them anything, I want to know as much as I can about what's going on. He glared at Scarlet. Like why an ex-diamond would be willing to take up a collection, or why villagers would pay to save their ruler. Lady Dulgarth is special. Scarlet set the plates on the table. Yeah, you mentioned that, but special how? Hadrian asked. The Dulgarths have always treated their people well. They really care about us. No offense to your humble abode, Roy said, but yesterday Hadrian and I were in the ladies' stables. They're much nicer than this. Seems she cares more for her horses than she does her people. Scarlet shook her head as she pulled a loaf of brown bread out of a box and set it on the table. That's unreasonable. Dulgarth is the home of several thousand people scattered in dozens of hamlets and fishing villages. The Dulgarths can't provide for all of us. No one could. She'll do what she can, just like our father had. Which is? Let us buy, sell, and trade without crippling taxes. Protect us with fair laws, evenly executed. Scarlet grabbed a bucket and turned it over, making a seat for herself. And? And? She heals people. Scarlet sat down on her bucket before the table and bowed her head. What do you mean, she heals people? Royce asked. Scarlet kept her head down, whispering to herself. Royce looked at Hadrian. What's she doing? I think she's praying. You're kidding. Royce rolled his eyes and slapped the table. How does she heal people? Scarlet held up her index finger, asking him to wait. Royce continued to glare at her, but Scarlet didn't see. Hadrian took the break in conversation to pull close to the table. The plate before him was steaming. The inch-thick pork was crispy brown, nearly black on the edges, the eggs dripping with dark grease. He tore a chunk of bread, pulled his dagger, and, using the bread to hold the meat, cut a piece. After he took a bite, bliss came over his face. Good, he told Royce, chewing.
I think I'll wait to see if you pass out or vomit blood before I eat. Be cold by then. It's a trade-off I'm willing to make. Scarlet's head came back up. Her eyes opened, and she, too, tore a bit of bread free. Can we talk now? Royce asked. He was still standing, but he put a foot up on the stool near him. Of course, as long as you don't mind me chewing at the same time. Then tell me how Lady Dolgarth heals people. She goes around to the hamlets, just like Maddie Oldcorn used to. Who's that? Maddie was, I don't know, a legend, really. An old woman who lived alone out in the forest near Brecon Moor. It said she gave Nissa Dolgarth her gift before she died. What gift? Scarlet took a bite of pork and chewed a moment, her lips glistening from the grease. The gift of healing. Old Maddie was famous for it. Fever, pox, the black cough, blood sores, you name it, she healed it, and with little more than a wave of her hands. She was a divine servant of Meribor. Up north, they'd burn old Maddie as a witch, Roy said. Scarlet pointed at him with her bread. Exactly. And the Nephron Church would be the one building the pyre, proclaiming that evil comes from turning off Novron's path. Around here, we look to Meribor and are granted his blessings for our steadfast faith. Hadrian tested the eggs with his fingers to see if they were too hot to pick up. They weren't, and he found them rich and silky, with a nice smoked flavor from the pork's fat. What kind of blessings are we talking about? Well, for one, it never rains here. Not during the day, at least. And the winters are mild. I've never seen anything like them. Royce smirked. You realize you're south, right? There's this thing called climate. Perhaps you've heard of it. She waved a hand in his direction. And the blessing of Maddie? How do you explain her? Does the good weather make diseases flee from the body? Sure, people might not have many colds in warm weather, but I'm talking about people who are stricken one day and fine the next. If that's true, I'd be more interested in the woman herself, not some god I've never seen lift his finger to help anyone. Where did Maddie come from, and how did she get her so-called gift? Don't know. Not sure anyone does. Augustine might know more. An odd bird, Maddie was. Saved the lives of hundreds of people, but she wasn't the least bit friendly. Scarlet thought a minute, then pointed at Royce with her crust. Come to think of it, she was a lot like you. Only she saved lives. Who is Augustine? Hadrian licked his fingers. In case we want to talk to him. Augustine Gilcrest is the abbot of Brecon Moor. Is he the one who ordered the tarring and feathering of Pastor Payne? Scarlet waved her bread this time, which Hadrian took a moment to realize meant no. He's a monk of Meribor. While the Nephron Church takes issue with the monks, the monks don't feel the same way. Or maybe they do, but they would never act on it. The monks are a live-and-let-live sect. They might feel differently if the Nephron Church really does have plans to move in, Roy said. No, no, it's not possible. There. Scarlet chewed for a while, swallowed, then stopped, still searching for words. I 
don't know how to explain. You'd have to meet them, I suppose. But no, neither he nor anyone at the monastery would have anything to do with that. Maybe we should talk to him. Hadrian was still cleaning pork fat from his fingers, one by one. You talk to him. Royce took his foot off the stool and eyed his plate of food. I'm not good with religious types. Besides, I need to get back and look around the castle some more. This is really good, by the way. Hadrian nodded at the plate. Thanks, Scarlet said. Feeling sick yet? Royce asked. Nope. Royce scratched his chin, then sighed and sat down, drawing his plate to him. He took a bite of pork and nodded. Very good. Thank you, Scarlet said, but Hadrian couldn't tell whether she was being genuine or sarcastic. Where is this monastery? Hadrian asked. She'll take you, Royce replied. Whoa, wait a second. Scarlet dropped the knife and bread and raised her hands. Breakfast is one thing, but I do have a life. While we're here, you're working for us. Consider it payment for what you did to Hadrian last night. You can't do that. Royce smiled at her and lifted the folded parchment from his pouch. A moral killer with a writ. I'm just about your worst nightmare. So what do you say you'd do it for your king? Oh, but just so we're clear. Royce pointed the tip of Alverstone at Hadrian. If he suffers so much as a stubbed toe, I'm coming after you first. They finished breakfast. Then Royce and Hadrian stepped outside while Scarlet cleaned. The sun was past midday, the shadows short, and the scent of magnolia hung in the air. Scarlet's cottage didn't have a yard. Her front steps led directly to the cobbles of the street. So, you want to split up again? Adrian wasn't sure this was such a good idea, given how things had gone the night before. Here. Royce handed him his own piece of folded paper. You have your steel, your credentials, and a guide. Even you should be okay, given all that. Hadrian shot him a smirk. I'm not worried about myself. You're the one going into the lion's den. If the church is trying to frame us, then pain, knocks, and forks are all in on it, and who knows how many others. That means the odds are stacked against you. And how is that different from any other day of the week? Seriously, I'll be fine. Hadrian had his doubts. Royce wasn't so much a closed book as one that was chained shut, locked in a box, and thrown into the sea. Still, he was starting to sense moods, subtle shifts like a change in the wind. Hadrian had no idea whether a storm was coming or if the skies were clearing. What he did know was that something was off about Royce. What happened to you last night while I was being stupid? Hadrian asked. Royce wiped a hand over his face. I certainly wasn't being smart. I paid an uninvited visit to the lady's bedroom. She caught me. She caught you? How'd that happen? I'm still trying to figure that out. Part of why I need to go back. His face hardened. 
Royce didn't like privileged nobles as a general rule. But there was something about the look on his partner's face that Hadrian couldn't puzzle out. Royce seemed intent on hating Lady Dulgarth for some reason, but Hadrian decided not to push. Okay, so while you're stalking Lady Dulgarth, I'll investigate this monastery. What am I looking for, exactly? Don't know. Royce looked around. A two-wheeled wagon rested under the shade of an old oak across the street, flowers growing through its spokes. Scarlet Dodge lived on a lovely tree-lined lane that followed the curves of the little hills, visible between the roofs of the houses. Something strange about this place. You mean like how everything is covered in ivy? Hadrian said. Or how the spring doesn't uncover any new rocks? Huh? Royce asked. Rocks. You know, in the fields. I can honestly say I have no idea what you're talking about. Each spring, farmers need to clear their fields of rocks brought up over the winter. Frost heaves them to the surface, where they ruin plough blades. So, the farmers dig the stones up and make walls with them, because there's only so much material needed for building a house or well. Yesterday, I rode by a dozen farms. You must have seen them too. Had to have been there for centuries. But the rock walls are just little decorative things. Easy winters. Not much frost. Maybe. But what about it not raining here? And since when do the common people love their ruler so much? So, you have been paying attention. I'm not as stupid as you think I am. You have no idea how stupid I think you are. And honestly, we don't have time for that conversation. Hadrian scowled. We'll meet back in the room at Caldwell House tonight, Roy said. I might be late, so don't wait up. And don't turn your back on her again. Scarlet? Royce rolled his eyes, sighed and grimaced. She's not a pretty barmaid. She's not a nice girl. Seems like it to me. Of course she does. She was in the Diamond. Her working name was Feldspar, and the nice girl thing is part of her act. Cute and disarming, she dances, sings. She sings too? Hadrian smiled. Pretty sure. And she does magic tricks. One of her favorites is making people's coins disappear. She's not innocent. She's dangerous if you turn your back on her. So don't. Hadrian recalled how deftly Scarlet had prepped the pork. And stay away from the pasta, too, Royce said. It would appear he was lying. About what? About there being no I in his name. Chapter 10 Ghost in the Courtyard The entirety of the castle's staff had assembled in the great hall. Two stewards, four chambermaids, two gardeners, two charwomen, the trio of cooks, the butterer, four scullery maids, the smith, herbalist, vintner, dyer, tailor, furrier, mercer, milliner, scribe, four grooms, a stable boy, woodcutter, 
food tester, sheriff, chamberlain, tax collector, treasurer, keeper of the wardrobe, her handmaiden, and the sergeant-at-arms with his six men. Lady Dugath stood before them, demanding that the person or persons responsible for destroying Sherwood's easel and paints step forward. No one did. Sherwood wasn't surprised, but he was touched by the emotion in Lady Dulgarth's voice as she made her demand. She was angry. Perhaps, most likely, certainly, she was upset that his property was damaged in her home. She had suffered the embarrassment of failing to protect her guest. Still, Sherwood entertained the whisper-thin notion that she reacted so harshly because she liked him. She had said his name after all. Wasn't much to base a verdict on, but Sherwood was in a vulnerable state, and he clung to the idea like an ant riding a leaf in the middle of a flood. The loss of his paints, palette, brushes, and easel was a mortal blow. They were irreplaceable. The set of tools had taken generations of master artists to build, amass, and perfect. Each painter loathed using up the better pigments and was always saving to add more color to the collection. Some contributed a different brush or two. In Sherwood's case, it was walnut oil. When he died, the collection would have been left to an apprentice. He just didn't know who that would be. Now he had nothing to pass on. Sherwood calculated that if he painted every noble's face for the rest of his life, he still couldn't hope to replace what had been lost. Deprived of the tools of his trade, he couldn't even feed himself. But worse than all that was the deep disappointment of not finishing Nyssa's portrait. He had so wanted to. He needed to see all of what lay beyond the veil that could only be shown through the slow process of peeling back and layering up. Feeling the winds of the hurricane blowing, Sherwood left the gathering and sat on the stone carving of a dragon that decorated the castle's reception hall. Castle Dulgarth was famous for its sculptures. Or ought to be, he thought. Much of the castle was crafted from stone, and so beautifully done that rumors persisted about it once being a dwarven fortress. Sherwood didn't think that was true. He'd been to the ruins of Linden Lot and had seen the ancient dwarven capital. He'd witnessed the skillful precision on a scale no longer possible. The sort of creative artistry on display in Dulgarth was wholly different. Dwarven designs were massive, practical, and tended to use geometric shapes. Castle Dulgarth's statues and reliefs were whimsical and breathtakingly lifelike. The dragon, whose paw he sat on, lay curled up, eyes closed as if it were a sleeping dog, only one of many such decorations. The west tower that stood on the very edge of the sea-battered cliff was adorned with clawed feet at its base, a beautification that few ever saw. The stone railings that led to the fifth floor, the private quarters off-limits to all but a few, were adorned with delicately sculpted ivy that hung down like the real thing. A stone otter playing with a pine cone was hidden in a corner of the kitchen pantry, and the wall in the courtyard before the common well 
was decorated with a bas-relief of a school of fish swimming past. After two months, Sherwood was still discovering hidden treasures. Who had been responsible for the secret wealth of artistry, he couldn't discover. Apparently, no one remembered. What am I going to do? The thought had been rattling inside his skull ever since its predecessors, why me and this isn't real, tired themselves out. Two new thoughts muscled their way in. I'm going to starve. And my life is over. Sitting on the dragon's paw, he felt tears welling in his eyes as the full weight of his loss descended. His mouth folded up as if a purse string ran through his lips and a miser had pulled them taut. Just then, Lord Fox entered the castle. Sherwood hadn't thought his day could get worse, but his hurricane of bad luck wasn't done raining. Fox spotted him and changed course. Stole, I just heard, he said, shaking his head with sympathy so blatantly false that Sherwood could hear the laughter behind it. Bad break. What are you going to do now? You don't have any extra supplies, do you? I don't know. You don't know what you'll do now, or whether you have extra supplies. Leave me alone, please. Sherwood wiped his eyes, dragging the tears over his cheeks. Are you seriously crying over spilled paint? Fawkes put a foot up on one of the dragon's massive claws and leaned in. People are dying every day. He held out a hand about knee-high. Children starving to death on crowded streets, women raped, men butchered in mindless campaigns for stupid rulers. The world is full of unjust misery, and here you are sobbing over paint. You're quite the sniveling little quim, aren't you? Surely a lord of your stature has better things to do. Of course, but I like to be generous to the downtrodden. I suspect you are low on funds. You artist types aren't known for budgeting your money. I thought I would offer my assistance. I've purchased a horse this morning and wish to have it taken back to me. I'm in need of a courier, and you could use the money. I'll pay you to ride her home for me. I suspect her ladyship will be willing to provide you with adequate food and whatever supplies you'll need, seeing as how she's sort of at fault for your situation. She didn't do it. She didn't stop it either, but that's a triviality. What is important is that this is your lucky day, Stowe. On the heels of your disaster comes good fortune. The horse is in the stable, a chestnut named Eloise. She came with saddle and tack. You can pack your bags and be on your way to me and by midday. I'll pay you five silver for the trip because I'm feeling generous and because of your misadventure. So stop your blubbering and start packing. Fox clapped his hands and grinned, eyes bright with happiness, as if this news was equally good for him and Sherwood. Excuse me, Sherwood said. He got to his feet, turned his back on Lord Fox, and walked away. Sherwood had no idea where he was off to. Not thinking, 
not capable of sound thought, he'd taken the obvious path before him. He moved toward the lights coming in the front doors of the castle, instead of going back inside where he might have lost himself in the many corridors and rooms. All he wanted was to get away. Sherwood knew Lord Fawkes was watching. He felt eyes boring into his back. He walked out through the big doors onto the stone porch. Castle Dulgath wasn't built correctly. Sherwood had been to most of the strongholds across Averon, and even a few in Trent and Western Calais. None were like this. The differences went beyond the intricate decorations. The porch was a good example. Castles didn't have porches. Fortresses were built for defense, and were circled by a curtain wall with ramparts and turrets. The others all had a single massive entry composed of three formidable barriers— a drawbridge, a sturdy gate, and a portcullis. Such strongholds didn't always have moats, but those without had ditches. In contrast, Dulgath sported a wide porch with columns that held up the extended roof to shade it from the summer sun. This was less a fortress and more a glorified country manor. That was one of the things Sherwood loved about the castle, and by extension, Nissa Dulgath. Once on the porch, he made a quick turn to the right to break Fox's line of sight. Immediately, his back felt better. Elevated as he was, Sherwood had a broad view of the courtyard. The shadow cast by the east tower divided the yard into dark and light the contrast leaving those areas in the sun so brilliant they looked washed out. Having no place to go except away from Fawkes, Sherwood stopped three steps after making his escape and stood dumbly on the porch. He was acutely aware of how his arms hung pointlessly at his sides, how heavy his body felt, how dry his mouth was, and how none of it mattered. Depression was closing in. The dark clouds were circling, creeping up, preparing to smother. Just then, he saw movement, or thought he did. Like his arms, his eyes had been left with no clear direction. Sherwood had been aimlessly staring because at that moment he found even the effort of shifting his gaze to be too much. If he had been walking, or merely glancing around the way a person typically might, he never would have noticed the motion. Having seen the subtle shift of light and darkness near the well, he was slow to grasp the impossibility of what he saw. No one was there, and nothing was moving in the breeze, because there wasn't one. A cloud, maybe? Or a bird's shadow? Sherwood stepped off the porch and looked up. The sky was clear. Everyone. Everyone is in the great hall. So who, or what, is near the well? The or what surprised him. Sherwood wasn't usually a believer in the fantastical. He'd spent too many drunken nights with court entertainers. Minstrels, poets, and storytellers accepted him as part of their club and told him the real stories behind the tales of valor and wonder. 
At a young age, he discovered the truth about the world. Mysteries were designed for a purpose. And if something seemed too fantastical to be true, it was. But he was the only audience in the courtyard, and he'd entered only a second before. What had moved in that corner of the yard didn't look human. Nothing more than a shadow, but the movement was strange, too fast, and... Didn't it go up rather than across? Such a thing wasn't possible. There hadn't been a sound. In the stillness of the empty, windless yard, Sherwood could have heard a leaf fall. But there was nothing. Who, or what, is near the well? The question lingered, and Sherwood realized that the hurricane, with its dreadful, smothering clouds, was holding off. The storm had miraculously been brought to bay by this aberration. Keeping his eyes locked on the spot, he descended the steps and started across the courtyard. Along with the odd sense that what he'd seen wasn't normal was the equally strong impression that it wasn't good. With each step, he became more certain of two things. The first was the wickedness of what he approached, and the second was that it was still there. Just a day before, he would have returned inside, but it wasn't the previous day, and Sherwood found himself not so much brave as invincible. He was a soaked man caught in a summer rainstorm. What harm can it do that hasn't already been done? The inner ward's well was set in a niche, surrounded on three sides by screening walls. Sherwood was certain something was hiding in that little space, where his sight was blocked. Crossing the yard, he approached the well, head on, but saw nothing except the beautiful stone mural of fish and the side-cranking windlass that looked a bit like a sailing ship's wheel. Sir? Sherwood jumped at the sound. Mr. Stowe? Rissa Lynn had followed him across the yard. In both her hands, she held empty buckets. He must have looked strange, creeping up on the well and staring at it. The expression on her face said as much. She even gave a concerned glance at the well, and then another behind her. Is the... Uh, has Lady Dulgarth concluded her meeting, then? He asked trying his best to sound sane. Yes, sir. No one admitted to it, did they? No, sir. I didn't think they would. Me neither, sir. Sherwood nodded and forced a smile that must have been miserable, judging by the way Rissa Lynn grimaced in return. I'm sorry. You're here to fetch water. Don't let me get in your way. He gave a curt nod and started back toward the castle. Sir? He paused, turning to look at Rissa Lynn standing in the sunlight. She was still grimacing, but not at him. She looked frightened. What is it? I know who busted up your things, the maid said in a whisper, her sight darting toward the castle doors. Then she turned and walked to the well, setting the buckets down and reaching out for the windlass crank. 
Let me help you with that, Sherwood said, and rushed over to rotate the wheel. Thank you, sir. You're too kind, sir, Rissalin said loudly. Then, as he began cranking, she whispered, I was woken by the noise, an awful cracking. I often sleep in the linen storage. It saves me from crossing the yard in the dark. She glanced around apprehensively at the old walls. No one cares because it's just me who goes in there. So I was just down the hall, you see, and I heard it. I don't know what I was thinking, going down there, I mean. It sounded like a monster was loose in the castle. Crashes, shattering glass, cracks, grunts, and under all of that, a muttering like someone was talking to themselves. I honestly don't know how I found the courage to peer through the crack in the doorway. What did you see? Already Sherwood had convinced himself that the phantom shadow near the well was some ancient ghost or demon responsible for the destruction of his easel and paints. Rissalin's answer was both disappointing and depressing. Was Lord Fawk, sir? She emptied the water from the well's bucket into one of her own. He was in the study working up a sweat after taking a real dislike to your painting stand. Hard work, I guess. Difficult to break. Did he see you? Oh, no, sir. I just took a peek. And when I saw who it was, I ran back to my cupboard. People think he's swell and all, but he scares me. Sherwood let the wheels spin, taking the hall back down to the bottom of the well. Scares me, too. This made her smile at him for the first time. It just wasn't right for him to do that. Not to someone as, well, as nice as you. Thank you, Rosalind. He started cranking again. Did you tell Lady Dulgarth? The smile vanished and that look of fear rushed back. No, sir. Why not? She was asking for, she was asking for the guilty to step forward. His lordship wasn't there. And if he were, he wouldn't bother. But you could have explained about seeing him. She shook her head. Rissalin had curly hair that jiggled like leaves on a bush well after she stopped. He would find out, and who would believe me? He'd just deny it, and then I would be in trouble for lying, even though I wasn't. She bit her lip, and he understood. Sherwood wasn't making idle conversation about Lord Fawkes being scary. The Lord had the brutal aggression of ambitious men. He wouldn't think twice about crushing or intimidating those he saw as below him. Sherwood grabbed the well's bucket this time and filled her other bucket. You can still tell Lady Dulgath in private. Talk to her like you're doing with me now. No one but you and she would know what you said. The curls shook again. Me and her ladyship, we, I don't speak to her. You're her handmaiden, right? When Sherwood was interested in a noblewoman, he usually worked through her handmaiden. They were the front door to any lady's heart, or at least her bed. Noblewomen maintained a distinct delineation between servants and gentry, but exceptions were often granted for their personal maids who were sometimes as close as sisters. 
This was one of the reasons why he'd always made it a point to say good morning to Rissa Lynn. He'd even brought her pretty shells from his walks on the shore, and flowers from the roadside. Rissa Lynn nodded, but behind her eyes was that same fear. She's not afraid of Fawkes. She's afraid of Lady Dulgarth. What's wrong? He set the hall back on the edge of the well. Nothing, sir. Thank you for your help, sir. And please don't tell nobody that I was the one who saw his lordship, sir. I only told you because... I have to go, sir. She grabbed up the two buckets and ran off, spilling much of the water as she went. Sherwood stood in the well niche, watching Rissa Lynn disappear into the dark of the castle. She left an intermittent trail of damp spots. She's hiding something, a low voice said in his ear. Sherwood jumped, pushed away, slipped, and fell on the decorative stone that fanned around the base of the well. Over him appeared a man in a long black cloak with the hood drawn up. I want to ask you some questions. When Sherwood's heart stopped racing and his ability to breathe returned, he realized he knew who the man was, one of the two who had met Nyssa the previous morning. Too bad. I don't want to answer any. Sherwood got his feet back under himself. Go away. Your wants aren't my concern. Royce Melbourne at least he thought that was the man's name, reached menacingly into his cloak. Sherwood was already preparing his feet to run when the hand came out. He'd expected a dagger. What he saw instead stopped him. The man in the cloak was holding the glass bottle of Beyond the Sea. I thought, I expected you would have destroyed that, thrown it away or something. He held out his hand. Give it back. No, Melbourne said. You gave it to me. I threw it at you. Gave, threw, same thing. No, it's not. He reached for the vial, but Melbourne snatched it away. Better be the same thing, because otherwise sending it my way could be interpreted as assaulting a constable. That's a serious offense. You're not a constable. I have a writ. Do you want to see it? Have you forgotten I was there when you were presented to Lady Dulgarth? I know you're not a constable. Any writ you have is a forgery. I don't need a writ to get answers. I have better ways to extract information. Let's go up to your room where we can speak in private. No. Royce smiled and tossed the bottle of pigment high into the air. It spun, glinting in the sun. Sherwood gasped as it came hurtling back down. He expected a brilliant burst of blue on the stone at their feet, but Melbourne snatched it out of the air. Are you sure you don't want to talk? Melbourne asked, and motioned as if he were about to throw it again. Don't. You don't know what you're doing. Yes, I do. Do you even know what you're holding? This? Melbourne looked at the bottle, turning it back and forth. This is ultramarine, commonly known as Beyond the Sea, 
a pigment made from pulverizing the semi-precious stone lapis lazuli into a powder. It's ideal for dyeing cloth or mixing with egg yolks to make tempera for painting. Sherwood stared open-mouthed for a moment. I actually use oil. What kind? Walnut. Try linseed sometime. How do you know all this? Used to be in the business. You were a painter? Melbourne shook his hood. Illegal imports. Beyond the Sea as one of the exclusive trade items brought in through the Vanden Supply Company. A pretty way of saying, it's pirated. This stuff goes for 100 gold tenants an ounce. What is this? Melbourne held up the bottle to his ear and shook it. Two, two and a half ounces? Three, unless you've poured some out. Nope, all still here. Melbourne began tossing the bottle back and forth between his hands. Sure you don't want to invite me to your room for some tea and cookies? I don't have either, but... Sherwood's stomach lurched with each toss. Are you saying you'll give that back if I cooperate? That's exactly what I'm saying. Okay. And one more thing. Sherwood cringed, knowing the offer was too good to be true. What? I want an apology for throwing it at me. That wasn't very nice. I'm sorry. There. Doesn't that make you feel better? Melbourne stepped past him and led the way back across the yard. Sherwood realized that the dark clouds had retreated a bit. That bottle, if he did get it back, would save his career and possibly his life. As much as he would loathe doing it, he could sell it in Mian and use the coin to replace at least some of what was lost. There would be enough to get him painting again. Sherwood wouldn't be able to take any noble commissions, not without his precious blue pigment. But merchants liked portraits, too. As he watched Melbourne's cloak whip behind him, and the man slipped into the shadows of the porch, Sherwood was reminded of the thing in the shadows. The thing that wasn't quite human. He'd found his ghost. Chapter 11 Brecken Moor Scarlet Dodge led Hadrian up the trail that corkscrewed around the Balding Hill. They were a few miles outside the village on the far side of the river, the bad side, as Pastor Payne called it. Didn't seem bad to Hadrian. Down by the mill, where a big water wheel turned, Scarlet had taken him across an arching stone bridge that was about as picturesque as they came. The rushing river churned below, its deep green waters frothing between sun-bleached boulders. A small mountain rose from the edge of the far bank. The river had cut a gash through it, revealing iron-rich layers of stone. There were no homes on the far side, no mills, no tilled fields, and everything was uphill. The little trail they followed had worn the roots of nearby trees, polishing them until the wood shone. Where the path passed over rocks, which was often, the surface of the stone was buffed as smooth as finished marble. 
The path started in a thick canopy of cottonwood and hawthorn. As they ascended, it graduated to birch and juniper. Farther up, the trail widened when they reached a world of fir, aspen, and pine. The bad side of the river had an enchanting mythic quality. Moss and lichen covered the rocks, some of which were the size of two-story houses. They looked to have been dropped and forgotten by neglectful giants. It's beautiful here, Hadrian said. It is, Scarlet agreed, striding up the trail with all the stamina of a mountain goat. Some of the rocks are shaped like faces, he observed. This was the sort of comment that made Royce cringe, and Hadrian expected the same reaction from Scarlet. Instead, she nodded and smiled. People used to believe stones like these were alive, you know. Trees, too. They believed everything had spirits. People worshipped river gods, the sun, the moon, and the four winds. Is that what the monks think? That there are spirits everywhere? No, but that's what our ancestors thought. Ages and ages ago, long before the empire, people lived in scattered villages like, well, like Breckendale and every one of them had its own personal god. They worshipped a statue of him or her, and even took it with them when they charged into battles. There were hundreds of spirits and demons back then, but all that changed, starting here. Starting here? What happened? Hadrian asked, but Scarlet had scampered ahead and disappeared around a bend of cliff. Catching up, he discovered they had reached the top. An open, rocky slope covered in sedge, mats, buckwheat, and forget-me-nots spread out before him. He stood above the tree line, and below lay the world. Hadrian felt as though he could see into infinity. Green-blue ridges of forested hills ran south toward bluer, rocky mountains, and beyond those were white peaks. A cloud was caught between two ridges, a tuft of milkweed trapped in a cleft. Far below, the village was merely a smudge, and the river only a shining ribbon wriggling through the green. To the east, what looked to be just below their feet, the silver waves of the ocean shimmered. But what astounded him the most was the clear blue sky threatening to engulf him. Whoa! Scarlet had stopped. She watched him, grinning. Amazing, isn't it? She asked. It's like you've come to the end of the world and can see clearly for the first time. On the still rising slope that formed the bald head of the little mountain stood an ancient stone building. Massive, rough-hewn slabs were stacked without mortar. Corners had been worn and rounded. And while no ivy grew there, emerald green moss and gold lichen decorated every block. Welcome to Brecon Moor, Scarlet said. Augustine Gilcrest looked like a monk, old and weathered, with a face that had suffered from the merciless sun, the wind, and the cruel whims of gods. But in his eyes was the blue of an endless sky. A long white beard showed he hadn't shaved in decades. 
and the haphazard hair sticking out in all directions beneath a miserable flop of a hat, told Hadrian the cleric likely hadn't seen a mirror in about as long. Seeing Scarlet, the abbot of Brecon Moor, howled with joy, then embraced her tightly, kissing her three times on the cheek. She returned the squeeze with the same comfortable closeness of a family accustomed to hugging. I'm so glad you've come to visit. Let's sit down in the shade. I know what a long stroll it is to get here. They were out in the cloister, an enclosed garden surrounded by a pillared walkway. At the center, an artesian spring trickled down into a naturally formed pool. Around it, carefully cultivated plots of vegetables, herbs, and flowers grew. Around those, walkways and stone benches had been constructed. The monk led them to one of those, in the shade of an old and twisted bristlecone pine. He gestured for them to sit. It's so wonderful to see you again, he beamed at Scarlet. You need to visit more often. His eyes darted over. And who is this young man? His tone was playful, mischievous, and his brows made an insinuating jump. This is Hadrian Blackwater, just a curious stranger from up north, Scarlet said. Her face looked a bit flushed, but it could have been from the mountain hike. The question is, Augustine said, continuing his baiting tone, what is he curious about? Actually, said Hadrian, who was sticky with sweat and fixated on the trickling water, I was wondering if you had anything to drink. The abbot held out a hand to the bubbling spring. That's what it's there for, the same as the air you're breathing. Meribor provides. Scarlet walked over, bent down, and sucked water from the surface of the pool, as if she were a deer in a glade. She stood up, wiping her mouth. Best you'll ever have. Hadrian followed her example. The water was cold, clear, and perfect. He drained almost half an inch before standing. Refreshed and revitalized, he took a deep breath of fresh air and sighed. Nice, isn't it? Scarlet asked. I could live here, Hadrian replied. If you wish, you can, Augustine told him. We welcome anyone interested in a life of worship. Really? Hadrian hadn't seen more than two other monks, or at least two other men in the same drab habits. Not a lot of takers lately, I'm guessing. Augustine smiled. They're a bit out of the way here. Certainly is beautiful, Hadrian said. Everything here is, even down in the village, across this whole valley, really. Yes, Dulgath is a little sliver of paradise perched at land's end. The abbot winked at Scarlet. So much natural beauty in one place, and yet... Yes, the abbot asked. I don't know. Just doesn't feel natural. Something strange about this place. The abbot and Scarlet exchanged looks. Would you like to know? Would you, really? Adrian wasn't sure he did. He wasn't one for sermons. In the manor village, where he'd grown up, 
they didn't have a church. A priest of Nephron would visit a few times a year. He came to perform weddings, to bless the dead and the harvest, but mostly to break bread and drink with Lord Baldwin. No one in Hintendark could be considered devout, and Hadrian's father held an open contempt for the church. The years Hadrian had spent in the military, not to mention his time in Calais, had done nothing to improve his indifferent view of religion. He supposed it served a purpose, calmed fears, eased suffering, gave hope, and occasionally helped those whom others ignored. Still, he never understood the blind worship of the faithful. Deacons, priests, and bishops were ordinary men, and just as prone to acts of good and evil as anyone else. From his perspective, there was only one difference. The religious loved to talk. Soldiers, merchants, even nobles were men of action. The devout were men of words, usually lots of them. That afternoon, however, Hadrian was tired from a long uphill walk, and sitting down to listen to a story didn't sound so bad. It didn't matter that he was pretty sure it wasn't going to be a good one. Okay. Hadrian found his own slab of stone and got comfortable. Augustine smiled at him, then stood up. He lifted his eyes to the sky and took a deep breath. Long, long ago, he began, fanning his fingers as if he were evoking the birth of existence. Our people came to this valley and thought to make a life here. But their dreams became a nightmare. For this place was ruled by an evil demon of the old world, a monster capable of leveling mountains, blotting out the light of the sun, and calling down bolts of lightning. Paths were guarded by cruel thorns. Soil was made barren, and the water, he pointed at the trickling well, was poison. This was a cursed land, an awful, terrible place of darkness and death. Until Bran came. Scarlet grinned at the name like a child hearing a favorite tale and eager to share, to experience it again through the reactions of someone new. Augustine's attention was distracted by a pair of monks who entered the cloister. Come on, he invited them with a wave. One young, one middle-aged, they shuffled over silently and sat on the ground. They, too, had the eager, excited expression. It must be really boring up here, Hadrian guessed. Now then, Augustine went on, Bran was the protege of Bryn, the legendary hero of old. When Bryn was a boy, no more than fourteen years old, his parents were killed by a marauding army of giants, who were so big they used trees as toothpicks. Bryn slew every last one with his bare hands, but that wasn't his only exploit. He stole the secret of metal from the dwarven king, who back then ruled from the ancient city of Neath. The abbot pointed to the southwest, causing Hadrian to turn and look, but all he saw was a cloud-covered mountain range snaking down the back of Delgos like a jagged spine. The dwarven king's name was Gronbach, his heart so black it bled ink. He was worse than any fiend of pyre.
I've heard of that dwarf, Hadrian said. He's in nursery rhymes, an ugly creature that promises girls treasure and then betrays them. He locks the poor child in a prison of stone, but the girl, usually a princess, manages to escape by some clever trick or magic. Augustine nodded, which demonstrates how such tales take form. It's a less than accurate retelling of a real event between the mighty Bryn and the evil Gronbach. But that's a tale for another day. I merely wanted to set the stage and let you know that Bryn's adventures ranged far and wide. It's because of Bryn that we have blades like the ones you carry. Everyone was staring at Hadrian's sword, heads nodding in unison. Hadrian smiled politely and was thankful the abbot wasn't telling the whole story, or this would be a very long visit. There are many legendary tales of adventures featuring Bryn. It is said he slew the last of the dragons, invented writing, and fought beside Novron at a crucial battle in the Great Elven War. He even saved the first emperor's life. But his greatest feat was leading a band of heroes into the underworld, into the land of death itself. That trip changed everything. Bran's tales of his teacher's adventures taught us about the real gods. Did you know that long ago men worshipped every tree and leaf? I told him, Scarlet said. Oh, good, he replied, but his face suggested otherwise. Well, um... Augustine stumbled, trying to find his place. It's from Bran, the founder of the Brotherhood of Marabor, that we know of Pyre, and the truth that there are only five gods. Erebus is the father of all. Therol, the father of the elves. Drome brought forth dwarves, and of course... Merabor created mankind. As for the plants and animals, that was the work of Muriel. What about Novron? The Nephron Church worships the son of Merabor as their god. Do the monks of Merabor not? Scarlet cringed, but the abbot just smiled politely, as if placating a child who didn't know better. We are the keepers of the truth. We don't involve ourselves in what others believe. Maybe monks were as adept as nobles at obfuscation, because Hadrian noticed Gilchrist hadn't answered the question. Still, he wasn't going to be rude and dig deeper. The abbot once more stumbled to find his place. While Bryn's accomplishments are legion, his most important contribution is the knowledge that no one no matter how vile their past, is beyond redemption. Sounds like a great guy, Hadrian said. But what does this have to do with Dulgarth? The abbot grinned, and a twinkle shone in his eye. Several years after the Elven War, when the Empire was still young, and the capital city of Persepolis was just being built, Bran heard of the hardships the people in this valley were up against. So... Bran the Holy, student of Bryn the Magnificent, came to help. He stood in this very place, the ground where this monastery now stands. On this hilltop, Bran faced the demon of Dulgarth, 
he wrestled with the monster and forced it to yield. Wise as he was, Bran didn't slay it, but rather made it repent for its cruelties. He charged it with making right every wrong it had perpetrated against the people of this land. Exhausted from his efforts, Bran took off his shawl and rested. Then he prayed for Meribor to bless this valley. Overnight, everything changed. The waters became pure, the thorns were replaced with ivy, and the weather turned ideal. Hadrian asked Scarlet, You believe all this? I've lived here for five years, she said. I've never seen a drought, a storm, or a famine. That doesn't prove anything. The winters here are never very cold and always stunning. It's as if the only reason it snows is for the beauty it brings. You can see for yourself how lush everything is. Ivy is everywhere, and plants usually found much farther south thrive here. We have oranges, and there are palm trees along the coast. The growing season is incredibly long, and the land is never exhausted, no matter how often the farmers plant. They don't even rotate the crops. They plant whatever they want, wherever they want. Still doesn't. Five years, Hadrian, she said with a smirk. I've been here five years, and I've only seen it rain once in the daytime. You can see storms that devastate other parts of Marinon from up here, hurricanes that wreck ships on the coast, or dark clouds filled with rain and hail, never reach us. They either turn aside or die altogether. If you travel, you'll find it blistering hot or deathly cold just outside this valley. But here, in this place, it's always sunny, always warm, always... perfect. The monks nodded in agreement. Fruits grow heavy, there's never a blight, and crops are always plentiful. This land is blessed, Hadrian. Either we're benefiting from the efforts of a reformed demon, or Maribor loves this valley. Maybe both. The only problems we face are the occasional accident or sickness. And for those, we had Maddie Oldcorn, and now Lady Dulgarth. Augustine can tell you about that. He was there when it happened. The abbot turned thoughtful, a sadness leaching through his previous energy and making him appear old for the first time. Our ladyship had been in the steeplechase and fell. Landed badly. Blood was in her eyes and leaking from her ears. He shook his head, grimacing. Having a few gruesome memories of his own, Hadrian knew the abbot was seeing it all over again. She was close to death when they carried her into the castle and laid her on the bed. Maddie was called. She had always been the thorn on the rose, the sting of a bee, but she had the heart of a racehorse and would come when needed, no matter how late the hour. She would kill herself racing for the finish line. Most people think that night was what did her in. Maddie saved Nissa Dulgoth and poured everything she had into the effort. The old woman saved that girl, but died doing so. We buried her on a hill in the village where folk lay flowers in her memory. 
And after that, Lady Dulgoth started healing people? Hadrian asked. Augustine nodded. Apparently, Maddie gave her more than just life. Maybe she knew she was dying and wanted to pass on her gift. In any case, it wasn't long before Lady Dulgarth began healing the sick the same way Maddie had. No explanation for how she does it. Augustine raised his hands to the sky. She has the grace of our Lord, and he listens to her. But you're the abbot. Shouldn't you be the one your lord listens to? Merabor chooses whom he works through. He has his reasons. That we might not understand them is a fault in us, not him. That was more the sort of talk Hadrian was used to hearing from clerics. Experience had likely taught Augustine to expect skepticism. Hadrian figured the abbot had encountered it often. Getting people to entrust their souls to something they couldn't validate had to be a hard sell. Doubt must have been readable on his face, as Hadrian hadn't learned Royce's art of the dispassionate stare. Augustine stood up, clapping his hands together. Old and soft as they were, they made a muffled noise, but the old man's eyes were bright with excitement. Come with me. He led them through the nave of the church. The other two monks must have known where he was going because they grabbed a pair of dead torches off the wall and lit them from a white coal brazier near the entrance. The church was little more than a large hall with a raised altar and a podium. There were paintings on the walls and ceiling, but in the dim light, Hadrian couldn't make them out. The middle-aged monk took Augustine's hand as they came to stairs that led down into the solid rock of the mountaintop. When they reached a door, the abbot pushed it open. Inside, a shaft of light cut through the ceiling on a slant that shone on a pedestal, which was actually a stunning sculpture of four kneeling people, their arms upraised. In their hands, they held a golden chest, the brilliant box dazzled under the beam of sunlight. The abbot lifted the lid and revealed the contents. A piece of cloth. Green, black, and blue plaid, the material seemed to be a simple shawl or small blanket. Clearly old, it was faded, tattered, torn, and badly frayed around the edges. The fabric was lovingly laid out and tacked in place so its full width was visible, like a tapestry. After his battle with the demon, Augustine said, staring down into the golden box, his hands reverently clasped before him. Bran the Beloved took off his shawl. In the morning, he left it behind. This is the one true thing, the proof of my words. We believe this shawl, this very bit of cloth you see here, was handed down to Bran from Bryn. If so, it would be older than the Navronian Empire, older by far than the Church of Nephron, even older than Persepolis. This is the shawl of Bryn. In that dark grotto, Next to the gold case held up by those eerie stone hands and bathed in that pure white shaft of sunlight, 
Hadrian did feel a sense of awe. A presence of the mystical crept over him, raising goosebumps. An old blanket in a box was what he saw, but what he felt was an intersection with eternity, a window on a world beyond, an impossible wrinkle in reality, a footprint of a god. No one spoke for several minutes. They stood transfixed by the simple woolen cloth, as if they were holding their own internal conversations with it, with themselves, and with Meribor. Then, without another word, the abbot closed the box, breaking the spell. He led them back out into the daylight of the tranquil cloister. The sun felt good, reassuring. Everything was normal again. Still, no one spoke, and Hadrian took another drink from the pool. This time he splashed water on his face, then looked around. Is it possible that some ancient hero really did fight and defeat an old world demon on this mountaintop? Is this valley really blessed in some way? Hadrian pictured telling Royce that story, and once more felt the grass beneath his feet. His doubt must have registered because Abbot Gilchrist patted him on the arm reassuringly and said, Don't worry, my son, if you don't believe in Meribor and the blessings he provides. Belief in him isn't a requirement. It doesn't stop him from believing in you. Chapter 12 Lady Dulgarth the room they had lent Sherwood Stowe was on the third floor of the South Tower, and not as nice as Royce and Hadrian's at Caldwell House. The space was smaller, and had but a sliver of a sea-facing window, which left it gloomy. With three of the walls made from stone, the place was as comfortable as a dungeon. In his explorations, Royce had discovered better rooms left vacant, Perhaps those rooms had been occupied when Sherwood arrived, or they were reserved for the coming of the king and his entourage. Or maybe whoever had assigned Sherwood's room wanted him to leave as soon as possible. The artist had been provided with a bed, but even though evening drew near, no one had bothered to freshen the linens. Broken rocks of yellow ochre and ruddy iron littered a small table in the corner. A tiny hammer and a metal file lay among the debris. Hammer-sized impressions on the surface of the table suggested Sherwood held as much respect for his accommodation as those who had provided the room had shown to the artist. Chicken bones littered the floor near the chamber pot. Near Mrs., Royce guessed. From the rancid smell that greeted his nose upon entering, Sherwood's piss-pot hadn't been dealt with any better than the bed. I don't get visitors, Sherwood said with a mix of irritation and embarrassment. He picked up the discarded bones, crossed the room, and dumped them and the chamber-pot's contents out the window and into the sea. When he turned back, a look of shock flashed across the painter's face. Royce didn't suffer from a lack of situational awareness. Some people, most people, walked around oblivious to nearly everything. 
How they survived more than a week was a curiosity to him, akin to white turkeys had wings. In Royce's profession, being surprised was the same as being dead, so catching him unaware was a rare thing. Seeing the stunned look on Sherwood's face, however, Royce was certain someone had been hiding in the corner as they entered. Cursing himself for his stupidity and expecting the worst, Royce whirled while reaching for his dagger. No one was there, just the artist's easel and paint tray propped in the corner. Sherwood moved to the easel, as if he'd forgotten Royce was in the room. He reached out and touched the tripod, running his hands over the surface of the paint-splattered wood. Impossible. What is? Sherwood untied a rolled-up canvas pouch. It unfurled, one end dangling from the easel tray. The thing was a sort of carrying case for paintbrushes, with little pockets for each. There had to be two dozen brushes, neatly stuffed into the compartments. They're all here. Sherwood opened the lid of the tray and gasped. He jerked back as if a snake had been hiding there. Reaching out, he timidly touched each of the pigment bottles. Then he picked up the paint-smeared palette and stared at it. It's... It's... He repeated, shaking his head. This is the same palette. The paint, it's... I just don't understand. Your easel, your paint, your room. What's not to understand? These don't exist anymore. Or I should say they didn't. None of them. Last night, Lord Fawkes went into the study and destroyed it all. The easel was snapped into half a dozen pieces, and the paint vials were shattered against the walls and floor. And this... Sherwood held up the palette. This was broken in two. But it's all here now. Not a mark. Not a blemish. No blemishes. There are dense scrapes and paint splattered all over that thing. Yes, Sherwood spun, holding up the palette like a tiny shield. I know every mark, every drip of paint. This isn't a replacement or a replica. This is my old easel. These are my old paints. Sherwood's eyes went wide with thought. He turned and scanned the pigments again. Beyond the sea. It isn't here. That's because I have it. Royce held out the bottle. Yes. Sherwood took the vial and put it in the gap where it belonged. This doesn't make sense. Ponder it later. I have questions, remember? Sherwood faced him with a giddy smile. Sure. Whatever. What do you want to know? Tell me about Lady Dulgarth. What's she like? What are her habits, her interests, her... Her hair isn't black. I'm actually more interested in... People don't know that, he went on, staring at Royce in earnest. They would if they paid attention, if they looked close. But people don't. Everyone is so focused on themselves... They never really take the time to look at others and rarely see them.
Roy sensed Sherwood was one of those quirky spigots that started by chugging and spitting out blasts of useless, dirty water. But after you pumped it a few times, it vomited the good stuff. He decided to continue to coax, to see what came out. So, what color is her hair? Brown. Looks black to me. It's what I call soft black. But it's really a very dark brown. You can see it when she stands in front of a window on a sunny day. The light gives her a golden halo as it passes through the individual strands. Her eyes aren't really brown either. There's a hint of gold and even a little green in them. I'm not interested in painting her. But that's how I know her. That's how I understand her. She doesn't have black hair and brown eyes like everyone else, because she isn't like everyone else. She isn't like anyone else. You can hear it in her voice. She drags her vowels, puts emphasis on the wrong syllables, as if she's from another country. But I've been to all of them, and I've never heard the like. Just looking at her, you can see the differences. She's only twenty-two, but she has an old soul. Her not-young soul is visible through those not-brown eyes. She betrays it in the way she moves, the way she acts. Each step, each shift is poised and filled with total confidence. She's fearless in the command of her body. This confidence bleeds out in her voice and the directions she gives her staff. Firm, strong, but kind and compassionate. She has wisdom far beyond her apparent years. And courage! Sherwood chuckled at the absurdity, as if Royce had just accused Lady Dulgarth of being a coward. I once saw her stop a fight between two soldiers. One had a busted, bleeding nose, and he had just drawn his sword. The other man's face was red with rage, and he howled in anger. Everyone else, big men, some of them armed, backed away. She marched right up and slapped one and then the other. Just slapped them. I couldn't believe it. I don't think anyone could. She did the same sort of thing with an unruly horse. She slapped it. Sherwood chuckled again. The man was in a decidedly better mood than when they'd first met. No, but, well, the animal was rearing and kicking, and Nissa, I mean, Lady Dulgarth, showed no hesitation. She laid a hand on the animal's neck. The horse relaxed, calmed right down. Sherwood continued to stare at the easel, then blinked and laughed again. A self-conscious smile pulled at his lips. Royce remained quiet, waiting to see if Sherwood would continue. Just as he thought the artist was finished, he spoke again. She's sad, Sherwood said at last. Lonely, I think. Her father just died. It's not that. I arrived before he died. She was melancholy then, too. She actually took her father's death well, very stoically, Still, there's a regret that hovers around her. That's the thing I notice the most about her. She wears it like... like you wear that cloak. Hides behind it. That's what makes her so hard to see. 
Sherwood went on to speak of Nissa Dulgarth with an awe that only infatuation, deep and fresh, produced. Sherwood was likely on the verge of declaring that the lady inhaled with more acumen than mere mortals, and yet, heat and cold don't bother you nearly as much as they do your friend, but ice, snow, and boats, oh, ships. If she had added dogs and dwarves to the list of things he avoided, Royce would have concluded she knew him. And the comment about water. Royce could swim. He'd had to on a few occasions, but he avoided lakes, rivers, and the ocean. He hated having no solid ground to stand on. Boats and docks were somehow worse. They messed with his balance and made him sick. He'd never told anyone. Weaknesses were things only the stupid advertised. Nissa Dulgarth knew his, just by looking at him. Roy spotted the cloth-covered painting behind the table. Is that her portrait? Yes. Can I see it? No. Why not? It's not done. Royce considered looking anyway, but he'd seen plenty of portraits hanging in the halls of the wealthy, usually pudgy men and pasty women. He simply wasn't that interested. He'd learned what he came to find out. Sherwood wasn't a threat to Lady Dulgarth. He was in love with her. Royce had suspected as much from the moment the painter threw a fortune in blue pigment at him in her defense. Now he was certain. With their deal concluded, Royce was content to leave the artist alone with his easel mystery. Still, he couldn't shake the feeling that he should have looked. Climbing the ivy was even easier the second time. Lady Dulgarth was in her bedroom. He'd seen the light come on before he started his climb and made no effort to conceal his approach. Even so, the odds of anyone seeing or hearing him were slim. Practice and experience had made his stealth habitual. Cats, even when not hunting, were damn hard to hear. She wasn't in bed. Lifting his head above the sill, Royce saw Nissa Dulgarth sitting at the little desk, her back to him. She was wearing a different gown. This one was white and off the shoulder, drawing attention to the smooth, dark olive skin, and he didn't care what Sherwood said, she had black hair. He studied her. The first time he'd met Lady Dulgarth, he hadn't really noticed the woman herself. Instead, he'd seen the accumulated assumptions he'd built while riding to Marinon. This time, he watched more honestly and found a beautiful woman. Slender, tall, relaxed in her body. Sherwood was right about the poise and confidence. She was just sitting at her desk, but she sat straight, ankles crossed. The movement of her hands and arms as she used a quill was... Are you here to kill me this time? She asked without turning. Royce slipped through the window and perched on the sill, his feet dangling inside the room but not touching the coiled rug that covered half the floor. No, why would you say that? Lady Dulgarth set her quill down and turned halfway in her seat, 
throwing one arm over the back of the chair. Long hair covered the side of her face, obscuring one eye and blanketing one shoulder. The candle behind her gave it a pleasant shine. Because no one hires an assassin merely to plan a murder. Was it Bishop Parnell or Lord Fawkes who hired you to kill me? She knows. Actually, they did hire me, but merely to provide them with a plan. Which they will execute. Royce shrugged. Probably. The degree to which Royce had misjudged this noble woman was earth-shattering. He'd made bad guesses before, but he almost always overestimated his enemies. This time he'd pegged his target as a careless, negligent, oblivious child. He'd mistaken a fox for a hen. Since you obviously know people are plotting your death, why haven't you bothered to take precautions? Mr. Melbourne, is it? Ruling a kingdom doesn't equal unfettered power. Take, for example, the Church of Nephron, the chief sponsor of my elimination. I have no power to remove any of them. They don't work for me. Only the king can order such a ban, and he won't. This leaves me with an assassin on my windowsill, something that ought to be only a metaphor. And yet you don't seem the least bit frightened. She rolled her shoulders, shrugging off the hair. You just said you weren't here to kill me. Do you believe the word of a killer? Maybe I'm just not afraid of dying. Everyone is afraid of death, says the delivery man. And yet you make a business of it. I used to make a business of it. Royce clarified, then wondered why he bothered. She didn't care, and neither should he. And people are not afraid of death happening, just of it happening to them. So you aren't a killer anymore? Not an assassin. Ah. She nodded. Now you merely advise others. This is an unusual job. No doubt. She brushed the hair away from her face, looking at him clearly with both eyes. How would you kill me? She was being provocative, trying to push him off balance. She took great pleasure in that, enjoyed attacking and watching him retreat. I'd slit your throat while you slept. You'd sneak up here while I'm in bed, catch me unaware, but that didn't work so well last night. Or this. I wasn't trying very hard. Right, of course. Normally you succeed because, because of your special secret. Let's not go there again. Why not? Are you afraid to learn something about yourself? I know myself quite well, thank you. No, you don't. Nyssa stood up. The light of the desk's candle behind her left the lady's features in darkness, but the bright white of the gown practically glowed. You think you're a man, but you're better than that. Better? Last night you called me an elf. You are. 
and you call that better? Where I come from, that's about as low an insult as there is. Where I come from, it's the highest form of praise. Royce leaned in and peered at her with a disagreeable smirk. I hadn't noticed Maranon holding any affection for elves. In fact, I don't think I've seen any since coming here. Lady Dulgarth bit her lip and turned away. A point scored. Royce could see what had so overwhelmed Sherwood. Lady Dulgarth had an allure that even he couldn't deny. It didn't help that she looked a bit like Gwen Delancey. Same shapely figure, dark eyes, and dark hair. Some time ago, Royce had realized that he judged the beauty of all women by how much they resembled Gwen. But there was more to Nissa Dulgarth's appeal than that. She was younger and lighter-skinned than Gwen, but they shared the same intoxicating sense of mystery. In a world of mundane predictability, they were intriguing riddles. Rain in sunshine creating rainbows. If you're not here to kill me, then why climb my ivy? Were you hoping to catch me dressing? Royce rolled his eyes. Sorry, I've never met an assassin. How would I know what you do? But if peeping wasn't your aim, what is? Trying to figure out why someone wants you dead. No, that's not it. She showed him a smirk of her own. You're deciding whether I deserve to live. You're trying to determine if it's worth the money to tell them how to kill me. You didn't have any problem doing so when we first met. But second thoughts have crept in since last night. And now, now you're undecided. On a windowsill, so to speak. You can certainly wring every drop out of a metaphor, can't you? She got up, spun halfway around on her left heel, and went to the bed. Sherwood was right about the way she moved. She didn't so much walk as glide, and that heel spin she did was as elegant as a dancer's pirouette. The dress added to the drama of the movement, made of something shiny, satin perhaps. It caught light from both the candle and the moon, rippling like waves on a still night pond. Ghostly. That was the word that came to mind. She sat on the bed and crossed her ankles again, this time folding her hands in her lap and pulling her shoulders back, as if posing. Maybe she is. Maybe she is trying to seduce me, flashing her big eyes in the false hope that it will save her life. Something told him he was wrong, even before he'd finished the thought. I've got to stop thinking she's like everyone else. She's a fox, not a hen. Since you're on the sill about me, she said with a grin, I'll offer a defense and see if I can persuade you to grant clemency. Knock yourself out. She narrowed her eyes. I'm sorry. What? Go ahead, state your case, Roy said. Nissa stared at him a moment longer, then used both hands to hook her hair behind her ears. Straightening up once more, she asked, Did you know that the Dulgarth family 
is the oldest continually ruling bloodline in Avrin. That's not likely to sway me. I'm not big on tradition. It's my life on the line. Grant me a little leniency. Royce shrugged and, expecting a long tail, curled up in the frame of the window. Putting his back against one side, he drew up his feet and placed them on the other. Let's see. Lady Dulgarth tapped her chin and tilted her head toward the ceiling, as if she were trying to spot something very small or very far away. About three thousand years ago, close to that, when the Great War ended and the Navronian Empire was born, Royce interrupted. We really need to go back that far. Seriously. She ignored him. Before the war, no one had ever come this far west. After the war, everyone did. A rush of people searched for fertile lands. Marinon was perfect. Mian, the capital of Marinon, was originally the name of a prominent clan from that time. They were the first here, and had taken the best fields. The latecomers went farther west. As you can see, we're up against the ocean in this valley. So those who settled here were the late and undesirable. Outcasts. They were led by a man named Dool. He was so poor, he nearly starved to death and was so horribly thin, people called him the Ghast. This would have been right about the same time that the first stones of Persepolis were being laid. Dool, the Ghast, led a miserable band of about a hundred members of Clan Mian to this valley, which they found beautiful and rich. And they lived happily ever after, Royce finished for her. Not at all. There's a reason Dool the Ghast and his followers were undesirable. They were idiots. This made Roy smile. Nyssa returned the grin. They had no idea how to take care of themselves on the frontier. When they exhausted the supplies they'd brought, they found themselves in desperate need. Back then, this was before Novron died, before his cult grew, People worshipped spirits believed to exist in nature. Trees, rocks, bears, that sort of thing. In desperation, Dool and his dying people began begging the spirits of nature to save them. Dool probably never expected anything to come of it, but what he didn't know was that there really was a spirit dwelling in this valley, and the spirit heard him. Overnight, Everything changed, and that guardian spirit has watched over the house of Dulgarth ever since. Are you saying that's why you're not concerned? Because you have a magical guardian protecting you? I guess you could say that, yes. Royce had no trouble believing her sincerity. Nobles and wealthy merchants were known to believe in ghosts and good luck charms, he once knew a silk merchant who had been convinced his dog of nineteen years was still alive. He would go down on one knee and pet thin air while making cooing noises at it. The odd thing was that his wife had died the same year as the dog, but she had never visited. A guardian spirit didn't surprise Royce at all, and normally he would have accepted her story as another example of wishful stupidity, except...
Fox, not a hen. Okay, so that answers why you're so relaxed. It doesn't explain why everyone wants to kill you. A few years ago, the Nephron Church came for a visit. Five of their leading bishops were traveling from province to province, preaching to the noble families about the importance of restoring the faith of Novron. They came here and weren't pleased that the Earl of Dulgarth wasn't receptive to their belief in restoring the old empire. The Earl of Dulgarth. An odd way for her to refer to her father. They wanted his assurance that, when the time came, he would cast his allegiance to an emperor of their choice. We've never worshipped Novron here. Even when we were part of the empire, we gave only lip service. This tiny valley has its own ways, old ways, and we're set in them. Old Beadle told them that he wouldn't cooperate. Old Beadle? The Earl was a problem, a rock in their road, a big, unmovable stone. Sadly, he didn't have the same lifespan as most rocks. When he died without a male heir, just a delicate, young, inexperienced girl, the church saw an opportunity. She shook her head and sighed. But alas, the Countess was no more pliable than the Earl, so... In the intervening years, they found someone more amenable. Lord Fawkes will allow them to pull his strings, all while thinking he is the one in control. She shook her head again. So foolish. Now the stage is set for the final act in their little drama. The death of the last Dulgarth. And none of this frightens you because you're protected by the magical woodland spirit of the valley. Do I have that right? You're the expert on killings. You tell me. They've tried three times now. How hard can it be to kill a delicate young girl? Something in the sound of her voice, not arrogance, but confidence, disturbed Royce, like hearing a deer howl or a rabbit roar. An interesting tale, but I'm not persuaded. I'm no fan of the church or nobility. It doesn't matter to me who rules. The lives of those at the lower rung remain unchanged. I've decided, and I'm going to tell them how I'd kill you. I want you to know that. How considerate of you. Of course, should that ivy be cut down and a sentry posted to patrol the yard, such a thing would be a lot harder. And if you locked your door and posted another guard outside it, anyone looking to end your life might be out of luck. You're not a very resourceful assassin, are you? I should think there would be cleverer ways than climbing in a window. Simple plans work. Every moving part is a potential failure point. Besides, Roy shrugged, not a lot of incentive in this job. I'm just here to get paid. That's all that matters. Is it? she asked, getting up. She stood before him with her weight on one hip, arms limp at her sides. She had a predatory stare in her eyes. Royce found his muscles tensing, the look 
was threatening. Is she thinking of pushing me out the window? No, that look isn't violent. It's inviting. He'd seen that stare before, usually on prostitutes working a room. Gwen's girls donned that expression frequently, but none ever looked at him that way. They aimed their weapons at the loud and the drunk, the ones throwing money away like silver fountains. No one ever stared at Royce. Nissa locked eyes with him and smiled, soft cheeks growing round. I think you're curious, she told him. About what? Not a shift, not a blink. About me, certainly. But even more about you. I can see doubt in your eyes. You don't want to believe what I said, but the truth is impossible to ignore. Your problem is that you've lived with lies your entire life. What choice was there? Everyone agrees that elves are dirty, worthless, lazy, ignorant vermin. In a world without a dissenting opinion, how could anyone expect to judge fairly? The question before you isn't, how could I be one of them? But rather, how could I have ever believed I was only a man? What does the daughter of an earl know about elves? I read a lot, she said, then broke their contest and laughed. She swirled, making the gown fan, and threw her head back. Gwen's girls did that too. Maybe Nyssa was bad at it, or Royce was wrong about her intent, for the act was uncharacteristically awkward and filled with frustration and annoyance. In that instant, her guard dipped, and for the first time he felt he saw Nyssa Dulgarth, the woman behind the mask. The lady hadn't planned it, but that slip succeeded where her previous efforts had failed. The truth was indeed hard to ignore. Royce decided he liked Nissa Dulgarth, or at least he didn't dislike her. She certainly was interesting. She took a step toward him. Time for me to go. Royce spun and threw his legs back out the window. Don't forget about the ivy. You need to get rid of it. But I like Ivy. It can grow back. And you? How will you visit me again if I tear it down? I won't. Goodbye, Lady Dulgarth. Chapter 13 Forks and Hounds The trip back down the mountain was faster, as downhill trips always are. Even so, it was night when Hadrian and Scarlet Dodge reached the section of the trail where the pitch flattened to a mere slope and broadened wide enough for side-by-side -side travel. The moon was three-quarters full and cast a spray of silver pools where it penetrated the leaves. The light ran up and over their bodies as they waded through moonbeam puddles, and Hadrian kept stealing glances at Scarlet. At first he thought he was getting away with it. Still acting as a guide, Scarlet was focused on the trail ahead. But when he spotted her smile, he knew she'd caught him. He also knew 
she didn't mind. So, how did you end up in Dulgarth, in Breckendale? Hadrian asked. What do you care? Her tone was both curt and cold. Hadrian was surprised, then realized he shouldn't have been. Royce had all but placed a knife to her throat. Look, we got started wrong. You poisoned me, and Royce threatened to kill you. Fact is, we're not who you thought we were, and I have no idea who you are. Probably best that way, don't you think? No, I don't think that at all. She looked at him, just as moonlight splashed her face. She had that puzzled squint he already recognized as one of her go-to expressions, at least the ones she used with him. But I'll tell you what I do think. I think it's easy to distrust someone you don't know. If you're ignorant of their past, you can't understand their motivations, so you jump to conclusions, which are usually wrong. For example, I'm a really nice guy, but you probably hold a different opinion of me. Yep, I think you're an idiot. He smiled. That's just because you don't know me. Once you do, you'll discover I'm really only an imbecile. This made her laugh. He could tell she didn't want to, and her frustration made the sound even sweeter. See, you can't resist me. I'm like a dog that drops a ball at your feet. Hadrian, she said with a weary tone and a shake of her head. I get it. You're attracted to me. You're trying to start something here, make me like you. But you're only going to be around for a few days. And Wagner and I, we're sort of a thing. Wagner? The bartender? That old guy? He owns Caldwell House, and he's nice. Adrian nodded slowly with a pushed-out lower lip. What? Just seems a little old, that's all. Yeah, well, most men worth something are. Boys tend to be lazy or have an overabundance of dreams. They're always looking but never finding because they haven't a clue what they really want. She glared directly at him as she spoke. Men like Wagner are past the stargazer stage. He understands the way the world is, and makes the best of it. Uh-huh. Hadrian kept his eyes forward this time, but felt her looking at him again. What's that supposed to mean? Nothing. Wagner's been good to me. Didn't say he wasn't. Probably a great guy, when he's not poisoning people. I did that. And I didn't poison you, I drugged you. If I'd used poison, you'd be dead. Hadrian nodded, giving in again. He shifted his short sword's belt just off the hip, where it rubbed him. The hand on a half-sword always hung low, but he wore the short sword higher when he rode to keep it clear of his thigh. You know, I wasn't asking for your hand in marriage. I was just curious about how a woman from Colnora ended up here. Seemed a bit strange to me, that's all. They continued on in silence. The two split, going separate ways around a hawthorn tree that Hadrian was surprised he remembered from the trip up. Same thing had happened with a boulder earlier. Why is it I remember some things but not others? Why the tree and the boulder? 
but not that fallen log or that curve. This was the sort of internal conversation he often expressed verbally with Royce, the kind that drove his partner nuts. But it wasn't polite to travel with someone and not acknowledge them, so a little pointless conversation seemed reasonable. Rather than be irritated by the silence, Hadrian chose to... I ran into some trouble in Colnora, Scarlet said. Hadrian didn't dare look over. He didn't show any sign that he knew she was there. Royce was telling the truth about me being in the Black Diamond. She paused. Hadrian didn't respond, didn't want to sidetrack her into a discussion about Royce. After a moment, she went on. I grew up a farmer's daughter and ran away to the big city because I had talent and wanted to act in the theatre there. I was only fourteen, didn't know women weren't allowed to be actors. They laughed at me, told me to go home. I couldn't do that. I'd watched my mother kill herself in silent misery. She cried herself to sleep at night. I wouldn't do that, wouldn't be that. I danced and sang on street corners for money. People liked me and dropped coppers in my hat. I thought I'd found a future, and I was so happy. Didn't know about the minstrel guild and how ruthless people could be. Like I said, I was only fourteen. Adrian risked a glance and discovered Scarlet wasn't looking at him. Her sight was fixed on the shadows, a hard, pained expression on her face. I was just a stupid little girl, she said with a sneer of contempt, as if seeing herself and hating what she saw. The guild didn't care that I was young and naive. All they cared about was me cutting into their profits. Beat me bloody and split my lip. My eyes were so swollen I couldn't see out of them for days. My left arm was broken, as well as the third finger on this hand. She held it up as if she were showing off a ring. Still a little crooked. She grimaced and made a fist with that hand. Well, that was all they did. Could have been worse. If the Black Diamond found you cutting in on their territory, you'd be dead, not just broken, beaten, and left vomiting in a ditch. You see, the members of the Minstrel Guild pride themselves on being professional men, not predators and thugs. This was business not pleasure. Nearly killing a stupid girl was just part of their job. Don't know what I would have done after that if it hadn't been for Chase. I wouldn't have gone home, so I probably would have died, I guess. Who's Chase? Chase was an entertainer, a magician and actor. Was he one of the men who... Was he part of the guild? No, which at the time surprised me too, because Chase put on shows wherever he liked in the city. No one ever bothered him. Turned out they didn't dare. He was part of a different guild, the Black Diamond. She looked at him with a bitter smile Hadrian didn't understand. His shows drew in crowds, big crowds. Everyone was fascinated and intent on watching his hands to see how he did the magic. Meanwhile, sweepers, pickpockets, worked their own magic. Misdirection is the key, he'd always said. He pulled me out of that ditch 
and clean me up. Gave me food and a place to sleep. Had me sing and dance at his shows and taught me how to pick pockets and do magic. To him, they were the same thing. He added me to his act and renamed me Dodge. Scarlet Dodge, the red-haired enchantress. He also sponsored my membership to the Diamond. Chase was a good man. Saved my life. Was. They killed him. Malachite and Jasper. This was five years ago. Hoyt was running things in the Diamond and fortifying his position as first officer, which is sort of like a duke. The second most powerful member short of the duel himself, who's essentially the king. And like any good duke, he was preoccupied with weeding out those not loyal to him. Most of us in the bottom ranks hated Hoyt. Chase was no different. He threw his loyalty to a new guy, a bucket man and rising star in the guild, who looked like he could replace Hoyt. But then everything changed. Hoyt cleaned house. The rising star went to Manzant, and Chase and a lot of others were found floating face down in the Burnham River. I didn't want to be next, so I ran went south. In Ratibor, I joined, of all things, a travelling minstrel show. I performed magic, and we fleeced our audiences, just like in Colnora. Kept moving to avoid problems. In Swanwick, trouble caught us. I was arrested. Kept my hands because they had decided to send me to Manzant Prison. The sort mine always needs workers, and workers need hands. On the road south, I pulled one more magic act and got my chains off. Chase taught me that too. One more way in which he saved my life. I ran west, into the mountains. She slowed, then stopped. Scarlet stared at the shadowy path, and then back at the black of the forest. People here say a spirit haunts these woods, and has protected the people in this valley for centuries. Augustine's reformed demon... I guess. She seemed embarrassed. I'm not saying I believe everything, but everyone believes something. They insist in the existence of the gods, or demons, or tree spirits, or they believe that such things don't exist. One person might profess that people are basically good, while another might think the opposite. But everyone believes in something, you know. And what we choose to believe in says a lot. Not only about the kind of people we are, but about the kind of people we want to be, and the kind of world we want to live in. Augustine tell you that. She stopped and gave him an angry face. What? You think a reformed thief can't conceive of such things? Or do you think a woman couldn't possibly ponder such ideas? She was opening up to him, saying things he imagined she didn't say to many people. Maybe she thought he would understand that he might feel the same. And he did. But instead of agreeing, he'd accused her of being stupid. Sorry, he said, and meant it. You should be. I am. The scowl on her face lost its strength and slowly drained away as they walked. Hadrian waited. He didn't dare say another word until she did. Anyway, she said, finally breaking the silence and erasing the slate of past awkwardness with a word. I honestly feel that something guided me here. 
Here, here. Up this trail. She nodded. I stumbled on this path and followed it to the monastery. It really was as if Maribor, or something, led me. And Abbot Augustine took you in? Like Chase before him, he saved me. Didn't rebuke, judge, or ask questions. He just told me I needed to change my life, as if he knew everything. He introduced me to the people of the Dale who, with his endorsement, welcomed me as one of their own. She began walking again, moving faster and lighter, as if a weight had been lifted. And now? She gave a carefree roll of her shoulders. I dance, I sing, I do magic tricks. Three times a week I entertain people at Caldwell House. The rest of the time I try to master the spinning wheel or make clay pots. Haven't succeeded at a single pot, but I'm better at it than spinning wool. Spinning is a torment. I'm also trying to learn to bake. Hadrian could hear the river and see the moon reflecting off its face when Scarlet asked, What about you? How'd you learn to fight like that? How'd you end up with Royce? That has to be a tale. I grew up in the military, you could say, and then I became a mercenary for several years in Calais. How I ended up with Royce is indeed a tale, a long one. He pointed to the bridge that led to the Dale and the end of their trip, then grinned. Not fair. I have an appointment with Royce tonight, but if you're really interested, you could invite me to dinner tomorrow. She smirked. You really are something, aren't you? Just a dog with a ball. Hadrian had said goodnight to Scarlet and was almost to the door of Caldwell House, when he spotted a familiar hood near the stables. Even after three years, seeing Royce come at him was disturbing. He felt as perplexed as a bird might at the impossibly nimble flight of bats. Adding to that was how Royce remained visible in moonlight, but disappeared in shadows. He appeared to fade out, then materialize. Combined with the flutter and flow of his black cloak, the effect was creepy and, Hadrian imagined, Absolutely terrifying to anyone on Royce's bad side. You're back earlier than I thought you'd be, Hadrian said. Got what I needed. You eat. Not yet. Royce glanced around. Unlike the lower quarter of Medford, where people wandered the night or slept in alleys and on doorsteps, the streets around Caldwell House were empty. We'll get something later, Royce said. Let's talk in the room first. Something happened. Spoke to her again. She has a way of... Let's get inside and I'll tell you the rest. Caldwell House was vacant. Neither Wagner nor Gill were visible. A fire was burning low in the hearth. The crackle of wood and the groan of the door seemed loud in the stillness. Having a town meeting or something tonight? Royce asked. Not that I know of but I was in a mountain all day. They might just turn in early. This is mostly a farming community. People in the country don't stay up late. They climbed the creaking stairs to their room on the second floor. Hadrian reached for the latch, but Royce grabbed his wrist. He pointed at the light flickering out from under the door. They exchanged looks of surprise. 
Then Hadrian slowly pulled his side swords and backed up while Royce opened the door. Three candles burned inside, one near the bed, one on the windowsill, and one on the little table where Lord Fawkes and Pastor Payne sat. The two were playing a game of cards and drinking from a pair of crystal glasses filled from a tall black wine bottle. They looked up as Royce and Hadrian entered the room. Ah, finally, Fawkes said with a big grin. Thought you'd never get here. Usually when I find unexpected guests in my room, Royce said, they don't leave in the same condition they arrived in. Royce's comment lacked any true menace, because he hadn't drawn Alverstone. Hadrian followed his partner's lead and sheathed his swords. Then I shall consider myself one of the lucky ones, Fawkes replied, stretching his grin even wider. He laid down his cards and winked at the pastor. I had you anyway. Pastor Payne frowned and slapped his set of cards on the table in frustration. He got up and walked to the window, where he stood with his arms folded, glaring at Fawkes, and giving up the stage to his lordship. I thought I'd save you the time of finding us, Fawkes said. So, you've seen the place, had a chance to evaluate the job. What say you? How would you go about killing Lady Dulgarth? Hadrian glanced at Royce. He could tell his partner was irritated. Fawkes, being in their room, was unexpected, and Royce didn't like unexpected. Hadrian couldn't say he was overly fond of it himself. The door had no lock, and they were only renting, but still. A noble lord might not consider it impolite. Courtesy and respect were required within the peerage, but they flowed in one direction. As far as Fawkes was concerned, Hadrian and Royce were most certainly inferior. You're not going to tell me you need more time, Fawkes said. He looked at Payne. The pastor must be fiscally conscious when spending church funds. He's worried you two might be dragging this out to milk expenses. As for myself, I'm anxious, seeing that a noble woman's life hangs in the balance. No, I don't need more time, Roy said. Well, then. Fawkes took a sip from his drink. Let's hear it. All right. Royce glanced at Hadrian, revealing he was still irritated about the intrusion, but holding it in check. Personally, I'd scale the outside of the tower to her bedchamber late at night, slip through the window, and slit her throat while she slept. Pastor Payne grimaced, and one of his hands stroked at his throat. That's awfully brutal. Murder usually is. But how's that supposed to look like an accident? Payne asked. It isn't. Royce moved to the table and, tilting the black wine bottle, looked for a label. There wasn't one. The time for accidents has long passed. Everyone already knows she's a target. Pretending otherwise is foolish. If Lady Dulgarth genuinely caught a cold and died weeks later from a fever, everyone would assume foul play. But her bedroom window is six stories up, Fawkes said. Seven, Royce corrected. 
but the whole outside is covered in lush, strong ivy with branches thicker than a man's thumb. Not much different than climbing a ladder. I know. I did it. Slipped right into her bedroom. You didn't, the pastor said, appalled. Fox stood up. Pursing his lips, he began pacing around the table. He retained his glass, holding it with both hands, tapping the rim with an index finger. What else? If we take precautions, if we clear the ivy, certainly the assassin will pick a new tactic. What else might he try? Knox has been posting more guards, which is helping. He's got Lady Dulgarth fairly well buttoned up. Poisoning will be difficult now that she's looking for that. The staff is too small and loyal to bribe. Hadrian knew this to be a joke, a biting insult, and he struggled not to smile. Fawkes didn't so much as blink. Still, there must be a way. Of course, Royce replied. Trickier, though. Let's hear it. Fawkes raised his little glass as if to toast the proposal. Well, if you can arrange it so you know where she'll be in advance, and if that place is outdoors, then I'd go with a long-distance bow shot. Long distance? Payne asked. What's that mean? Means that you hide an archer close enough to ensure a lethal first shot, which, if the Lady of Security is even one notch above a dead chipmunk, will be very far indeed. So, what are we talking about here? A longbow, particularly if the archer is in an elevated position. The killer can pretend it's a walking stick until he gets into position. Then he can string it, make the shot, unstring, and walk away. What's the range on a longbow? Three hundred, four hundred yards, Hadrian said. Yes, but accuracy is key, Royce said. I wouldn't recommend more than a hundred yards. You'll only get one shot. Fawkes was thinking, tapping his glass again. So if I had the job, Royce went on, I'd contract this out, hire a professional marksman. Who? Only three men I'd trust to make the shot with the longbow, Royce replied, and one is dead. And the other two? One is Tom the Feather, Royce glanced at Hadrian, but he's way up in Ghent, and I don't think he'd do it regardless of the price paid. He's a man of scruples. And the other? A man by the name of Roosevelt Hawkins. Now, he's actually local. Real close. Too close. How do you mean? Where is he? Man's Ant Prison. But no one gets out of there. Fawkes gave the pastor a long stare with the trace of a smile. What about a crossbow? Fox asked. I heard any idiot can shoot one of those. True, but for the same range, it would have to be a big one, Royce replied. And how are you going to get that past castle security? So as you can see, the tower climb is far easier and likely what your assassin will use. The other involves hiring someone... That not only complicates things, but also costs money and reduces the profit. And then there's the need to know her ladyship's schedule, and hope she's going to be outside in a place ideal for the shot. What else? Roy shrugged. 
If she were in a crowd, someone could just walk up and knife her, where that would likely result in the capture of the assassin. What if her staff wasn't totally loyal? Pastor Payne asked. What then? What are the odds of that? Adrian couldn't avoid a smirk. The calculating, eager, nearly gleeful way the two of them reveled in the possibility of killing a young woman turned his stomach. Lots of possibilities there, Roy said. Too many to guard against. If that's a real concern, my best advice would be replacing the entire staff. That's the best you have for us? Fawkes asked. Royce nodded. He was lying. No one could tell by looking at his face, but three years had given Hadrian a special sense of the man under the hood. He was leaving things out. Hadrian had never been a professional assassin, but even he guessed there were other ways to kill Lady Dulgarth. She was famous for going out into the villages to help sick and injured people. At the very least, she could be lured out and ambushed. The castle could even be set on fire, as had happened in Medford the year before. That blaze claimed the life of the queen. Could have killed the king as well, but he hadn't been there that night. Still, climbing the tower's ivy did seem viable and straightforward enough to work, which left Hadrian puzzled as to why Royce offered it up rather than other choices. If Fawkes were experiencing similar reservations, he kept them from his face. He smiled. Excellent. That's wonderful news. He looked at Payne and nodded. All we need to do is get rid of the ivy and make certain Lady Dulgarth is well protected when outdoors. We'll also keep a lookout for men with crossbows or longbows. This is truly a relief. Fawkes returned to the table, refilled his and Payne's glasses, and then retrieved two more from a small satchel hanging over one of the chairs. I anticipated success tonight and brought the bottle of wine to celebrate. Sadly, you took so long, the pastor and I polished off most of it while waiting. Still, we have enough for a toast, Fox said. Did you also bring the money you owe us? Absolutely, Fox grinned. Payne walked back from the window and picked up his glass. Royce sneered at the bottle in Fox's hand. That's no attitude to take. It's a Maranon tradition to conclude business with a toast. I'm not big on tradition, Royce replied. Fawkes narrowed his eyes. As with most traditions, there's also a point. Up north you shake hands. People do that to show they aren't holding a weapon and don't have one up their sleeve. Down here, we drink. Eating and drinking together establishes a personal connection. It proves a degree of trust. I don't trust you. I can't say I'm ready to leave my firstborn in your care either. But we do need a certain degree of faith in each other. I need assurance you've done your due diligence and haven't, in fact, joined with your like-minded brethren and made it easier for the assassin by leading us astray. And you need to know we won't be wagging our tongues and exposing your identities to authorities who might be interested in your prior transgressions, Fawkes said. And drinking can do all that. 
No, but refusing to join us does give me cause for concern. Be as concerned as you like. I'm not drinking anything you offer me, Royce said. I don't conduct business with men who doubt my integrity. Which means what? It means you don't get paid, Falk said. You're right. I can't imagine why I should doubt your integrity. So you'll join us? No. You'll pay me, or you won't leave this room alive. Royce shifted his sight to pain. Either of you. You dare threaten me? Fox exclaimed, taking a step back from the table while his hand reached for his sword. Hold on, hold on. Hadrian stopped him. We'll have a drink. No. We won't. Royce said. Sure we will. He pointed at the bottle. They've already been drinking the wine. It's fine. And the glasses? Royce asked. Hadrian pointed at a pair of cups on the shelf over their beds. We'll use those instead. He retrieved the cups and held them out to Forks. The Lord frowned. You aren't going to drink such fine wine out of wooden cups, are you? Is there some rule against toasting with wooden cups? Hadrian asked. No. Forks sighed and continued to frown as he poured a small amount in each. You two are so untrusting. To peace between us and a long life to all. Hadrian lifted his cup and drank. With a miserable expression, Fawkes did as well. Payne followed suit, but Royce never touched his cup. The wine was rich, but delicate. There one minute, gone the next. And the payment? Hadrian asked. He hasn't drunk, Payne said, pointing at Royce. Doesn't matter, Fawkes told him. Get the money. Payne set his cup down and moved to the window, where he bent and blew out the candle. Downstairs, the door to Caldwell House opened. Several booted feet ran across the wooden floor of the common room, heading for the stairs. Concern flashed across Royce's face. Relax, they're just bringing it up, Fork said. But his words sounded odd. Royce reached for his dagger and Hadrian took a step to intercept him, then noticed the world was swimming. The room lurched strangely. Candlelight spread out, and the figures of Payne, Fawkes, and Royce moved in slow motion. The table between them was thrown aside as the door to the room burst open. The sound was strangely muffled, as if Hadrian were underwater. Not again, Hadrian thought. Six men in black uniforms, chainmail, and conical helms entered the room. They wielded swords, and violence gleamed in their eyes. These weren't villagers. They weren't even castle guards. They were something else. And it wasn't good. The bottle of wine, which had toppled when the table was tossed, had struck the floor but didn't break. It rolled in a half circle, the blood-colored contents dripping from its neck. Hadrian reached for his swords, he was struck before he got either of them free of its scabbard. Another blow hit his back. One more made him cry out, and he crashed to the floor. His swords fell from his hands. You'd better be right about this, Payne said. 
Coin equals options, my good pastor. Split only two ways, this will get you out of that hovel you call a church and save you from starving this winter. And you're certain there's no chance of them escaping? Payne asked. You heard for yourself. No one has ever escaped from Manzant prison. No one. Hadrian's sight darkened as everything went black. Chapter 14 The Note The next morning, Sherwood waited in Lady Dulgarth's private study, playing out a hunch. In many ways, he felt dishonest, even despicable given the circumstances, but he had to know. Sherwood went about his usual routine, adjusting the easel, setting the canvas, mixing his paints. He marveled at the exactness of his palette. He never cleaned the thing. The new oil kept the paint workable for days, and cleaning it would be a terrible waste. One of the other advantages of oil over egg, which dried up in minutes. Even with the oil, an inevitable build-up formed as paint dried beyond his ability to reclaim. But pallets were cheap, and eventually he would replace the whole thing. He'd had this one for a while. None of the original wood was visible on the paint side. Even the backside was a mess of smudges and multicolored fingerprints, and everyone was exactly the same as it had been. Sherwood didn't know how, but he was certain Lady Dulgarth was responsible. I consider it my failure. I'm responsible, and I'll make it right again. Maybe it had been a coincidence that she'd said that, but deep down he was so certain. A feeling wasn't the same as the truth, though, so Sherwood waited while watching the sunrise, its light creeping across the ceiling and down the wall. If she'd had nothing to do with it, Nyssa wouldn't expect a session. No one else knew about the miracle except Melbourne, and Sherwood was convinced he didn't care enough to say anything. So if Lady Dulgarth came to the study, it would prove her involvement. And what will that mean? He didn't know. Didn't care. One thing at a time. He finished mixing, then set the palette knife down. Hopping onto the stool, he wiped his hands on a rag, then returned to watching the sun creep while he waited. He didn't hear her walking. He never did, at least not her feet. The dress was what he heard, that familiar swish-swish. Lady Dulgarth entered, as she always did, without a word or glance. She wore the same gold silk brocade dress, had the fox stole wrapped around her shoulders, and held the riding gloves. Moving to her mark on the floor, she turned, lifted her chin, and looked at the chandelier. Thank you, he said. The two words just came out. Sherwood had run through a dozen different conversations in his head, everything from pointing an accusing paintbrush at her to kneeling at the lady's feet and weeping. He'd been undecided on what he would really do if she came. Now he knew, and was pleased with the simplicity. So much better than weeping. For what? Her words were aloof, her eyes still on the chandelier. I honestly don't know. 
This made her look at him. You don't know why you're thanking me? For restoring my property, certainly, but I don't know what you did, or perhaps more to the point, how you did it. So, while I thank you for the gift, I'm not really sure what exactly I'm thanking you for. Does that make sense? It does not. But you did repair my easel, brushes, and paints. She looked down at his tools with squeezed lips and squinted eyes. Oh, that's right. Are those new? No, they aren't. They are the same ones that were destroyed. Somehow you managed to put them back together for me, down to the last sable hair in this brush. I don't know what you're talking about. If it wasn't you, how did you know to come here this morning? She resumed, looking at the chandelier. Habit. Habit? Yes. To be honest, I'd forgotten about your mishap of yesterday. You've had me doing this for so long, I act by rote now, which, as I think on it, is most disturbing. You need to finish this foolish painting so I can have my mornings back. This has gone on far too long. She lifted her chin and blanked her face. I know you, he said. Once more, the words came out without thought, as if a pipe ran directly from his mind to his mouth, and someone had flipped open the spigot. No, you don't, she said. Oh, but I do. I can see who you really are. I can see what you're so desperately struggling to hide from everyone. I can see it clearly. And it's beautiful. If you knew the real me, you wouldn't think me beautiful. But I do. And you are. Beautiful and wonderful and wise and... And I... Sherwood caught himself. He looked at the restored easel, at the miracle before him, and threw caution to the wind. I love you, Nyssa. There. Sherwood felt as if he'd expelled some kind of poison that had sickened him for weeks. Saying it filled him with relief and joy. The euphoric sensation lasted all of a second. Then reality crashed down. What have I done? He expected either outrage or laughter. If the former, guards would be throwing him out of the castle. If the latter, his heart would break. Instead, Nissa Dulgarth slowly shifted her gaze to him. Pity was in her eyes. A deep, mournful sadness so pained that Sherwood trembled. A tiny, almost smile stole over her lips, a bitter, painful face. You don't know me, Sherwood. No one does, and no one ever will. Just paint. Can you do that? He nodded, a terrible emptiness filling him. Sherwood took his noon meal outside, sitting in the grass of the courtyard. The day was perfect, as every day in Dulgath had been since he'd arrived. It never rains. He only then realized this, and found it odd he hadn't noticed before. 
the skies were perpetually blue. There was always a light, warm breeze, never hot. He sat in the shade along the south wall, near an overgrown area where the scattered stones of the crumbled tower made scything the grass too much trouble to bother. He had his back to one of the great blocks, and his legs outstretched toward the statue of a man and woman kissing. Of the many wonderful pieces of artwork at Castle Dulgarth, this was Sherwood's favorite. The two figures intertwined and blended at the base, as if they were part of a tree trunk. Then, as the torso twisted up, a man and woman appeared like the frayed ends of a rope. The two embraced on the edge of a kiss, their lips a hair's breadth apart, eyes closed, ecstasy on their faces. The statue stood partially hidden in the tall grass, behind a wild bush and maverick tree. No one came there. No one visited that side of the castle, and at first he'd lamented the statue's isolation. He felt others should see its beauty and incredible artistry, which went beyond depicting the human form, lifting it above reality into the scope of what ought to be. Raw emotion formed from cold stone, the sculpture captured a moment of longing and triumph, passion and love. What else is there to hope for with any art? To capture not just truth, but a truth worthy of display, one that provides comfort, joy or understanding, and moves the heart or makes it pause. As the weeks had gone by, Sherwood came to see this neglected corner of the courtyard, this tranquil place of quiet solitude, as his. He appreciated its seclusion. The statue, those inspirational lovers lost in the forgotten weeds of a fallen past, gave him hope for the future. At times, when the shadows were just right, he thought the woman looked vaguely like Nyssa. The cheeks were far too high and sharp, the face too long, but he obviously wasn't seeing with just his eyes. He heard feet swishing through the grass, and was surprised to see Rissa Lynn coming toward him. No buckets this time, instead she carried a curled up bit of parchment. Pardon me, sir. She halted the moment he turned her way and gave a curtsy. I have a message for you. From whom? Chamberlain Wells gave it to me, sir, but he says it's from her ladyship. Lady Dulgarth? Yes, sir. Sherwood nearly toppled his plate in an effort to stand. Let's have it, then. He reached out, but Rissa Lynn hesitated. She had a troubled look in her eyes. What is it? he asked. Sir, I seen your easel. I seen your paints and brushes there in the study this morning, and- Her face reddened. I was outside the door and heard you speaking to her ladyship about her knowing. About her having something to do with it and all. Yes, he asked impatiently. Sherwood liked Rissalin well enough, but if Lady Dulgarth had sent him a message, for the first time ever, he wanted to know what it said. Well, I think you're right, sir. I think she does know. I think she was the one who did it. Thank you, Rissalin. I appreciate you telling me, but, sir. She bit her lip and looked at her feet. 
I don't just think she did it. I know she did. What do you mean? Did you see her do something? Rissalyn shook her head. Then how do you know? On account of how I've been Lady Dolgoth's handmaiden for the last ten years. Served her since she was twelve years old, sir. I was there when she was carried in after falling off Derby's back. There was no saving her, sir. Poor Nissa. Her back was broken. Neck too. She was dead before they got her to the castle. What? Sherwood was so focused on the note in Rissa Lynn's hand, he hadn't paid attention, but those last words were impossible to ignore. What are you saying? I'm saying the Countess Nissa Dulgath, daughter of Earl Beadle Dulgath, died two years ago. His lordship was crying and wailing like I'd never seen him. She was his only child, the last link he had to his lady Rochelle. He couldn't let her die. He had Abbot Augustine bring in that witch, Maddie Oldcorn. Was just his lordship, the abbot, and me there, when Maddie told him his daughter was dead and nothing could be done? Rissalyn, Lady Dulgath is alive. She's right up. You're holding a note. She wrote to me. That's not her ladyship. That's someone else. Something else. I'm telling you because I know you'll believe me. You can see her for what she is. A mere lady couldn't have fixed your easel and paints, could she? A mere lady couldn't have survived being poisoned. And I was there that day when the stone fell. It didn't miss her, sir. What are you talking about? She would have been crushed. The stone was... He pointed at one of the huge blocks, half buried in the grass as big as these. And I watched her swatted away like a fly, the maid said. Sherwood narrowed his eyes. Rissa Lynn, have you been drinking? She scowled, then frowned. I have not, sir. And I don't understand why you act as if you don't believe me. Because I don't. He nearly shouted the words, but part of him was inwardly nodding and whispering, Yes. I thought... Rissalyn folded her lips tight to her teeth. I thought you were different. Her lower lip quivered. I thought you'd understand. She turned and started to walk away. The note, he cried. She spun. Tears were in her eyes as she threw the parchment at him. You'd love a monster when... I'm... I'm right in front of you, damn you. Damn you, Sherwood Stowe. Go on, go to it. Let the demon drag you to pyre. I don't care anymore. With that, Rissalyn ran away in tears, leaving the note fluttering in the grass, blown by the perfect breeze. Sherwood had memorized the note and replayed the words in his head as he dug his sword out of a pile in the corner of his room. No rust on the metal, but plenty on the man. Sherwood had taken better care of the blade than he had of himself. He couldn't remember the last time he'd used it, or when he'd done anything more strenuous than a long walk. Like everything else, he'd inherited the blade from Yardley 
Where Yardley had gotten it, no living soul knew. Nothing too fancy. The sword had a straight guard and a hawk's head pommel. But the work was of high quality, and the blade professional, not merely decorative. Traveling artists didn't carry much, so whatever they kept long enough to hand down was worth the effort. In most kingdoms of Averon, able-bodied men were required by their lords to own a weapon and use it if called upon. But only nobles and those so authorized, such as soldiers and sheriffs, openly carried. As a result, he, like his predecessors, kept the weapon in his bedroll, out of sight, but close at hand. Sherwood had been accosted on several occasions. Mostly one or two toughs came at him, usually armed with only a single knife between them. Pulling the sword from his bedroll nearly always ended the encounter. But there had been times when he'd faced thieves brandishing their own weapons, true highwaymen who weren't deterred by the show of a long blade. And Sherwood had been forced to fight for his life. He'd done well. Sherwood was certain he'd killed at least one man, but hadn't lingered to make certain. In another fight, he'd stabbed a young tough, no more than seventeen, through the stomach. He, too, probably died. In more than six fights, Sherwood had survived, suffering just three wounds, and only one of those could be considered serious. Luckily, Yardley had also taught him how to sew up a cut. Sherwood harbored no illusions of his prowess. He only hoped that if Lady Dulgath required his blade, his skills would be equal to the task. He waited, watching the sun sink into the ocean. It was only three quarters set, but he couldn't wait any longer. He wanted to arrive before she did. Strapping the sword to his waist, he took the stairs, two at a time, and sprinted out of the castle. Sherwood, the note had read. Meet me at the cliffs on the west side of the castle at sunset. I need help, and you're the only one I can trust. His emotions were a volatile mix of jubilation and terror. The revelation that she both trusted and needed him was a blast of pure joy. That she was so desperate to meet outside the castle in such a secluded place made him dread what she might say. Perhaps she wants to come away with me. No, that would be too much to hope for. He was letting his emotions override reason. Likely she needed him to pass a message to King Vincent, something she couldn't trust going through Wells or Rissalin. Sherwood ran across the courtyard and out the gate, making a quick left and hugging the wall before veering off into the grassy bluffs on the blind side of the castle. The wind was stronger there, as it came off the ocean with a damp, salty blast that permanently bent the hip-deep grass. She's scared of someone in the castle. Maybe everyone. You're the only one I can trust. Clearly, she couldn't trust Rissa Lynn. But did she know her handmaiden believed she was a demon? No, he realized then, saw it clearly. You'd love a monster when I'm, I'm right in front of you? Rissa Lynn was jealous and either making things up or suffering from some form of delusion. 
Regardless of her feelings, she had to realize that wild accusations weren't going to keep them from Nyssa. I'll talk to her later. Let her down easy. He ripped through the tall, wind-battered grass, which lashed at his feet and legs. The sounds of the surf grew louder. Overhead, gulls cried. On the western side, the sunset tower of Castle Dulgarth stood on the very edge of the promontory's sea-worn tip. The eight-story stone pillar, which appeared to be an extension of the cliffs, had no windows on that side. Some sixty feet below, relentless waves crashed against the stubborn stone. Someone was near the base of the tower. A dark figure standing in the shadowed gap between two of the tower's massive carved feet. Sherwood slowed his run to a hesitant trot when he realized it wasn't Nyssa. Not even a woman. It was a man in a black cloak. The hood up. What are you doing here? Sherwood asked, stopping short. Why? Waiting for you, of course. Lord Fox replied. The wind on top of the cliffs was chaotic and violent, forcing Fox to grip the edges of his cloak to keep it from whipping like a flag. Despite his effort, the lower edges flapped behind him like a startled bird. You sent the message. Sherwood kept his distance. He was out of breath, tired, and sweating from the run. Yes, I needed to speak with you privately, and I didn't think you'd come at my request. Fox stepped forward one stride. Maybe he was trying to get out of the wind or felt uncomfortable between the tower's claws. You've actually succeeded in getting Nyssa to fall for you. Fall? Don't be modest, boy. I spoke to her this morning and explained how the king might be uncomfortable with her appointment, her being the last of the Dulgarth line and all. I offered my hand in marriage, but was rebuffed. Apparently, she's found someone else. I know she has high standards, and I couldn't imagine you had inexplicably leapt that bar. Sherwood wanted to believe. She said there was someone else. Maybe she just wasn't interested in you. She was quite sincere and rather specific. What exactly did she say? Did she mention me by name? No, but she spoke of a man who visits her regularly, someone she's getting to know better each day. And the more she learns about him, the more she has come to believe that she has found someone she could be with. She? She said that? Yes, but don't get your hopes up. You aren't going to live happily ever after. I invited you to leave, but you didn't take the hint. Now I must insist. He let go of his cloak, freeing it to fly behind him and fall to the grass, exposing his sword. Sherwood fell back, drawing his own. I won't leave. I'd rather die. Fawkes looked at the blade, puzzled. What's a painter doing with a sword? Was that a gift? Do you even know how to hold it? Sherwood grinned. 
I've killed men with this. Men who'd attacked me. How about you? Done a lot of exhibitions, I suspect. Performed pretty dances before courtly audiences with tipped blades, perhaps. I don't think many draw steel against the king's cousin and mean it. Oh, they've meant it, Fawk said, striding toward him and drawing his blade. I'm not well liked by many in Mian. People have lost limbs and some have died in exhibitions. Are you sure you want to do this? I'm giving you one last chance. You can simply leave. And I'll extend you the same courtesy. Leave now. Nyssa has made her choice. I'll stay. This should be fun, don't you think? For one of us, Sherwood retorted. Lord Fawkes swung first. Sherwood danced back, letting the blade sing through the air. He had most of his wind back, but he'd burned energy rushing to the cliff. Fawkes had the advantage of rest. On the other hand, the trip had warmed Sherwood, loosening his muscles. Fawkes could have been standing in the cool wind for who knew how long. Sherwood let him swing again. The same move, right to left with a downward angle. A power stroke attempting to take advantage of Sherwood's weak side. Or maybe the Lord was just testing him, trying to get a feel for his ability. A good fight is a short fight, Yardley always had said. Show him nothing. Conserve your energy while burning his. Then, at the first opportunity, end it. Sherwood and Fawkes crashed blades, hard. Then, as fast as the artist could, he backstroked at an angle to catch Fawkes at the neck. The Lord ducked. Damn! Sherwood was afraid Fawkes might take that moment of exposed chest to stab upward. That's what he would have done, but Fawkes retreated three steps, bouncing on his feet. That's the difference between an exhibition fighter and a survivalist, Sherwood thought. Fawkes was going for points, trying to look good. Engage, withdraw, reset, circle left, circle right, Lunge again. It made for a pretty show, but on a lonely cliff with lives on the line and only seagulls and grass for an audience, no one fought that way. This might be Christopher Falk's first real battle. That was Sherwood's advantage. He's never done this. I have him. But Sherwood had more than one voice in his head. The other one mused over how well Fawkes handled his blade. He has a lot more experience. He has held that sword as often as I've held a paintbrush. And his teachers were skilled swordsmen, not aging portrait artists. But he's never killed. That reassuring rationalization was followed by a nagging thought. First time for everything. Another attack. This time, Fawkes employed more finesse. He began with the same swing, and Sherwood saw now that he'd done it twice to set expectations. Then he spun left and brought the sword blade up, hoping either to slice across Sherwood's torso or, if you were really lucky, to catch the tip on his stomach and then thrust. Sherwood foiled Fawkes' plan by spinning to his right. This wasn't skill. He had no idea Fawkes was trying something clever, Sherwood had merely decided that if he tried the same swing again, he'd catch it on the other side and try to get in behind the man. As it turned out, they outsmarted each other.
and each bobbed away, trying to conceal the surprise and concern they felt. Impressive, Fork said, selling a sense of confidence that Sherwood wasn't buying. Earlier, he might have been intimidated, but he realized that Fawkes was mostly bluster and wasn't actually very good. In that instant, he realized he'd won. Believing you will be victorious, Yardley used to say, knowing it, not just in your head but in your heart, is what will give you the ability to succeed. You lose the fear, and it's the fear that kills you. Believe in yourself, and you'll triumph. Sherwood knew now that he was better than Fawkes. More importantly, he could see the fear in the Lord's eyes. Fawkes knew it too. To look at Lord Christopher Fawkes was to see a dead man. Sherwood advanced this time. He held the sword more comfortably. He felt his muscles relax, his breathing slow. In through the nose, out through the mouth. The two voices in his head went silent, and he found his balance. The wind was in his hair. Gulls were crying. The surf crashed below, but Sherwood focused on Fawkes, who had his back to the cliff. He took a shuffled step forward and raised his sw- Pain exploded across Sherwood's back. Every muscle in his body seized. His breath stopped. His eyes went wide. In front of him, Fawkes' attention darted to something behind Sherwood, and his lordship smiled, not with sinister supremacy, but with relief. The tension in Sherwood's muscles disappeared, along with every ounce of his strength. He crumpled to the grass, limp, as if every bone in his body had dissolved. He needed air, but couldn't breathe through the unbearable pain. He wasn't sure how long he lay there before footsteps approached. Hope you don't mind, Sheriff Knox said. I got the crossbow you asked for. It's huge, but it's the only one I could find. I just wanted to see how well it worked. Not at all, Fox said. That thing is... it's amazing, isn't it? Heavy as a boulder, not meant to be held while fired. Crossbows really aren't my thing. I was aiming for dead center, and it should have killed him instantly. Little bugger is still wheezing. Made an incredible hole, Fawkes said, his voice catching in his throat. Help me throw what's left of him off the cliff. Sherwood couldn't move, couldn't breathe as they dragged him. He wondered what it would be like to fall from such a height. Will the impact kill me, or will I drown? As it turned out, it was neither. Sherwood Stowe died while still en route to the edge. Chapter 15 The Painting Christopher Fawkes was the empathetic sort. While he had a long list of enemies, an actual written list he kept in the lining of his doublet, he could generally find something about each person to respect, or at least pity. This annoying predisposition toward understanding and compassion frequently robbed him of the unencumbered enjoyment of victory. A notable exception was the King of Maranon. 
Lord Fawkes was certain the only reason for King Vincent Pendergast's existence was to give Christopher something to hate without reservation. Vince the Vile, as Christopher referred to him in the safe confines of his own head, embodied everything bad in the world sewn up in one awful package. He was short, which was unforgivable for a monarch, and also ugly, which was unforgivable for anyone. He took after the Pendergast line, with a huge, hooked nose hanging off his face. His deep-set eyes hid beneath a ledge of bone so wide that a stick of chalk could rest there. He had gaps in his teeth, not just between the center two, like any normal monstrosity, but between all of them. Why Vince the Vile didn't grow a beard over his pockmarked skin remained a mystery, unless growing hair proved just as unmanageable as running his kingdom. His Majesty's fingers were fat and stubby, little sausages complete with thin, stretched casings. The only difference? Christopher had never seen so much hair on sausages. The King's fingers weren't the only fat part of the man. Vince the Vile wouldn't be able to wear a barrel without a cooper letting it out a stave or two. Perhaps the king's worst aspect was his habit of spitting and his utter lack of skill at it. Vincent's face was usually wet with saliva, and a gob of phlegm often decorated his chin. His personality matched his appearance. Chrissy, the king said when he spotted him in the courtyard, I'm surprised to see you in Dulgarth. Your Majesty. Christopher bowed with a smile on his lips as he pictured unleashing a quarrel into the fat, spittle-dripping crown stand. Christopher had the arbalist, what Knox called the huge crossbow, hidden as best he could behind the wardrobe in his bedroom. Being the size of a bass violin, the weapon wouldn't fit under the bed. Didn't fit behind his wardrobe either. The wingspan of the prod, what Knox called the bow part, stuck out on either side. He had to put a sheet over it, making it look like a midget ghost with outstretched arms. The morning after he'd sent the two thieves to Manzant, Christopher noticed that the ivy on the west tower had been removed. The gardener had ripped it down by order of the countess. The evening he and Payne were in Breckendale. Either she was a fortune-teller, or the thieves had warned her. Why they would care, the Lord didn't know, but it didn't matter. Christopher had asked Knox to find a heavy crossbow, and hoped the shooting-from-a-distance idea hadn't also been thwarted. Seeing the arbalist with its steel prod, its hand-crank, and its three-quarter-inch-thick ash quarrels, he couldn't imagine anything stopping it. The giant bolt that killed Sherwood had entered his back, exited his chest, and flown out over the ocean without pause. The only challenge left was aiming the thing at Nissa Dulgarth in such a way that neither she nor anyone else could see the assassin squeeze the trigger. Christopher followed King Vincent and his retinue into the reception hall. The monarch left the bulk of his caravan, which, if one included the men-at-arms, might amount to more servants than in the whole of Lady Dulgarth's castle, in a miniature tent city just down the lane from the stables. Christopher was sorry to see that his friend Sir Gilbert hadn't come. Instead, Sir Dathan and Sir Jacobus flanked his majesty, 
along with Bishop Parnell and the usual set of hands for holding his cup, adjusting his collar, and kissing his ample arse. Lady Dulgath waited with her entire staff lined up in their finest bleached whites and blues. Blue and white were the colours of House Dulgath, but the indigo dye was expensive. Still, each member of the household wore at least one article of blue. The scullery staff, dairymaids, charwomen and stable boys all had light blue neckerchiefs. The gardeners, woodcutters and cooks donned blue belts, and the chambermaids and seamstresses draped sashes over their shoulders. The skilled servants, such as the scribe, tailor, and treasurer, sported blue vests. Chamberlain Wells, being in charge of the household, wore a tie and a long blue coat. The staff made a fine showing, backs and hair straight, eyes down, faces clean. The countess herself was stunning. Lady Dulgarth was dressed completely in blue, a rich gown that matched the deep color of the sapphire around her neck. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. A shame she turned down my marriage proposal. Such a terrible waste to put a three-quarter inch thick quarrel through that breast. She curtsied with her usual unrivaled grace, bowing her head. The king took her hand and kissed its back. Christopher knew what was on the royal pimple's mind. Father dead, no suitors, the queen left at home in Mian, and it got cold at night on the coast, even in summer. He imagined exactly what Vince the Vile was thinking. I'm the king after all, and so handsome. How can she resist? The old wart is in for a frustrating night. If Nyssa hadn't personally told Christopher about her growing interest in Sherwood, he'd have guessed she was frigid. But she didn't actually name Sherwood, did she? And the pater looked so very surprised. Why? Should have been proud, or at the very least guilty. Is it possible there's someone else? So very sorry to hear about your father, Nyssa. The drooling magpie blathered without a dandelion tuft of sincerity. He was still holding her hand, mauling it in his own. I would have come for the funeral, but the demands of the king's time often prohibit me from doing what I want. How strange, Christopher thought, given that you attended the Swanwick Spring Derby during that time. A race where your horse once again came in first. I assure you that I have no intention of altering the fief. House Dulgarth has always done a fine job of administering its land. It would be a crime to change that after so many centuries, he said, while glancing at the bishop. Can we hold the ceremony tomorrow? That way I'll be out of your hair and you can resume your life. And his royal majesty will go hunting. If a handful of drunks riding through a forest while an entourage of soldiers herds a host of animals to the slaughter can be considered hunting. Yes, your majesty, Nissa was saying. We can arrange that. You might have noticed the decorations on your way in. I thought we would hold it outside in the courtyard. 
What if it rains? Vincent asked. This elicited several smiles from the line of servants. I don't expect it will, sire. Why not? Because that would be unpleasant. Christopher had stopped listening to the conversation, but his attention returned when the king asked, And where is Sherwood Stowe? We don't know, your majesty. No one has seen him since yesterday, Lady Dulgarth explained. He left? No, sire, at least I don't think so. His things are still here. Vincent rubbed his glistening chin. I've been thinking of having him paint my daughter, Evangeline. Her portrait, I mean. I want it done while she's still young and pretty, before she starts looking like her mother. I spoke to Stowe when he came through Meehan on his way here, but that was months ago. Two months and three days, sir. Perkins Fallenwell, the king's bodyman, replied. Fallenwell had one of the most hilarious names Christopher had ever heard. There had to be a story behind it, but Perkins, being the pinch-nosed, prune-lipped tosser that he was, refused to divulge a word of it. Yes, that's right, two months. How long does it take to do a portrait? That's what he was here for, correct? Yes, sire, Nissa replied. My father had commissioned him, but Mr. Stowe hasn't yet completed it. Slow bugger, but I've heard he's the best, and I want the best for my little Eline. You say you haven't seen him in days? One day, sire, Perkins Fallenwell corrected. Vincent clapped Fallenwell on the back. He carries the royal purse, can you tell? The king laughed, a sluggish, honking sound like an influenza-stricken goose. When the king gathered himself, he coughed and then spat on the floor, barely missing Fallenwell's shoe. A long, elastic string snapped to his chin, where it stayed, a shimmering beacon to everyone watching, but the king was utterly oblivious. Is the painting any good? I... Ah... Uh, Nissa bit her lip. I haven't actually seen it. You haven't? Not at all. The king looked at Wells, and then the handmaiden. Each in turn shook their head. Sherwood is very protective about works in progress. Nissa tried to make up for her ignorance with a smile. But two months! Nissa clasped her hands together. I think he wants it to be a surprise unveiling. I'm inclined to grant him that pleasure. All fine and good, but I want to see if the man is worth waiting for, or whether I should hire someone else. After two months, it must be nearly finished. I don't think a painter of portraits will mind if the King of Maranon takes a peek. Where is it? In his room. I'll have it brought down to the study. She nodded toward Rissa Lynn, who scurried off. This way. Let me show you. When Bishop Parnell started to follow, the king held up a hand. Your grace, your presence won't be necessary. I'm sure you have better things to do. Perhaps you could have some tea with Pastor Payne. I'm sure this won't take long, and I will join you shortly. 
Lady Dulgath escorted Vincent down the corridor to the little room across from the stairs. Christopher watched them go, then followed. He wasn't interested in Sherwood's painting, but was suspicious about Vincent wanting to speak to the lady in private. Christopher waited outside the door, while Rissa Lynn scurried past, carrying the large, covered canvas. He knelt down and fussed with the buckle on his shoe, and she curtsied in his direction, after re-emerging from the study, then scampered down the hall. How long has Christopher Fawkes been here? The king asked, in a tone far softer than he'd employed earlier. Since the funeral. His majesty spat. Christopher knew the sound. His memory conjured a vivid, disgusting image, and he grimaced. I would be remiss if I didn't warn you that he wishes to become the next Earl of Dulgarth. If he has expressed interest toward you, I suspect it has more to do with winning your land rather than your heart. I appreciate your concern, Your Majesty. Vincent went on. As I said, I have no intention of changing what is working so well. Maranon has always been a lush, rich kingdom, but Dulgarth is the icing on the cake. On the way in, I saw how every field was planted, every plant vibrant and strong. Your roads are without holes, and the houses are in good repair. Your people are well-fed, smiling and laughing. It's good to see, so I have no doubt about renewing Dulgoth's tenure. You should know that I never had any, although many advised otherwise. Now, let's take a look at that painting. Oh, I assumed you merely wanted to speak in private. We really shouldn't. Nonsense! I'm sure it'll be fine. Even if it's not finished, it'll give me an idea of the man's skill. I really am thinking of having him paint my Evangeline. I'll just stand over here, Lady Dulgoth said. Don't you want to see? No, thank you, sire. It would be rude. Suit yourself. Okay, so, ah, here we are. I'm, ah, that's, that's, no, that's not right at all. I can certainly see why he wouldn't let you see it, Nissa. This is most disturbing. Insulting is what it is. Utterly. I can't believe. Damn, this must be some kind of joke. And it's not a funny one. No, I don't believe he'll be painting my daughter after all. Absolutely not. And if I were you, I wouldn't pay the man for this. This. Excuse me. The king hurried out of the study, his expression a twisted frown. Vincent the Vile strode past Christopher as if he weren't there. Nissa Dulgarth didn't follow. Where's the great hall? The king asked Wells as the chamberlain came through the main entrance. This way, your majesty, the chamberlain said. And get me a drink, Vincent bellowed. Of course, your majesty. Right away, sire. Christopher lingered in the hall, watching the open door to the study. After several minutes, when Lady Dulgarth still hadn't emerged, he peeked in. Nissa was at the easel, gazing at the painting and crying. In all the time he'd spent in Dulgarth, 
he'd never seen her display any emotion. Are you all right? he asked. She didn't reply. With one hand over her mouth, she ran out of the study. Stunned, Christopher watched her go. Nyssa had more in common with the many statues in the castle than with its people, but she had been reduced to tears by a painting. How bad could it possibly be? Christopher listened to Lady Dolgarth's receding footsteps, then crept forward to the easel and lifted the cloth. At first he wasn't certain what he saw. A face, certainly. A pair of eyes looked back at him with stunning, even disturbing clarity. But it wasn't Nyssa's face. This person was bald, cheekbones high and sharp. The eyes themselves were mesmerizing, but even they failed to be the most striking feature. The ears! The ears are pointed! The face in the portrait wasn't human. It was elven, but unlike any elf Christopher had ever seen. Every elf he'd ever encountered was covered in filth and wore the most wretched, downtrodden expression. Driven from respectable society, they were forbidden in many towns. When tolerated, they could only be found in the worst sections. The males were notoriously lazy, while the females were known to neglect their children. The one thing the genders shared was incessant begging. Dirty hands were constantly outstretched while they mumbled something indistinguishable, and yet their intent was obvious. Sherwood had portrayed one of those vile creatures dressed in Lady Dulgarth's clothes. However, the most disturbing detail wasn't the subject's race, but the expression on its face. The eyes bored straight into him, wide and clear. She wasn't begging, and her expression displayed no hint of shame. What was truly troubling was how the elven female in the portrait appeared to consider herself superior. Christopher could see it in her haughty stare, the square of her shoulders, and that hint of a smirk that declared she knew something he didn't. This elf was laughing at him, looking out from that canvas with painted eyes and judging him as unworthy. Christopher snatched up the canvas without thinking. He couldn't concentrate with those eyes upon him, glaring with disdain, belittling him, insulting his existence, questioning his very right to exist. He smashed the canvas against the wall, splintering the frame. He pulled and wrenched at the thing, trying to tear it in half, but the canvas was stronger than it appeared. He hurled it to the floor and reached for his dagger. I'll cut those miserable eyes from your... Lord Fox? Christopher turned and saw Lady Dulgarth's handmaiden. Her name was Rissa Lynn, and she stood in the doorway in her simple white dress with the faded blue sash. Her eyes were huge, her mouth a large O. Christopher froze with dagger drawn, then quickly put it away. When he saw she was alone, he asked, What do you want? The woman hesitated. She gave a nervous glance out the open door, then walked quickly toward him. Her eyes were on the broken painting as she said, 
It killed Sherwood Stow. Christopher's heart was still racing, his air coming in short, fast breaths. What are you blathering about, Gaul? I read the note Lady Dilgath sent to Mr. Stowe right before he vanished. This got his full attention. Her ladyship begged him to meet her on the cliffs above the sea. I told him what she was, tried to stop him from going. Mr. Stowe is dead. She pointed at the painting. That thing killed him. Killed him because he knew what she really was. And what is she? A demon. Same one that possessed Maddie Oldcorn. Poor Lady Nyssa died, but was never buried proper. Now a monster walks around in her corpse. Mr. Stowe saw that. It's all in the painting, isn't it, my lord? I went to his room last night to try to convince him about the demon. He wasn't there, but the painting was. So I looked. Mr. Stowe saw the monster inside Lady Dulgoth, and it killed him. He never returned from that meeting. The woman was insane, and desperation filled her eyes as she clasped her hands against her chest, squeezing them so hard the fingertips went white. You have to do something, my lord. The king is here. He can stop it. If you tell him what I... Christopher! The voice of the bishop called. Fox! Excuse me. He walked out. Keep it together, Christopher. Just one more day, not even a whole day, just a few more hours. Just a few more.